Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders, by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. Copyright 1974 by Kurt Gentry and Vincent Bugliosi. All rights reserved. A Bantam Book, published by arrangement with W.W. W. Norton and Company, Incorporated. Narrated by Ray Fouché. This book was originally created for audio cassette playback. Any announcements concerning cassettes do not apply to this recording. This version contains markers allowing direct access to major portions of the book. Annotation. Bugliosi prosecuted the 1969 murder case against cult leader Charles Manson and his followers. Among the brutal deaths attributed to the group is the mass murder of actress Sharon Tate and her houseguests. Bugliosi gives detailed descriptions of the crime scenes, the frustrating investigation, the arrest and trial, and the retaliation murders. Strong language and violence. 1974. From the book jacket. No matter how much you think you know about the Manson case, this incredible book will shock you. It began August 9th and 10th, 1969, when seven people were shot, stabbed, and bludgeoned to death in Los Angeles. It ended when a nation watched in fascinated horror as the killers were tried and convicted. But the real questions went unanswered. How did Manson make his family kill for him? How could these young men and women kill again and again without human feelings of any kind? Did the murders go on even after Manson was in jail? Now, for the first time, we have the answers. About the author. Vincent T. Bugliosi received his law degree in 1964 from UCLA Law School, where he was president of his graduating class. In his eight-year career as a prosecutor for the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, he tried close to 1,000 felony and misdemeanor court and jury trials. Of 106 felony jury trials, he lost but one case. His most famous trial was, of course, the Manson case, which became the basis of his best-selling book, Helter Skelter. But even before the Manson case, in the television series, The D.A., actor Robert Conrad patterned his starring role after Bugliosi. His most recent nonfiction book, Till Death Us Do Part, was also a bestseller, and he has recently had his first novel, co-written with Ken Hurwitz, Shadow of Cain, published in hardcover. He lives with his wife, Gail, and children, Wendy and Vince Jr., in Los Angeles, where he is in private practice. Dedication to Gail and Blanche. Table of Contents. Cast of Characters. Side 1, Tone 2. Part 1, The Murders. Side 1, Tone 3. August 9th to October 14th, 1969. Side 1. Part 2, The Killers. Side 3, Tone 1. October 15th to November 17th, 1969. Side 3. Part 3, The Investigation, Phase 2, Side 5, Tone 1, November 18th to December 31st, 1969, Side 5. Part 4, The Search for the Motive, Side 8, Tone 1, The Bible, The Beatles, and Helter Skelter, January to February 1970, Side 8. Part 5, Don't You Know Who You're Crucifying, Side 9, Tone 1. March to June 14, 1970, Side 9. Part 6, The Trial, Side 11, Tone 1. 
June 15th to November 19th, 1970. Side 11. Part 7. Murder in the Wind. Side 13, Tone 1. November 19th, 1970 to January 25th, 1971. Side 13. Part 8. Fires in Your Cities. Side 14, Tone 1. January 26th to April 19th, 1971. Side 14. Epilogue. A Shared Madness. Side 16, Tone 1. Narrator's Note. Captions. Side 17. The map found in the print edition is not included in this recording. End of note. Cast of characters. Los Angeles Police Department, LAPD. Tate Case Detectives. Robert J. Helder, Lieutenant. Supervisor of Investigations, headed Tate Investigation. Jess Buckles, Sergeant. Robert Calkins, Sergeant. Michael J. McGann, Sergeant. Assisted in Tate Investigation, Jerome Bowen, Leighton Print Section, SID. Robert Burbridge, Officer. A.H. Burdick, Lieutenant, Polygraph Examiner, SID. Wendell Clements, Civilian Fingerprint Expert. Earl Deemer, Lieutenant. Jerry Joe DeRosa, Officer. D.E. Dorman, Officer. Danny Galindo, Sergeant, also assisted in LaBianca investigation. D.L. Gert, Leighton Print Section, SID. Joe Granado, Forensic Chemist, SID, also assisted in LaBianca investigation. Ed Henderson, Sergeant. Gene Camadoy, Sergeant. William Lee, Sergeant, Ballistics Expert, SID. Robert C. Madlock, Lieutenant. Dudley Varney, Sergeant. William T. Wisenhunt, Officer. Dwayne Wolfer, Criminalist, SID. LaBianca Case Detectives. Paul LePage, Lieutenant, headed LaBianca Investigation. Gary Broda, Sergeant. Manuel Chick Gutierrez, Sergeant. Michael Nielsen, Sergeant. Frank Patchett, Sergeant. Philip Sartucci, Sergeant. Assisted in LaBianca Investigation, J. Claiborne, Sergeant, Leighton Print Section, SID. Edward L. Klein, Sergeant. Harold Dolan, Sergeant, Leighton Print Section, SID. W. C. Rodriguez, Officer. J. C. Tony, Officer. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, LASO. Assigned to the Hinman Investigation, Charles Gunther, Sergeant. Paul Whiteley, Sergeant. Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Vincent T. Bugliosi, Deputy District Attorney, prosecuted the Tate-LaBianca killers. Stephen K. and Donald Musich, Deputy District Attorneys, brought in to assist Bugliosi after Stovitz was taken off the case. Aaron Stovitz, Head of the Trials Division, co-prosecutor of Manson and the three female defendants until taken off the case shortly after the start of the trial. Inyo County District Attorney's Office. Frank Foles, Inyo County District Attorney. Jack Gardner, Investigator. Buck Gibbons, Deputy District Attorney. Defense Attorneys. Joseph Ball, 
interviewed Charles Manson and found him competent to represent himself. Donald Barnett, Leslie Van Houten's first attorney, was replaced by Marvin Part. Bill Boyd, Charles Watson's Texas attorney. Sam Bubrick, with Maxwell Keith, defended Charles Tex Watson. Richard Caballero, Susan Atkins's attorney from November 1969 to March 1970. Paul Fitzgerald, first Charles Manson's lawyer. He later quit the public defender's office to represent Patricia Krenwinkel. Gary Fleischman, Linda Kasabian's attorney. Charles Hollipeter, Charles Manson's attorney for a very brief period. Ronald Hughes, once Charles Manson's hippie lawyer, he later defended Leslie Van Houten up until the time he was murdered by the family. Irving Kanarek, replaced Ronald Hughes as Charles Manson's lawyer. Maxwell Keith, assigned by the court to represent Leslie Van Houten after the disappearance of Ronald Hughes, also with Sam Bubrick, defended Charles Tex Watson. Marvin Part, Leslie Van Houten's attorney for a brief period, was replaced by Ira Reiner. Ira Reiner, replaced Marvin Part as Leslie Van Houten's attorney, was replaced by Ronald Hughes. Leon Salter, Robert Bobby Beausoleil's attorney. Day Shin, replaced Richard Caballero as Susan Atkins's attorney. Manson family members and associates. Charles Mills Manson, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, God, Soul, the Devil. Charles Willis Manson, leader of the family and mass murderer. Maria Alonzo, a.k.a. Crystal. Released after the murder of Lauren Willett, she was later arrested in connection with an alleged plot to kidnap a foreign diplomat. Susan Denise Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie Mae Glutz, Sexy Sadie, Sharon King, Donna K. Powell, involved in the Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca murders. Edward Arthur Bailey, associated with the family, may have seen Manson kill a man in Death Valley. Ella Jo Bailey, a.k.a. Yellowstone, left family after learning of the Hinman murder. Lawrence Edward Bailey, a.k.a. Larry Jones, present when Tate Killers left Spawn Ranch, involved in the Hawthorne shootout. Linda Baldwin, alias used by family member Madeline Joan Cottage. Susan Phyllis Bartell, a.k.a. Country Sue, present when Zero allegedly committed suicide while playing Russian roulette. Robert Kenneth Bobby Beausoleil, a.k.a. Cupid, Jasper, Cherub, Robert Lee Hardy, Jason Lee Daniels, involved in the Hinman murder. Big Patty, alias used by family member Patricia Cranwinkle. Kenneth Richard Brown, a.k.a. Scott Bell Davis, associated with the family, friend of Zero. Mary Teresa Bruner, a.k.a. Mary Osh, Osh, Mother Mary, Mary Manson, Linda D. Moser, Christine Marie Ukes, first girl to join the Manson family, had a son by Manson, involved in the Hinman murder and the Hawthorne shootout. Capistrano, alias used by family member Catherine Gillies. Clem, alias used by family member Steve Grogan. Kenneth Como, a.k.a. Jesse James, escaped convict, associated with Manson family, involved in Hawthorne shootout. Priscilla Cooper, pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact in the murder of Lauren Willett. Sherry Ann Cooper, a.k.a. Semi Valley Sherry, 
fled Barker Ranch with Barbara Hoyt. Madeline Joan Cottage, a.k.a. Little Patty, Linda Baldwin, present when Zero died. Country Sioux, alias used by family member Susan Bartell. James Craig, state prison escapee, associated with Manson family, pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact in the murders of both James and Lauren Willett. Larry Cravens, family member. Crystal, alias used by family member Maria Alonzo. Cupid, alias used by family member Robert Bobby Beausoleil. Bruce McGregor Davis, a.k.a. Bruce McMillan, involved in the Hinman and Shea murders, present when Zero died, suspect in three other deaths. Daniel Thomas DiCarlo, a.k.a. Donkey Dan, Daniel Romeo, Richard Allen Smith, straight Satan motorcycle gang member, associated with the family, later became a reluctant but important prosecution witness. Donkey Dan, name given to Daniel DiCarlo by Manson Family Girls. John Leo Juan Flynn, Spawn Ranch Hand, associated with the family, testified to an extremely incriminating admission by Manson. Lynette Alice Fromm, a.k.a. Squeaky, Elizabeth Elaine Williamson, one of the earliest Manson family members, became the family's ex-officio leader after Manson was arrested. Catherine Irene Gillies, a.k.a. Capistrano, Cappy, Catherine Myers, Patricia Ann Burke, Patty Sue Jarden, family member, granddaughter of the owner of Myers Ranch, wanted to go along the night of the LaBianca murders but wasn't needed, present when Zero died. Sadie Mae Glutz, alias used by family member Susan Atkins. Sandra Collins Good, a.k.a. Sandy, married name Mrs. Joel Pugh, family member. William Goucher, associated with the Manson family, involved in the murder of James Willett. Stephen Dennis Grogan, a.k.a. Clem Tufts, involved in the Hinman and Shea murders, was with the killers the night the LaBiancas were killed involved in the attempted murder of prosecution witness Barbara Hoyt. Gypsy, alias used by family member Catherine Scher. John Philip Hout, a.k.a. Zero, Christopher Jesus, officially committed suicide while playing Russian roulette, was probably murdered. Gary Hinman, befriended the Manson family, was murdered by them. Barbara Hoyt, a.k.a. Barbara Rosenberg, fled the family before the Barker Ranch raid, became prosecution witness. Family attempted to murder her with an LSD-laden hamburger. Larry Jones, alias used by family member Lawrence Bailey. Linda Drew and Kasabian accompanied the killers on the nights of the Tate and LaBianca murders, star witness for the prosecution. Katie, alias used by family member Patricia Krenwinkel. George Knoll, a.k.a. 86 George, President Straight Satan's motorcycle gang, gave Manson the club's sword, which was later used in the Hinman slaying and taken along the night the LaBiancas were killed. Patricia Diane Krenwinkel, a.k.a. Katie, Marnie Reeves, Big Patty, Mary Ann Scott, involved in the Tate and LaBianca murders. Diane Elizabeth Lake, a.k.a. Snake, Diane Bluestein, joined Manson at age 13, became a witness for the prosecution. Robert Lane, a.k.a. Soup Spoon, arrested in Barker Ranch Raid. Little Patty, alias used by family member Madeline Joan Cottage, 
Charles Allen Lovett, family member involved in the Hawthorne shootout. Kitty Lutzinger, Robert Bobby Beausoleil's girlfriend, fled the family, then returned to it. Brenda McCann, alias used by family member Nancy Laura Pittman. Mary Osh, alias used by family member Mary Bruner. Manon Minette, alias used by family member Catherine Cher. Michael Monfort, state prison escapee, associated with the Manson family, involved in the murders of both James and Lauren Willett. Charles Montgomery, alias used by family member Charles Tex Watson. Dean Morehouse, father of family member Ruth Ann Morehouse, sometime Manson follower. Ruth Ann Morehouse, a.k.a. Weish, Rachel Susan Morse, involved in the attempted murder of prosecution witness Barbara Hoyt. Weish, alias used by family member Ruth Ann Morehouse. Nancy Laura Pittman, a.k.a. Brenda McCann, Brindle, Sidette Perel, pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact in the murder of Lauren Willett. Brooks Poston, former family member, supplied the prosecution with important evidence regarding Manson's bizarre motive for the murders. Joel Pugh, husband of family member Sandra Good. Though officially listed as a suicide, he is among the possible Manson family murder victims. Dennis Rice, involved in the attempted murder of prosecution witness Barbara Hoyt also involved in the Hawthorne shootout. Mark Ross, associated with the family. Zero's death occurred in his apartment while he was away. Sadie, alias used by family member Susan Atkins. Leslie Sangston, alias used by family member Leslie Van Houten. Stephanie Schramm, fled Barker Ranch with Kitty Lutzinger, testified for the prosecution that Manson was not with her on the nights of the Tate and LaBianca murders. Suzanne Scott, a.k.a. Stephanie Rowe, family member. Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, Manon Minette, participated in the cleanup following the Shea murder, involved in the Hawthorne shootout. Sami Valley Sherry, alias used by family member Sherry Ann Cooper. Collie Sinclair, a.k.a. Beth Tracy, family member arrested in Barker Raid. Claudia Lee Smith, a.k.a. Sherry Andrews, family member arrested in Barker Raid. Snake, alias used by family member Diane Lake. Alan Leroy Springer, member Straight Satan's motorcycle gang. Manson admitted the Tate murders to him, but his statement could not be used as evidence. Squeaky, alias used by family member Lynette Fromm. T.J. the Terrible, alias used by sometime family member Thomas Walleman. Hugh Rocky Todd, a.k.a. Randy Morglay, family member arrested in Barker Raid. Harold True, lived at 3267 Waverly Drive, the house next to the LaBianca residence. Manson and other family members visited him there four or five times. Clem Tufts, alias used by family member Steve Grogan. William Joseph Bill Vance, alias of ex-convict David Lee Hammock, associated with the Manson family. Leslie Sue Van Houten, a.k.a. Lulu, Leslie Marie Sangston, Luella Alexandria, Leslie Owens, involved in the LaBianca murders. Thomas Walleman, a.k.a. T.J. the Terrible, sometime family member, was present when Manson shot Bernard Crow. Mark Waltz, hung out at Spawn Ranch. His brother accused Manson of his murder.
Paul Allen Watkins, Manson's second-in-command and his chief procurer of young girls, provided Bugliosi with the missing link in Manson's bizarre motive for the murders. Charles Denton Watson, a.k.a. Tex, Charles Montgomery, Texas Charlie, involved in the Tate and LaBianca murders. Joan Wildebush, a.k.a. Juanita, was with Manson Advance Group at Barker Ranch, left family and eloped with Bob Berry, Paul Crockett's partner. Lauren Willett, associated with the family, murdered on November 10th or 11th, 1972, a few days after the body of her husband was discovered. Several Manson family members were linked to her death. James Willett, murdered sometime prior to November 8th, 1972. Three associates of the Manson family were charged with the slaying. Zero, alias used by family member John Philip Hout. Part 1. The Murders How does it feel to be one of the beautiful people? The Beatles, Baby, You're a Rich Man, Magical Mystery Tour Album. Saturday, August 9th, 1969. It was so quiet, one of the killers would later say, you could almost hear the sound of ice rattling in cocktail shakers in the homes way down the canyon. The canyons above Hollywood and Beverly Hills play tricks with sounds. A noise clearly audible a mile away may be indistinguishable at a few hundred feet. It was hot that night, but not as hot as the night before, when the temperature hadn't dropped below 92 degrees. The three-day heat wave had begun to break a couple of hours before, about 10 p.m. on Friday, to the psychological as well as the physical relief of those Angelinos, who recalled that on such a night just four years ago, Watts had exploded in violence. Though the coastal fog was now rolling in from the Pacific Ocean, Los Angeles itself remained hot and muggy, sweltering in its own emissions. But here, high above most of the city, and usually even above the smog, it was at least 10 degrees cooler. Still, it remained warm enough so that many residents of the area slept with their windows open, in hopes of catching a vagrant breeze. All things considered, it's surprising that more people didn't hear something. But then it was late just after midnight, and 10,050 Shallow Drive was secluded. Being secluded, it was also vulnerable. Shallow Drive is a narrow street that abruptly winds upward from Benedict Canyon Road. One of its cul-de-sacs, easily missed, though directly opposite Bella Drive, comes to a dead end at the high gate of 10,050. Looking through the gate, you could see neither the main residence nor the guest house some distance beyond it, but you could see, toward the end of the paved parking area, a corner of the garage, and a little farther on a split-rail fence, which, though it was only August, was strung with Christmas tree lights. The lights, which could be seen most of the way from the Sunset Strip, had been put up by actress Candace Bergen when she was living with the previous tenant of 10,050 Shallow Drive, TV and record producer Terry Melcher. When Melcher, the son of Doris Day, moved to his mother's beach house in Malibu, the new tenants left the lights up. They were on this night, as they were every night, adding a year-round holiday touch to Benedict Canyon. From the front door of the main house to the gate was over a hundred feet. From the gate to the nearest neighbor on Shallow, 10,070, was almost a hundred yards. At 10,070 Shallow, Mr. and Mrs. Seymour Cott had already gone to bed, their dinner guests having left about midnight, 
when Mrs. Cott heard, in close sequence, what sounded like three or four gunshots. They seemed to have come from the direction of the gate of 10,050. She did not check the time, but later guessed it to be between 12.30 and 1 a.m. Hearing nothing further, Mrs. Cott went to sleep. About three-quarters of a mile directly south and downhill from 10,050 Shallow Drive, Tim Ireland was one of five counselors supervising an overnight campout for some 35 children at the Westlake School for Girls. The other counselors had gone to sleep, but Ireland had volunteered to stay up through the night. At approximately 12.40 a.m., he heard, from what seemed a long distance away, to the north or northeast, a solitary male voice. The man was screaming, Oh God, no! Please don't! Oh God, no! Don't! 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 The scream lasted 10 to 15 seconds, then stopped, the abrupt silence almost as chilling as the cry itself. Ireland quickly checked the camp, but all the children were asleep. He awoke his supervisor, Rich Sparks, who had bedded down inside the school, and, telling him what he had heard, got his permission to drive around the area to see if anyone needed help. Ireland took a circuitous route from North Faring Road, where the school was located, south on Benedict Canyon Road to Sunset Boulevard, west to Beverly Glen, and northward back to the school. He observed nothing unusual, though he did hear a number of dogs barking. There were other sounds in the hours before dawn that Saturday. Emmett Steele, 9951 Beverly Grove Drive, was awakened by the barking of his two hunting dogs. The pair usually ignored ordinary sounds, but went wild when they heard gunshots. Steele went out to look around, but finding nothing out of place, returned to bed. He estimated the time as between 2 and 3 a.m. Robert Bullington, an employee of the Bel Air Patrol, a private security force used by many of the homeowners in the affluent area, was parked in front of 2175 Summit Ridge Drive with his window down when he heard what sounded like three shots spaced a few seconds apart. Bullington called in. Eric Carlson, who was working the desk at patrol headquarters, logged the call at 4.11 a.m. Carlson in turn called the West Los Angeles Division of the Los Angeles Police Department, LAPD, and passed on the report. The officer who took the call remarked, I hope we don't have a murder. We just had a woman screaming call in that area. Los Angeles Times delivery boy Steve Shannon heard nothing unusual when he pedaled his bike up Shallow Drive between 4.30 and 4.45 a.m. But as he put the paper in the mailbox of 10,050, he did notice what looked like a telephone wire hanging over the gate. He also observed, through the gate and some distance away, that the yellow bug light on the side of the garage was still on. Seymour Cott also noticed the light and the fallen wire when he went out to get his paper about 7.30 a.m. About 8 a.m., Winifred Chapman got off the bus at the intersection of Santa Monica and Canyon Drive. A light-skinned black in her mid-fifties, Mrs. Chapman was the housekeeper at 10,050 Shallow, and she was upset because thanks to L.A.'s terrible bus service, she was going to be late to work. Luck seemed with her, however. Just as she was about to look for a taxi, she saw a man she had once worked with, and he gave her a ride almost to the gate. She noticed the wire immediately, and it worried her. In front and to the left of the gate, not hidden, but not conspicuous either, was a metal pole on the top of which was the gate control mechanism. 
When the button was pushed, the gate swung open. There was a similar mechanism inside the grounds, both being positioned so a driver could reach the button without having to get out of the car. Because of the wire, Mrs. Chapman thought the electricity might be off, but when she pushed the button, the gate swung open. Taking the Times out of the mailbox, she walked hurriedly onto the property, noticing an unfamiliar automobile in the driveway, a white Rambler, parked at an odd angle. But she passed it, and several other cars nearer the garage without much thought. Overnight guests weren't that uncommon. Someone had left the outside light on all night, and she went to the switch at the corner of the garage and turned it off. At the end of the paved parking area was a flagstone walkway that made a half circle to the front door of the main house. She turned right before coming to the walk, however, going to the service porch entrance at the back of the residence. The key was secreted on a rafter above the door. Taking it down, she unlocked the door and went inside, walking directly to the kitchen, where she picked up the extension phone. It was dead. Thinking that she should alert someone that the line was down, she proceeded through the dining room toward the living room. Then she stopped suddenly, her progress impeded by two large blue steamer trunks, which hadn't been there when she had left the previous afternoon, and by what she saw. There appeared to be blood on the trunks, on the floor next to them, and on two towels in the entryway. She couldn't see the entire living room. A long couch cut off the area in front of the fireplace. But everywhere she could see, she saw the red splashes. The front door was ajar. Looking out, she saw several pools of blood on the flagstone porch. And farther on, on the lawn, she saw a body. Screaming, she turned and ran back through the house, leaving the same way she had come in, but on running down the driveway, changing her course so as to reach the gate control button. In so doing, she passed on the opposite side of the white rambler, seeing for the first time that there was a body inside the car, too. Once outside the gate, she ran down the hill to the first house, 10,070, ringing the bell and pounding on the door. When the cots didn't answer, she ran to the next house, 10,090, banging on that door and screaming, Murder! Death! Bodies! Blood! Fifteen-year-old Jim Ason was outside, warming up the family car. It was Saturday, and a member of Law Enforcement Unit 800 of the Boy Scouts of America, he was waiting for his father, Ray Ason, to drive him to the West Los Angeles Division of LAPD, where he was scheduled to work on the desk. By the time he got to the porch, his parents had opened the door. While they were trying to calm the hysterical Mrs. Chapman, Jim dialed the police emergency number. Trained by the scouts to be exact, he noted the time, 8.33. While waiting for the police, the father and son walked as far as the gate. The white rambler was some thirty feet inside the property, too far away to make out anything inside it. But they did see that not one, but several wires were down. They appeared to have been cut. Returning home, Jim called the police a second time, and some minutes later, a third. There is some confusion as to exactly what happened to the calls. The official police report only states... At 0914 hours, West Los Angeles units 8L5 and 8L62 were given a radio call. Code 2, possible homicide, 10,050 Shallow Drive. The units were one-man patrol cars. Officer Jerry Joe DeRosa, driving 8L5, arrived first, light flashing and siren blaring. Note. 
The confusion extends to the arrival times of the unit. Officer DeRosa would later testify he arrived about 9.05 a.m., which was before he supposedly received the code 2. Officer Wisenhunt, who came next, set the time of his arrival at between 9.15 and 9.25, while Officer Burbridge, who arrived after both men, testified he was there at 8.40. End of note. DeRosa began interviewing Mrs. Chapman, but had a difficult time of it. Not only was she still hysterical, she was vague as to what she had seen. Blood, bodies every place. And it was hard to get the names and relationships straight. Polanski, Altabelli, Frykowski. Ray Asen, who knew the residents of 10,050 Shallow, stepped in. The house was owned by Rudy Altabelli. He was in Europe, but had hired a caretaker, a young man named William Gerritsen, to look after the place. Gerritsen lived in the guest house to the back of the property. Altabelli had rented the main residence to Roman Polanski, the movie director, and his wife. The Polanskis had gone to Europe, however, in March, and while they were away, two of their friends, Abigail Folger and Wojciech Frykowski, had moved in. Mrs. Polanski had returned less than a month ago, and Frykowski and Folger were staying on with her until her husband returned. Mrs. Polanski was a movie actress. Her name was Sharon Tate. Questioned by DeRosa, Mrs. Chapman was unable to say which, if any, of these people were the two bodies she had seen. To the names, she added still another, that of Jay Sebring, a noted men's hairstylist and a friend of Mrs. Polanski's. She mentioned him because she remembered seeing his black Porsche with the other automobiles parked next to the garage. Getting a rifle from his squad car, DeRosa had Mrs. Chapman show him how to open the gate. Walking cautiously up the driveway to the Rambler, he looked in the open window. There was a body inside, in the driver's seat, but slumped toward the passenger side. Male, Caucasian, reddish hair, plaid shirt, blue denim pants, both shirt and pants drenched with blood. He appeared to be young, probably in his teens. About this time, Unit 8L62, driven by Officer William T. Wisenhunt, pulled up outside the gate. DeRosa walked back and told him he had a possible homicide. DeRosa also showed him how to open the gate, and the two officers proceeded up the driveway, DeRosa still carrying his rifle, Wisenhunt a shotgun. As Wisenhunt passed the Rambler, he looked in, noting that the window on the driver's side was down, and both lights and ignition were off. The pair then checked out the other automobiles, and finding them empty, searched both the garage and the room above it. Still no one. A third officer, Robert Burbridge, caught up with them. As the three men reached the end of the parking area, they saw not one, but two inert forms on the lawn. From a distance, they looked like mannequins that had been dipped in red paint, then tossed haphazardly on the grass. They seemed grotesquely out of place on the well-cared-for lawn, with its landscaped shrubbery, flowers, and trees. To the right was the residence itself, long, rambling, looking more comfortable than ostentatious, the carriage light outside the main door shining brightly. Farther on, past the south end of the house, they could see a corner of the swimming pool, shimmering blue-green in the morning light. Off to the side was a rustic wishing well. To the left was a split-rail fence, intertwined with Christmas tree lights, still on. And beyond the fence was a sweeping panoramic view that stretched all the way from downtown Los Angeles to the beach. 
Out there, life was still going on. Here, it had stopped. The first body was 18 to 20 feet past the front door of the residence. The closer they came, the worse it looked. Male, Caucasian, probably in his 30s, about 5 feet 10, wearing short boots, multicolored bell-bottoms, purple shirt, casual vest. He was lying on his side, his head resting on his right arm, his left hand clutching the grass. His head and face were horribly battered, his torso and limbs punctured by literally dozens of wounds. It seemed inconceivable that so much savagery could be inflicted on one human being. The second body was about 25 feet beyond the first. Female, Caucasian, long dark hair, probably in her late twenties. She was lying supine, her arms thrown out. Barefoot, she was wearing a full-length nightgown, which, before the many stab wounds, had probably been white. The stillness now got to the officers. Everything was quiet, too quiet. The serenity itself became menacing. Those windows along the front of the house. Behind any, a killer could be waiting, watching. Leaving DeRosa on the lawn, Wisenhunt and Burbridge went back toward the north end of the residence, looking for another way to get in. They'd be open targets if they entered the front door. They noticed that a screen had been removed from one of the front windows and was leaning up against the side of the building. Wisenhunt also observed a horizontal slit along the bottom of the screen. Suspecting this might have been where the killer or killers entered, they looked for another means of entry. They found a window open on the side. Looking in, they saw what appeared to be a newly painted room, devoid of furniture. They climbed in. DeRosa waited until he saw them inside the house, then approached the front door. There was a patch of blood on the walk, between the hedges, several more on the right-hand corner of the porch, with still others just outside and to the left of the door and on the door jamb itself. He didn't see, or later didn't recall, any footprints, though there were a number. The door being open, inward, DeRosa was on the porch before he noticed that something had been scrawled on its lower half. Printed in what appeared to be blood were three letters, P-I-G. Wisenhunt and Burbridge had finished checking out the kitchen and dining room when DeRosa entered the hallway. Turning left into the living room, he found his way partly blocked by the two blue steamer trunks. It appeared that they had been standing on end, then knocked over as one was leaning against the other. DeRosa also observed, next to the trunks and on the floor, a pair of horn-rimmed glasses. Burbridge, who followed him into the room, noticed something else. On the carpet, to the left of the entrance, were two small pieces of wood. They looked like pieces of a broken gun grip. They had arrived expecting two bodies, but had found three. They were now looking not for more death, but some explanation. A suspect. Clues. The room was light and airy. Desk, chair, piano. Then something odd. In the center of the room, facing the fireplace, was a long couch. Draped over the back was a huge American flag. Not until they were almost to the couch did they see what was on the other side. She was young, blonde, very pregnant. She lay on her left side, directly in front of the couch, her legs tucked up toward her stomach in a fetal position. 
She wore a flowered bra and matching bikini panties, but the pattern was almost indistinguishable because of the blood, which looked as if it had been smeared over her entire body. A white nylon rope was looped around her neck twice, one end extending over a rafter in the ceiling, the other leading across the floor to still another body, that of a man, which was about four feet away. The rope was also looped twice around the man's neck, the loose end going under his body, then extending several feet beyond. A bloody towel covered his face, hiding his features. He was short, about five feet six, and was lying on his right side, his hands bunched up near his head as if still warding off blows. His clothing, blue shirt, white pants with black vertical stripes, wide modish belt, black boots, was blood-drenched. None of the officers thought about checking either body for pulse. As with the body in the car and the pair on the lawn, it was so obviously unnecessary. Although DeRosa, Wisenhunt, and Burbridge were patrolmen, not homicide detectives, each, at some time in the course of his duties, had seen death. But nothing like this. 10,050 Shallow Drive was a human slaughterhouse. Shaken, the officers fanned out to search the rest of the house. There was a loft above the living room. DeRosa climbed up the wooden ladder and nervously peeked over the top, but saw no one. A hallway connected the living room with the south end of the residence. There was blood in the hall in two places. To the left, just past one of the spots, was a bedroom, the door of which was open. The blankets and pillows were rumpled and clothing strewn about, as if someone, possibly the nightgown-clad woman on the lawn, had already undressed and gone to bed before the killer or killers appeared. Sitting atop the headboard of the bed, his legs hanging down, was a toy rabbit, ears cocked as if quizzically surveying the scene. There was no blood in this room, nor any evidence of a struggle. Across the hall was the master bedroom. Its door was also open, as were the louvered doors at the far end of the room, beyond which could be seen the swimming pool. This bed was larger and neater, the white spread turned back to reveal a gaily flowered top sheet and a white bottom sheet with a gold geometric pattern. In the center of the bed, rather than across the top, were two pillows, dividing the side that had been slept on from the side that hadn't. Across the room, facing the bed, was a TV set, on each side of which was a handsome armoire. On top of one was a white bassinet. Cautiously, adjoining doors were opened. Dressing room, closet, bath, closet. Again, no signs of a struggle. The telephone on the nightstand next to the bed was on the hook. Nothing overturned or upset. However, there was blood on the inside left side of the louvered French door, suggesting that someone, again possibly the woman on the lawn, had run out this way, attempting to escape. Stepping outside, the officers were momentarily blinded by the glare from the pool. Asen had mentioned a guest house behind the main residence. They spotted it now, or rather the corner of it, some sixty feet to the southeast through the shrubbery. Approaching it quietly, they heard the first sounds they had heard since coming onto the premises. The barking of a dog and a male voice saying, Shh, be quiet. Wisenhunt went to the right, around the back of the house. DeRosa turned left, proceeding around the front, Burbridge following his backup. 
Stepping onto the screened-in porch, DeRosa could see, in the living room, on a couch facing the front door, a youth of about eighteen. He was wearing pants, but no shirt, and though he did not appear to be armed, this did not mean, DeRosa would later explain, that he didn't have a weapon nearby. Yelling, freeze! DeRosa kicked in the front door. Startled, the boy looked up to see one, then, moments later, three guns pointing directly at him. Christopher, Altabelli's large Weimaraner, charged Wisenhunt, chomping the end of his shotgun. Wisenhunt slammed the porch door on his head, then held him trapped there until the youth called him off. As to what then happened, there are contrary versions. The youth, who identified himself as William Gerritsen, the caretaker, would later state that the officers knocked him down, handcuffed him, yanked him to his feet, dragged him outside onto the lawn, then knocked him down again. DeRosa would later be asked, re Garretson, Question. Did he fall or stumble to the floor at any time? Answer. He may have. I don't recall whether he did or not. Question. Did you direct him to lay on the ground outside? Answer. I directed him, yes, to lay on the ground, yes. Question. Did you help him to the ground? Answer. No, he went down on his own. Garretson kept asking, What's the matter? What's the matter? One of the officers replied, We'll show you. And pulling him to his feet, DeRosa and Burbridge escorted him back along the path toward the main house. Wisenhunt remained behind, looking for weapons and blood-stained clothing. Though he found neither, he did notice many small details of the scene. One at the time seemed so insignificant that he forgot it, until later questioning brought it back to mind. There was a stereo next to the couch. It had been off when they entered the room. Looking at the controls, Wisenhunt noticed that the volume setting was between four and five. Garretson, meantime, had been led past the two bodies on the lawn. It was indicative of the condition of the first, the young woman, that he mistakenly identified her as Mrs. Chapman, the Negro maid. As for the man, he identified him as the young Polanski. If, as Chapman and Asen had said, Polanski was in Europe, this made no sense. What the officers couldn't know was that Garretson believed Wojciech Frykowski to be Roman Polanski's younger brother. Garretson failed completely when it came to identifying the young man in the Rambler. Note. Why he failed to identify the youth, whom he did know, is unknown. A good guess would be that Garretson was in shock. Also, adding to his confusion, it was about this time that, in looking toward the gate, he saw Winifred Chapman, whom he presumed dead, alive and talking to a police officer. End of note. At some point, no one recalls exactly when, Garretson was informed of his rights and told that he was under arrest for murder. Asked about his activities the previous night, he said that although he had remained up all night, writing letters and listening to records, he had neither heard nor seen anything. His highly unlikely alibi, his vague, unrealistic replies, and his confused identification of the bodies led the arresting officers to conclude that the suspect was lying. Five murders, four of them probably occurring less than a hundred feet away, and he had heard nothing? Escorting Garretson down the driveway, DeRosa located the gate control mechanism on the pole inside the gate. He noticed that there was blood on the button. The logical inference was that someone, quite possibly the killer, had pressed the button to get out, in so doing very likely leaving a fingerprint. 
Officer DeRosa, who was charged with securing and protecting the scene until investigating officers arrived, now pressed the button himself, successfully opening the gate, but also creating a superimposure that obliterated any print that may have been there. Later, DeRosa would be questioned regarding this. Question. Was there some reason why you placed your finger on the bloody button that operated the gate? Answer. So that I could go through the gate. Question. And that was intentionally done? Answer. I had to get out of there. It was 9.40. DeRosa called in, reporting five deaths and a suspect in custody. While Burbridge remained behind at the residence, awaiting the arrival of the investigating officers, DeRosa and Wisenhunt drove Garretson to the West Los Angeles Police Station for questioning. Another officer took Mrs. Chapman there also, but she was so hysterical she had to be driven to the UCLA Medical Center and given sedation. In response to DeRosa's call, four West Los Angeles detectives were dispatched to the scene. Lieutenant R.C. Madlock, Lieutenant J.J. Gregoire, Sergeant F. Gravanti, and Sergeant T.L. Rogers would all arrive within the next hour. By the time the last pulled up, the first reporters were already outside the gate. Monitoring the police radio bands, they had picked up the report of five deaths. It was hot and dry in Los Angeles, and fire was a constant concern, especially in the hills, where within minutes, lives and property could vanish in an inferno. Someone apparently presumed the five people had been killed in a fire. J. Sebring's name must have been mentioned in one of the police calls, because a reporter phoned his residence and asked his butler, Amos Russell, if he knew anything about the deaths by fire. Russell called John Madden, president of Sebring International, and told him about the call. Madden was concerned. Neither he nor Sebring's secretary had heard from the hairstylist since late the previous afternoon. Madden placed a call to Sharon Tate's mother in San Francisco. Sharon's father, a colonel in Army intelligence, was stationed at nearby Fort Baker, and Mrs. Tate was visiting him. No, she hadn't heard from Sharon. Or Jay, who was due in San Francisco sometime that same day. Prior to her marriage to Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate had lived with Jay Sebring. Though thrown over for the Polish film director, Sebring had remained friends with Sharon's parents, as well as Sharon and Roman, and whenever he was in San Francisco, he usually called Colonel Tate. When Madden hung up, Mrs. Tate called Sharon's number. The phone rang and rang, but there was no answer. It was quiet inside the house. Though anyone who called got a ringing signal, the phones were still out. Officer Joe Granado, a forensic chemist with SID, the Scientific Investigation Division of LAPD, was already at work, having arrived about 10 a.m. It was Granado's job to take samples from wherever there appeared to be blood. Usually on a murder case, Granado would be done in an hour or two. Not today. Not at 10,050 Shallow Drive. Mrs. Tate called Sandy Tennant, a close friend of Sharon's, and the wife of William Tennant, Roman Polanski's business manager. No, neither she nor Bill had heard from Sharon since late the previous afternoon. At that time, Sharon had said that she, Gibby, Abigail Folger, and Wojciech, Frykowski, were staying in that night. Jay had said he'd be dropping over later, and she invited Sandy to join them. No party was planned, just a quiet evening at home. Sandy, just over the chicken pox, had declined. Like Mrs. Tate, she had tried to call Sharon that morning, but had received no answer.
Sandy assured Mrs. Tate that there was probably no connection between the report of the fire and 10,050 Shallow Drive. However, just as soon as Mrs. Tate hung up, Sandy put in a call to her husband's tennis club and had him paged. It was important, she said. Sometime between 10 and 11 a.m., Raymond Kilgrow, a telephone company representative, climbed the pole outside the gate to 10,050 Shallow Drive and found that four phone wires had been cut. The cuts were close to the attachment on the pole, indicating that the person responsible had probably climbed the pole too. Kilgrow repaired two of the wires, leaving the others for the detectives to examine. Police cars were arriving every few minutes now, and as more officers visited the scene, that scene changed. The horn-rimmed glasses, first observed by DeRosa, Wisenhunt, and Burbridge near the two trunks, had somehow moved six feet away to the top of the desk. Two pieces of gun grip, first seen near the entryway, were now under a chair in the living room. As stated in the official LAPD report, they were apparently kicked under the chair by one of the original officers on the scene. However, no one is copping out. Note. Since Granado, who arrived after DeRosa, Wisenhunt, and Burbridge also saw them near the entryway, it would appear that the original officers weren't responsible. End of note. A third piece of gun grip, smaller than the others, was later found on the front porch. And one or more officers tracked blood from inside the residence onto the front porch and walk, adding several more bloody footprints to those already there. In an attempt to identify and eliminate the later additions, it would be necessary to interview all the personnel who had visited the scene, asking each if he had been wearing boots, shoes with smooth or rippled soles, and so on. Granado was still taking blood samples. Later, in the police lab, he would give them the Octoloni test to determine if the blood was animal or human. If human, other tests would be applied to determine the blood type, A, B, AB, or O, and the subtype. There are some 30 blood subtypes. However, if the blood is already dry when the sample is taken, it is only possible to determine whether it is one of three, M, N, or MN. It had been a warm night, and it was already turning into another hot day. By the time Granado got to work, most of the blood, except for the pools near the bodies inside, had already dried. Within the next several days, Granado would obtain from the coroner's office a blood sample from each of the victims, and would attempt to match these with the samples he'd already collected. In an ordinary murder case, the presence of two blood types at the crime scene might indicate that the killer, as well as the victim, had been wounded, information which could be an important clue to the killer's identity. But this was no ordinary murder. Instead of one body, there were five. There was so much blood, in fact, that Granado overlooked some spots. On the right side of the front porch, as approached from the walk, there were several large pools of blood. Granado took a sample from only one spot, presuming, he later said, all were the same. Just to the right of the porch, the shrubbery appeared broken, as if someone had fallen into the bushes. Blood splatters there seemed to bear this out. Granado missed these. Nor did he take samples from the pools of blood in the immediate vicinity of the two bodies in the living room, or from the stains near the two bodies on the lawn, presuming, he'd later testify, that they belonged to the nearest victims, and he'd be getting samples from the coroner anyway. Granado took a total of 45 blood samples. 
However, for some reason never explained, he didn't run subtypes on 21 of them. If this is not done a week or two after collection, the components of the blood break down. Later, when an attempt was made to recreate the murders, these omissions would cause many problems. Just before noon, William Tennant arrived, still dressed in tennis clothes, and was escorted through the gate by the police. It was like being led through a nightmare as he was taken first to one body, then another. He didn't recognize the young man in the automobile, but he identified the man on the lawn as Wojciech Frykowski, the woman as Abigail Folger, and the two bodies in the living room as Sharon Tate Polanski and, tentatively, Jay Sebring. When the police lifted the bloody towel, the man's face was so badly contused, Tennant couldn't be sure. Then he went outside and was sick. When the police photographer finished his work, another officer got sheets from the linen closet and covered the bodies. Beyond the gate, the reporters and photographers now numbered in the dozens, with more arriving every few minutes. Police and press cars so hopelessly jammed Shallow Drive that several officers were detailed to try and untangle them. As Tennant pushed through the crowd, clutching his stomach and sobbing, the reporters hurled questions at him. Is Sharon dead? Were they murdered? Has anyone informed Roman Polanski? He ignored them, but they read the answers on his face. Not everyone who visited the scene was as reluctant to talk. It's like a battlefield up there, police sergeant Stanley Clorman told reporters, his features grim with the shock of what he had seen. Another officer, unidentified, said, it looked ritualistic. This single remark providing the basis for an incredible amount of bizarre speculation. Like the shock waves from an earthquake, news of the murders spread. Five slain in Bel Air, read the headline on the first AP wire story. Though sent out before the identity of the victims had become known, it correctly reported the location of the bodies, that the telephone lines had been cut, and the arrest of an unnamed suspect. There were errors, one to be much repeated, that one victim had a hood over his head. LAPD notified the Tates, John Madden, who in turn notified Sebring's parents, and Peter Folger, Abigail's father. Abigail's socially prominent parents were divorced. Her father, chairman of the board of the A.J. Folger Coffee Company, lived in Woodside. Her mother, Ines Mejia Folger, in San Francisco. However, Mrs. Folger was not at home, but in Connecticut, visiting friends following a Mediterranean cruise, and Mr. Folger reached her there. She couldn't believe it. She had talked to Abigail at about ten the previous night. Both mother and daughter had planned to fly to San Francisco today for a reunion, Abigail having made a reservation on the 10 a.m. United flight. On reaching home, William Tennant made what was, for him, the most difficult call. He was not only Polanski's business manager, but a close friend. Tennant checked his watch, automatically adding nine hours to get London time. Though it would be late in the evening, he guessed that Polanski might still be working, trying to tie up his various film projects before returning home the following Tuesday, and he tried the number of his townhouse. He guessed right. Polanski and several associates were going over a scene in the script of The Day of the Dolphin when the telephone rang. Polanski would remember the conversation as follows. Roman, there's been a disaster in a house. Which house? Your house.
Then, in a rush, Sharon is dead, and Wojciech, and Gibby, and Jay. No, 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 no! Surely there was a mistake. Both men now crying, Tennant reiterated that it was true. He had gone to the house himself. How? Polanski asked. He was thinking, he later said, not of fire, but a landslide, a not uncommon thing in the Los Angeles hills, especially after heavy rains. Sometimes whole houses were buried, which meant that perhaps they could still be alive. Only then did Tennant tell him that they had been murdered. Wojciech Frykowski, LAPD learned, had a son in Poland, but no relatives in the United States. The youth in the Rambler remained unidentified, but was no longer nameless. He had been designated John Doe 85. The news spread quickly, and with it, the rumors. Rudy Altabelli, owner of the Shello property and business manager for a number of show business personalities, was in Rome. One of his clients, a young actress, called and told him that Sharon and four others had been murdered in his house, and that Gerritsen, the caretaker he had hired, had confessed. Gerritsen hadn't, but Altabelli would not learn this until after he returned to the United States. The specialists had begun arriving about noon. Officers Jerome A. Bowen and D.L. Gert, Leighton Prince Section, Scientific Investigation Division, LAPD, dusted the main residence and the guest house for Prince. After dusting a print with powder, developing the print, a clear adhesive tape was placed over it. The tape, with the print showing, would then be lifted and placed on a card with a contrasting background. Location, date, time, officer's initials were noted on the back. One such lift card, prepared by Bowen, read 8969, 10,050 shallow, 1,400, J.A.B., inside door frame of left French door, from master bedroom to pool area, handle side. Another lift, taken about the same time, was from the outside front door, handle side, above handle. It took six hours to cover both residences. Later that afternoon, the pair were joined by Officer D.E. Dorman and Wendell Clements, the latter a civilian fingerprint expert who concentrated on the four vehicles. Contrary to popular opinion, a readable print is more rare than common. Many surfaces, such as clothing and fabrics, do not lend themselves to impressions. Even when the surface is such that it will take a print, one usually touches it with only a portion of the finger, leaving a fragmentary ridge, which is useless for comparison. If the finger is moved, the result is an unreadable smudge. And as Officer DeRosa demonstrated with the gate button, one print placed atop another creates a superimposure, also useless for identification purposes. Thus, at any crime scene, the number of clear, readable prints with enough points for comparison is usually surprisingly small. Not counting those prints later eliminated as belonging to LAPD personnel at the scene, a total of 50 lifts were taken from the residence, guest house, and vehicles at 10,050 Shallow Drive. Of these, seven were eliminated as belonging to William Garretson. All were from the guest house. None of Garretson's prints were found in the main house or on the vehicles. An additional 15 were eliminated as belonging to the victims, and three were not clear enough for comparison. This left a total of 25 unmatched latent prints, any of which might, or might not, belong to the killer or killers.
It was 1.30 p.m. before the first homicide detectives arrived. On verifying that the deaths were not accidental or self-inflicted, Lieutenant Madlock had requested that the investigation be reassigned to the Robbery Homicide Division. Lieutenant Robert J. Helder, supervisor of investigations, was placed in charge. He, in turn, assigned Sergeants Michael J. McGann and Jess Buckles to the case. McGann's regular partner, Sergeant Robert Calkins, was on vacation and would replace Buckles when he returned. Three additional officers, Sergeants E. Henderson, Dudley Varney, and Danny Galindo, were to assist them. On being notified of the homicides, Los Angeles County Coroner Thomas Noguchi asked the police not to touch the bodies until a representative of his office had examined them. Deputy Coroner John Finken arrived about 1.45, later to be joined by Noguchi himself. Finken made the official determination of death, took liver and environmental temperatures. By 2 p.m. it was 94 degrees on the lawn, 83 degrees inside the house, and severed the rope connecting Tate and Sebring, portions of which were given to the detectives so that they could try to determine where it had been manufactured and sold. It was white, three-strand nylon, its total length 43 feet 8 inches. Granado took blood samples from the rope, but didn't take subtypes, again presuming. Finken also removed the personal property from the bodies of the victims. Sharon Tate Polanski, yellow metal wedding band, earrings. Jay Sebring, Cartier wristwatch, later determined to be worth in excess of $1,500. John Doe 85, Lucerne wristwatch, wallet with various papers but no ID. Abigail Folger and Wojciech Frykowski, no property on persons. After plastic bags had been placed over the hands of the victims to preserve any hair or skin that might have become lodged under the nails during a struggle, Finken assisted in covering and placing the bodies on stretcher carts to be wheeled to ambulances and taken to the coroner's office, Hall of Justice, downtown Los Angeles. Besieged by reporters at the gate, Dr. Noguchi announced he would have no comment until making public the autopsy results at noon the following day. Both Noguchi and Finken, however, privately had already given the detectives their initial findings. There was no evidence of sexual molestation or mutilation. Three of the victims, the John Doe, Sebring, and Frykowski, had been shot. Aside from a defensive slash wound on his left hand, which also severed the band of his wristwatch, John Doe had not been stabbed. But the other four had, many, many times. In addition, Sebring had been hit in the face at least once, and Frykowski had been struck over the head repeatedly with a blunt object. Though exact findings would have to await the autopsies, the coroners concluded from the size of the bullet holes that the gun used had probably been 22 caliber. The police had already suspected this. In searching the Rambler, Sergeant Varney had found four bullet fragments between the upholstery and the exterior metal of the door on the passenger side. Also found on the cushion of the rear seat was part of a slug. Though all were too small for comparison purposes, they appeared to be 22 caliber. As for the stab wounds, someone suggested that the wound pattern was not dissimilar to that made by a bayonet. In their official report, the detectives carried this a step further, concluding the knife that inflicted the stab wounds was probably a bayonet. This not only eliminated a number of other possibilities, it also presumed that only one knife had been used. The depth of the wounds, many in excess of five inches, their width, between one and one and one-half inches, and their thickness, one-eighth to one-fourth inch, ruled out either a kitchen or a regular pocket knife. 
Coincidentally, the only two knives found in the house were a kitchen knife and a pocket knife. A steak knife had been found in the kitchen sink. Granado got a positive benzidine reaction, indicating blood, but a negative octolone, indicating it was animal, not human. Bowen dusted it for prints, but got only fragmentary ridges. Mrs. Chapman later identified the knife as one of a set of steak knives that belonged to the Polanskys, and she located all the others in a drawer. But even before this, the police had eliminated it because of its dimensions, in particular its thinness. The stabbings were so savage that such a blade would have broken. Granado found the second knife in the living room, less than three feet from Sharon Tate's body. It was wedged behind the cushion in one of the chairs, with the blade sticking up. A buck-brand clasp-type pocket knife, its blade was three-fourths inch in diameter, three and thirteen-sixteenths inches in length, making it too small to have caused most of the wounds. Noticing a spot on the side of the blade, Granado tested it for blood. Negative. Gert dusted it for prints an unreadable smudge. Mrs. Chapman could not recall ever having seen this particular knife. This, plus the odd place where it was found, indicated that it might have been left by the killer, killers. In literature, a murder scene is often likened to a picture puzzle. If one is patient and keeps trying, eventually all the pieces will fit into place. Veteran policemen know otherwise. A much better analogy would be two picture puzzles, or three, or more, no one of which is in itself complete. Even after a solution emerges, if one does, there will be leftover pieces, evidence that just doesn't fit. And some pieces will always be missing. There was the American flag, its presence adding still another bizarre touch to a scene already horribly macabre. The possibilities it suggested ranged from one end of the political spectrum to the other, until Winifred Chapman told the police that it had been in the residence several weeks. Few pieces of evidence were so easily eliminated. There were the bloody letters on the front door. In recent years, the word pig had taken on a new meaning, one all too familiar to the police. But what did it mean printed here? There was the rope. Mrs. Chapman flatly stated that she had never seen such a rope anywhere on the premises. Had the killer, killers, brought it? If so, why? What significance was there in the fact that the two victims bound together by the rope, Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring, were former lovers? Or was former the right word? What was Sebring doing there, with Polanski away? It was a question that many of the newspapers would also ask. The horn-rimmed glasses, negative for both prints and blood. Did they belong to a victim, a killer, or someone totally unconnected with the crime? Or, with each question, the possibilities proliferated, had they been left behind as a false clue? The two trunks in the entryway. The maid said they hadn't been there when she left at 4.30 the previous afternoon. Who delivered them, and when? And had this person seen anything? Why would the killer, killers, go to the trouble of slitting and removing a screen when other windows, those in the newly painted room that was to be the nursery for the Polanski's unborn child, were open and screenless. John Doe 85, the youth in the Rambler. Chapman, Gerritsen, and Tennant had failed to identify him. Who was he, and what was he doing at 10,050 Shallow Drive?
Had he witnessed the other murders? Or had he been killed before they took place? If before, wouldn't the others have heard the shots? On the seat next to him was a Sony AM-FM Digimatic clock radio. The time at which it had stopped was 12.15 a.m. Coincidence or significant? As for the time of the murders, the reports of gunshots and other sounds ranged from shortly after midnight to 4.10 a.m. Not all of the evidence was as inconclusive. Some of the pieces fitted. No shell casings were found anywhere on the property, indicating that the gun was probably a revolver, which does not eject its spent shells, as contrasted to an automatic, which does. Placed together, the three pieces of black wood formed the right-hand side of a gun grip. The police therefore knew the gun they were looking for was probably a 22 caliber revolver that was minus a right grip. From the pieces, it might be possible to determine both make and model. Though there was human blood on all three pieces, only one had enough for analysis. It tested O-M-N. Of the five victims, only Sebring had O-M-N, indicating that the butt of the revolver could have been the blunt object used to strike him in the face. The bloody letters on the front door tested O-M. Again, only one of the victims had this type and subtype. The word pig had been printed in Sharon Tate's blood. There were four vehicles in the driveway, but one which should have been there wasn't. Sharon Tate's red Ferrari. It was possible that the killer, killers, had used the sports car to escape, and a want was broadcast for it. Long after the bodies had been removed, the detectives remained on the scene, looking for meaningful patterns. They found several which appeared significant. There were no indications of ransacking or robbery. McGann found Sebring's wallet in his jacket, which was hanging over the back of a chair in the living room. It contained $80. John Doe had $9 in his wallet, Frykowski $2.44 in his wallet and pants pocket, Folger $9.64 in her purse. On the nightstand next to Sharon Tate's bed, in plain view, were a 10, a 5, and three ones. Obviously expensive items, a videotape machine, TV sets, stereo, Sebring's wristwatch, his Porsche, had not been taken. Several days later, the police would bring Winifred Chapman back to 10,050 Shellow to see if she could determine if anything was missing. The only item she couldn't locate was a camera tripod, which had been kept in the hall closet. These five incredibly savage murders were obviously not committed for a camera tripod. In all probability, it had been lent to someone or lost. While this didn't completely eliminate the possibility that the murders had occurred during a residential burglary, the victims surprising the burglar, burglars, while at work, it certainly put it way down the list. Other discoveries provided a much more likely direction. A gram of cocaine was found in Sebring's Porsche, plus 6.3 grams of marijuana, and a two-inch roach, slang for a partially smoked marijuana cigarette. There were 6.9 grams of marijuana in a plastic bag in a cabinet in the living room of the main residence. In the nightstand in the bedroom used by Frykowski and Folger were 30 grams of hashish, plus 10 capsules which, later analyzed, proved to be a relatively new drug known as MDA. There was also marijuana residue in the ashtray on the stand next to Sharon Tate's bed, a marijuana cigarette on the desk near the front door. Note, Apparently overlooked by LAPD, this was discovered by Roman Polanski when he visited the residence on August 17th, end of note, and two more in the guest house. Had a drug party been in progress, one of the participants freaking out and slaying everyone there? 
The police put this at the top of their list of possible reasons for the murders, though well aware this theory had several weaknesses. Chief among them, the presumption that there was a single killer, wielding a gun in one hand, a bayonet in the other, at the same time carrying 43 feet of rope, all of which conveniently he just happened to bring along. Also, there were the wires. If they had been cut before the murders, this indicated premeditation, not a spontaneous flare-up. If cut after, why? Or could the murders have been the result of a drug burn, the killer, killers, arriving to make a delivery or buy, an argument over money, or bad drugs erupting into violence? This was the second, and in many ways the most likely, of the five theories the detectives would list in their first investigative report. The third theory was a variation of the second, the killer, killers, deciding to keep both the money and the drugs. The fourth was the residential burglary theory. The fifth, that these were deaths by hire, the killer, killers, being sent to the house to eliminate one or more of the victims, then, in order to escape identification, finding it necessary to kill all. But would a hired killer choose as one of his weapons something as large, conspicuous, and unwieldy as a bayonet? And would he keep stabbing and stabbing and stabbing in a mad frenzy, as so obviously had been done in this case? The drug theories seem to make the most sense. In the investigation that followed, as the police interviewed acquaintances of the victims, and the victims' habits and lifestyles emerged into clearer focus, the possibility that drugs were in some way linked to the motive became in some minds such a certainty that when given a clue which could have solved the case, they refused even to consider it. The police were not the only ones to think of drugs. On hearing of the deaths, actor Steve McQueen, longtime friend of Jay Sebring, suggested that the hairstylist's home should be rid of narcotics to protect his family and business. Though McQueen did not himself participate in the house cleaning, by the time LAPD got around to searching Sebring's residence, anything embarrassing had been removed. Others developed instant paranoia. No one was sure who the police would question or when. An unidentified film figure told a life reporter, toilets are flushing all over Beverly Hills. The entire Los Angeles sewer system is stoned. Film star, four others, dead in blood orgy. Sharon Tate victim in ritual murders. The headlines dominated the front pages of the afternoon papers, became the big news on radio and TV. The bizarre nature of the crime, the number of victims and their prominence, a beautiful movie star, the heiress to a coffee fortune, her jet-set playboy paramour, an internationally known hairstylist, would combine to make this probably the most publicized murder case in history, excepting only the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Even the staid New York Times, which rarely reports crime on its front page, did so the next day, and many days thereafter. The accounts that day and the next were notable for the unusual amount of detail they contained. So much information had been given out, in fact, that the detectives would have difficulty finding polygraph keys for questioning suspects. In any homicide, it is standard practice to withhold certain information, which presumably only the police and the killer, killers, know. If a suspect confesses or agrees to a polygraph examination, these keys can then be used to determine if he is telling the truth. Owing to the many leaks, the detectives assigned to the Tate case, as the press was already calling the murders, could only come up with five. One, that the knife used was probably a bayonet. Two, that the gun was probably a 22 caliber revolver. Three, the exact dimensions of the rope, 
as well as the way it was looped and tied, and four and five that a pair of horn-rimmed glasses and a buck knife had been found. The amount of information unofficially released so bothered LAPD brass that a tight lid was clamped on further disclosures. This didn't please the reporters. Also, lacking hard news, many turned to conjecture and speculation. In the days that followed, a monumental amount of false information was published. It was widely reported, for example, that Sharon Tate's unborn child had been ripped from her womb, that one or both of her breasts had been slashed off, that several of the victims had been sexually mutilated. The towel over Sebring's face became a white hood, KKK, or a black hood, Satanists, depending on which paper or magazine you read. When it came to the man charged with the murders, however, there was a paucity of information. It was presumed, initially, that the police were maintaining silence to protect Garretson's rights. It was also presumed that LAPD had to have a strong case against him, or they wouldn't have arrested him. A Pasadena paper, picking up bits and pieces of information, sought to fill the gap. It stated that when the officers found Garretson, he asked, when are the detectives going to see me? The implication was obvious. Garretson knew what had happened. Garretson did ask this, but it was as he was being taken through the gate, long after his arrest, and the question was in response to an earlier comment by DeRosa. Quoting unidentified policemen, the paper also noted, They said the slender youth had a rip in one knee of his pants, and his living quarters in the guest cottage showed signs of a struggle. Damning evidence, unless one were aware that all this happened during, not before, Garretson's arrest. During the first few days, a total of 43 officers would visit the crime scene, looking for weapons and other evidence. In searching the loft above the living room, Sergeant Mike McGann found a film can containing a roll of videotape. Sergeant Ed Henderson took it to the police academy, which had screening facilities. The film showed Sharon and Roman Polanski making love. With a certain delicacy, the tape was not booked into evidence, but was returned to the loft where it had been found. Note. One writer would later claim that the police found a vast collection of pornography in the residence, including numerous films and still shots of famous Hollywood stars engaged in various sexual acts. Aside from the above, and several unexposed rolls of videotape, the only photographs found anywhere on the property were a set of wedding pictures and a large number of publicity shots of Sharon Tate. The same writer also claimed that a number of black hoods were found in the loft. Apparently, he created them out of the same material as his photos, for nothing even resembling a hood was found. End of note. In addition to searching the premises, detectives interviewed neighbors, asking if they had seen any strange people in the area. Ray Asen recalled that two or three months before, there had been a large party at 10,050 Shallow Drive, the guests arriving in hippie garb. He got the impression, however, that they weren't actually hippies, as most arrived in Rolls Royces and Cadillacs. Emmett Steele, who had been awakened by the barking of his hunting dogs the previous night, remembered that in recent weeks someone had been racing a dune buggy up and down the hills late at night, but he never got a close look at the driver and passengers. Most of those interviewed, however, claimed they had neither seen nor heard anything out of the ordinary. The detectives were left with far more questions than answers. However, they were hopeful one person could put the puzzle together for them. William Garretson. The detectives downtown were less optimistic. Following his arrest, the 19-year-old had been taken to West Los Angeles jail and interrogated. 
The officers found his answers stuporous and non-responsive, and were of the opinion that he was under the residual effect of some drug. It was also possible, as Gerritsen himself claimed, that he had slept little the previous night, just a few hours in the morning, and that he was exhausted and very scared. Shortly after this, Gerritsen retained the services of attorney Barry Tarlow. A second interview with Tarlow present took place at Parker Center, headquarters of the Los Angeles Police Department. As far as the police were concerned, it too was unproductive. Gerritsen claimed that although he lived on the property, he had little contact with the people in the main house. He said that he'd only had one visitor the previous night, a boy named Steve Parent, who showed up about 11.45 and left about a half hour later. Questioned about Parent, Gerritsen said he didn't know him well. He'd hitched a ride up the canyon with him one night a couple of weeks ago, and on getting out of the car at the gate, had told Steve if he was ever in the neighborhood to drop in. Gerritsen, who lived by himself in the back house, except for the dogs, said he'd extended similar invitations to others. When Steve showed up, he was surprised. No one else ever had. But Steve didn't stay long, leaving after learning that Gerritsen wasn't interested in buying a clock radio Steve had for sale. The police did not at this time connect Gerritsen's visitor with the youth in the Rambler, possibly because Gerritsen had earlier failed to identify him. After conferring with Tarlow, Gerritsen agreed to take a polygraph examination, and one was scheduled for the following afternoon. Twelve hours had passed since the discovery of the bodies. John Doe 85 remained unidentified. Police Lieutenant Robert Madlock, who had been in charge of the investigation during the several hours before it was assigned to homicide, would later state, At the time we first found the victim's car at the scene, we were going 14 different directions at once. So many things had to be done, I guess we just didn't have time to follow up on the car registration. All day, Wilfred and Juanita Parent had waited and worried. Their 18-year-old son, Stephen, hadn't come home the previous night. He didn't call, didn't leave word. He'd never done anything like that before, Juanita Parent said. About 8 p.m., aware that his wife was too distraught to cook dinner, Wilfred Parent took her and their three other children to a restaurant. Maybe when we get back, he told his wife, Steve will be there. From outside the gate of 10,050 Shallow, it was possible to make out the license number on the White Rambler, ZLR-694. A reporter wrote it down, then ran his own check through the Department of Motor Vehicles, learning that the registered owner was Wilfred E. or Juanita D. Parent, 11214 Bryant Drive, El Monte, California. By the time he arrived in El Monte, a Los Angeles suburb some 25 miles from Shallow Drive, he found no one at home. Questioning the neighbors, he learned that the family did have a boy in his late teens. He also learned the name of the family priest, Father Robert Byrne of the Church of the Nativity, and called on him. Byrne knew the youth and his family well. Though the priest was sure Steve didn't know any movie stars, and that all this was some mistake, he agreed to accompany the reporter to the county morgue. On the way, he talked about Steve. He was a stereo bug, Father Byrne said. If you ever wanted to know anything about phonographs or radios, Steve had the answers. Father Byrne held great hopes for his future. In the interim, LAPD discovered the identity of the youth through a print and license check. Shortly after the parents returned home, an El Monte policeman appeared at the door and handed Wilfred Parent a card with a number on it and told him to call it. He left without saying anything else. Parent dialed the number. County coroner's office, a man answered. 
Confused, Perrin identified himself and explained about the policeman and the card. The call was transferred to a deputy coroner, who told him, Your son has apparently been involved in a shooting. Is he dead? Perrin asked, stunned. His wife, hearing the question, became hysterical. We have a body down here, the deputy coroner replied, and we believe it's your son. He then went on to describe physical characteristics. They matched. Perrin hung up the phone and began sobbing. Later, understandably bitter, he'd remark, All I can say is that it was a hell of a way to tell somebody that their boy was dead. About this same time, Father Byrne viewed the body and made the identification. John Doe, 85, became Stephen Earl Parent, an 18-year-old hi-fi enthusiast from El Monte. It was 5 a.m. before the parents went to bed. The wife and I finally just put the kids in bed with us, and the five of us just held on to each other and cried until we went to sleep. About nine that same Saturday night, August 9, 1969, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca and Susan Struthers, Rosemary's 21-year-old daughter by a previous marriage, left Lake Isabella for the long drive back to Los Angeles. The lake, a popular resort area, was some 150 miles from L.A. Susan's brother, Frank Struthers Jr., 15, had been vacationing at the lake with a friend, Jim Saffy, whose family had a cabin there. Rosemary and Lino had driven up the previous Tuesday to leave their speedboat for the boys to use, then returned Saturday morning to pick up Frank in the boat. However, the boys were having such a good time, the LaBiancas agreed to let Frank stay over another day, and they were returning now without him, driving their 1968 Green Thunderbird, towing the speedboat on a trailer behind. Lino, the president of a chain of Los Angeles supermarkets, was 44, Italian, and at 220 pounds, somewhat overweight. Rosemary, a trim, attractive brunette of 38, was a former car hop, who, after a series of waitress jobs and a bad marriage, had opened her own dress shop, the Boutique Carriage on North Figueroa in Los Angeles, and made a big success of it. She and Lino had been married since 1959. Because of the boat, they couldn't drive at the speed Lino preferred, and fell behind most of the Saturday night freeway traffic that was speeding toward Los Angeles and environs. Like many others that night, they had the radio on and heard the news of the Tate murders. According to Susan, it seemed particularly to disturb Rosemary, who a few weeks earlier had told a close friend, someone is coming in our house while we're away. Things have been gone through, and the dogs are outside the house when they should be inside. Sunday, August 10, 1969. About 1 a.m., the LaBiancas dropped Susan off at her apartment on Greenwood Place in the Los Feliz district of Los Angeles. Lino and Rosemary lived in the same neighborhood, at 3301 Waverly Drive, not far from Griffith Park. The LaBiancas did not immediately return home, but first drove to the corner of Hillhurst and Franklin. John Focianos, who had a newsstand on that corner, recognized the green Thunderbird plus boat as it pulled into the standard station across the street and while it was making a U-turn that would bring it alongside his stand, he reached for a copy of the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, Sunday edition, and a racing form. Lino was a regular customer. To Fokianos, the LaBiancas seemed tired from their long trip. Business was slow, and they chatted for a few minutes. About Tate, the event of the day, that was the big news. Fokianos would recall that Mrs. LaBianca seemed very shaken by the deaths. He had some extra news fillers for the Sunday Los Angeles Times, which featured the murders, and he gave them one without charge. 
He watched as they drove away. He did not notice the exact time, except that it was sometime between 1 and 2 a.m., probably closer to the latter, as not long after they left, the bars closed and there was a flurry of business. As far as is known, John Fokianos was the last person, excluding their killer, killers, to see Rosemary and Lino LaBianca alive. At noon on Sunday, the hall outside the autopsy room on the first floor of the Hall of Justice was packed with reporters and TV cameramen, all awaiting the coroner's announcement. They would have a long wait. Although the autopsies had begun at 9.50 a.m. and a number of deputy coroners had been pressed into service, it would be 3 p.m. before the last autopsy was completed. Dr. R.C. Henry conducted the Folger and Sebring autopsies, Dr. Gaston Herrera those of Frykowski and Parent. Dr. Noguchi supervised and directed all four. In addition, he personally conducted the other autopsy, which began at 11.20 a.m. Sharon Marie Polanski, 10,050 Shallow Drive, female Caucasian, 26 years, 5'3", 135 pounds, blonde hair, hazel eyes. Victim's occupation, actress. Autopsy reports are abrupt documents, cold, factual. They can indicate how the victims died and give clues as to their last hours, but nowhere in them do their subjects emerge even briefly as people. Each report is, in its own way, the sum total of a life, yet there are very few glimpses as to how that life was lived. No likes, dislikes, loves, hates, fears, aspirations, or other human emotions. Just a final clinical summing up. The body is normally developed, the pancreas is grossly unremarkable, the heart weighs 340 grams and is symmetrical. Yet the victims had lived. Each had a past. Much of Sharon Tate's story sounded like a studio press release. It seemed she had always wanted to be an actress. At age six months, she had been Miss Tiny Todd of Dallas. At 16 years, Miss Richland Washington, then Miss Autorama. When her father, a career army officer, was assigned to San Pedro, she would hitchhike into nearby Los Angeles, haunting the studios. In addition to her ambition, she had at least one other thing in her favor. She was a very beautiful girl. She acquired an agent who succeeded in getting her a few commercials. Then, in 1963, an audition for the TV series Petticoat Junction. Producer Martin Ransahoff saw the pretty 20-year-old on the set and, according to Studio Flackery, told her, Sweetie, I'm going to make you a star. The star was a long time ascending. Singing, dancing, and acting lessons were interspersed with bit parts, usually wearing a black wig, in the Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, and two Ransahoff films, The Americanization of Emily and The Sandpiper. While the latter film, co-starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, was being filmed in Big Sur, Sharon fell in love with the magnificently scenic coastline. Whenever she wanted to escape the Hollywood hassle, she fled there. Scrubbed of makeup, she would check into Rustic Deachin's Big Sur Inn, often alone, sometimes with girlfriends, and walk the trails, sun at the beach, and blend in with the regulars at Nepenthe. Many did not know until after her death that she was an actress. According to close friends, though Sharon Tate looked the part of the starlet, she didn't live up to at least one portion of that image. She was not promiscuous. Her relationships were few and rarely casual, at least on her part. She seemed attracted to dominant men. While in Hollywood, she had a long affair with a French actor. 
Given to insane rages, he once beat her so badly she had to be taken to the UCLA Medical Center for treatment. Note, LAPD learned of him from Sharon's parents. They also learned from one of Sebring's ex-girlfriends that he had had an argument with the hairstylist a few nights before the murder in one of the Hollywood discotheques. After checking the man's alibi, they cleared him of any possible involvement in the murders. The argument itself was minor. He had interrupted Sebring while he was trying to pick up a girl. End of note. Shortly after this, in 1963, J. Sebring spotted Sharon at a studio preview, prevailed upon a friend for an introduction, and after a brief but much-publicized courtship, they became lovers, a relationship which lasted until she met Roman Polanski. It was 1965 before Ransahoff decided his protege was ready for her first featured role in Eye of the Devil, which starred Deborah Carr and David Niven. Listed seventh in the credits, Sharon Tate played a country girl with bewitching powers. She had less than a dozen lines. Her primary role was to look beautiful, which she did. This was to be true of almost all her movies. In the film, Niven became the victim of a hooded cult which practiced ritual sacrifice. Though set in France, the film was made in London, and it was here in the summer of 1966 that she met Roman Polanski. Polanski was at this time 33, and already acclaimed as one of Europe's leading directors. He had been born in Paris, his father a Russian Jew, his mother Polish of Russian stock. When Roman was three, the family moved to Krakow. They were still there in 1940 when the Germans arrived and sealed off the ghetto. With his father's help, Roman managed to escape and lived with family friends until the war ended. Both his parents, however, were sent to concentration camps, his mother dying in Auschwitz. Following the war, he spent five years at the Polish National Film Academy at Luj. As his senior thesis, he wrote and directed Two Men and a Wardrobe, a much acclaimed surrealistic short. He made several other short films, among them Mammals, in which a Polish friend, Wojciech Frykowski, played a thief. After an extended trip to Paris, Polanski returned to Poland to make Knife in the Water, his first feature-length effort. It won the Critics' Award at the Venice Film Festival, was nominated for an Academy Award, and established Polanski, then only 27, as one of Europe's most promising filmmakers. In 1965, Polanski made his first film in English, Repulsion, starring Catherine Deneuve. Cul-de-sac followed, which won the Best Film Award in the Berlin Film Festival, the Critics' Award in Venice, a Diploma of Merit in Edinburgh, and the Giove Capitaliano Award in Rome. In the news stories following the Tate murders, reporters were quick to note that in repulsion, Miss Deneuve went mad and murdered two men, while in cul-de-sac, the inhabitants of an isolated castle each meet a bizarre fate until only one man is left alive. They also noted Polanski's penchant for violence, without adding that most often in Polanski's films, the violence was less explicit than implied. Roman Polanski's personal life was no less controversial than his films. After his marriage to Polish film star Barbara Loss ended in divorce in 1962, Polanski became known as the Playboy director. A friend would later recall him leafing through his address book saying, Who shall I gratify tonight? Another friend observed that Polanski's immense talent was matched only by his ego. Non-friends, who were numerous, had stronger things to say. One, referring to the fact that Polanski was just over five feet tall, called him the original five-foot pole you wouldn't want to touch anyone with. Whether one was captivated by his gammon-like charm or repelled by his arrogance, 
He appeared to touch off strong emotions in nearly everyone whom he met. It was not so with Sharon Tate, at least not at first. When Ransahoff introduced Roman and Sharon at a large party, neither was particularly impressed. The introduction was not accidental. On learning that Polanski was considering doing a film spoof of horror movies, Ransahoff had offered to produce it. He wanted Sharon for the female lead. Polanski gave her a screen test and decided she would be acceptable for the part. Polanski wrote, directed, and starred in the film, which eventually appeared as The Fearless Vampire Killers, but Ransahoff did the cutting, much to the displeasure of the Polish director, who disavowed the final print. Though the film was more camp than art, Polanski revealed another phase of his multifaceted talent in his comic portrayal of the bumbling young assistant of a scholarly vampire hunter. Sharon, again, looked pretty and had less than a dozen lines. A victim of the vampire early in the picture, in the last scene she bites her lover, Polanski, creating still another monster. Before the filming was over, and after what was for Polanski a very long courtship, Sharon and Roman became off-screen lovers, too. When Sebring flew to London, Sharon told him the news. If he took it hard, he was careful not to show it, very quickly settling into the role of family friend. There were indications, asides made to a few associates, that Sebring hoped that Sharon would eventually tire of Roman, or vice versa, the presumption being that when this happened, he intended to be around. Those who claimed that Sebring was still in love with Sharon were guessing. Though Sebring knew hundreds of people, he apparently had few really close friends and kept his inner feelings very much to himself. But it was a safe guess that although the nature of that love had changed, some deep attachment remained. After the breakup, Sebring was involved with many women, but as revealed in the LAPD interview sheets, for the most part the relationships were more sexual than emotional, the majority one-night stands. Paramount asked Polanski to do the film version of Ira Levin's novel, Rosemary's Baby. The film, in which Mia Farrow played a young girl who had a child by Satan, was completed late in 1967. On January 20th, 1968, to the surprise of many friends to whom Polanski had vowed never again to marry, he and Sharon were wed in a mod ceremony in London. Rosemary's Baby premiered that June. That same month, the Polanskis rented actress Patty Duke's home at 1600 Summit Ridge Drive in Los Angeles. It was while they were living there that Mrs. Chapman began working for them. In early 1969, they heard that 10,050 Shallow Drive might be vacant. Though they never met in person, Sharon talked to Terry Melcher on the phone several times, making arrangements to take over his unexpired lease. The Polanskis signed a rental agreement on February 12, 1969, at $1,200 a month and moved in three days later. Though Rosemary's Baby was a smash success, Sharon's own career had never quite taken off. She had appeared semi-nude in the March 1967 issue of Playboy. Polanski himself took the photos on the set of The Fearless Vampire Killers, the accompanying article beginning, This is the year that Sharon Tate happens. But the prediction wasn't fulfilled. Not that year. Though a number of reviewers commented on her striking looks, Neither this nor two other films in which she played, Don't Make Waves with Tony Curtis and The Wrecking Crew with Dean Martin, brought her much closer to stardom. Her biggest role came in the 1967 film Valley of the Dolls, in which she played the actress Jennifer, who, on learning that she has breast cancer, takes an overdose of sleeping pills. Not long before her death, Jennifer remarks, I have no talent. All I have is a body. There were reviewers who felt that adequately summed up Sharon Tate's performance. 
To be fairer, to date she hadn't been given a single role which gave her a chance to bring out whatever acting ability she may have had. She was not a star, not yet. Her career seemed to hesitate on the edge of a breakthrough, but it could easily have remained stationary or gone the other way. But for the first time in her life, Sharon's ambition had slipped to second place. Her marriage and her pregnancy had become her whole life. According to those closest to her, she seemed oblivious to all else. There were rumors of trouble in her marriage. Several of her female friends told LAPD that she had waited to tell Roman of her pregnancy until after it was too late to abort. If she was concerned that even after marriage Polanski remained the playboy, she hid it. Sharon herself often told a story, then current in the movie colony, of how Roman was driving through Beverly Hills when, spotting a pretty girl walking ahead of him, he yelled, Miss, you have a beautiful arse. Only when the girl turned did he recognize his wife. Yet it was obvious that she hoped the baby would bring the marriage closer together. Hollywood is a bitchy town. In interviewing acquaintances of the victims, LAPD would encounter an incredible amount of venom. Interestingly enough, in the dozens of interview sheets, no one who actually knew Sharon Tate said anything bad about her. Very sweet, somewhat naive, these were the words most often used. That Sunday, a Los Angeles Times reporter who had known Sharon described her as an astonishingly beautiful woman with a statuesque figure and a face of great delicacy. But then he didn't see her as Coroner Noguchi did. Cause of death? Multiple stab wounds of the chest and back, penetrating the heart, lungs, and liver, causing massive hemorrhage. Victim was stabbed 16 times, five of which wounds were in and of themselves fatal. J. Sebring, 9860 Easton Drive, Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, male Caucasian, 35 years, 5'6", 120 pounds, black hair, brown eyes. Victim was a hairstylist and had a corporation known as Sebring International. Born Thomas John Coomer in Detroit, Michigan, he had changed his name to J. Sebring shortly after arriving in Hollywood, following a four-year stint as a Navy barber borrowing the last name from the famous Florida sports car race because he liked the image it projected. In his personal life, as in his work, appearances were all important. He drove an expensive sports car, frequented the inn clubs, even had his Levi jackets custom made. He employed a full-time butler, gave lavish parties, and lived in a jinxed mansion, 9860 Easton Drive, Benedict Canyon. Once the love nest of actress Jean Harlow and producer Paul Byrne, it was here, in Harlow's bedroom, that Byrne had committed suicide, two months after their marriage. According to acquaintances, Sebring had bought the house because of its far-out reputation. It was widely reported that a motion picture studio had flown Sebring to London just to cut George Papard's hair at a cost of $25,000. While the report was probably as factual as another also current, that he had a black belt in karate, he had taken a few lessons from Bruce Lee, there was no question that he was the leading men's hairstylist in the United States, and that more than any other single individual, he was responsible for the revolution in male hair care. In addition to Papard, his customers included Frank Sinatra, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Peter Lawford, and numerous other motion picture stars, many of whom had promised to invest in his new corporation, Sebring International. While keeping his original salon at 725 North Fairfax in Los Angeles, he planned to open a series of franchise shops and to market a line of men's toiletries bearing his name. 
The first shop had been opened in San Francisco in May 1969, Abigail Folger and Colonel and Mrs. Paul Tate being among those at the grand opening. On April 9, 1968, Sebring had signed an application for a $500,000 executive protection policy with the Occidental Life Insurance Company of California. A background investigation conducted by the retail credit company estimated his net worth at $100,000, of which $80,000 was the appraised worth of his residence. Sebring Incorporated, the original business, had assets of $150,000 with liabilities of $115,000. The investigators also looked into Sebring's personal life. He had married once, in October 1960, he and his wife, Cammie, a model, separating in August 1963, their divorce becoming final in March 1965, the couple having had no children. The report also stated that Sebring had never used drugs as a habit. LAPD knew otherwise. They also knew something else the credit company investigators had never discovered. There was a darker side to J. Sebring's nature that surfaced during numerous interviews conducted by the police. As noted in the official report, he was considered a ladies' man and took numerous women to his residence in the Hollywood Hills. He would tie the women up with a small sash cord, and if they agreed, would whip them, after which they would have sexual relations. Rumors of this had long circulated around Hollywood. Now, picked up by the press, they became the basis for numerous theories chief among them that some sort of sadomasochistic orgy had been in progress on the night of August 9, 1969, at 10,050 Shallow Drive. LAPD never seriously considered Sebring's odd sexual habits a possible cause of the murders. None of the girls interviewed, and the number was large, Sebring frequently dating five or six different girls a week, claimed that Sebring had actually hurt them, though he often asked them to pretend pain. Nor, as far as could be determined, was Sebring involved in group sex. He was too afraid his private quirks would subject him to ridicule. The mundane truth appeared to be that behind the carefully cultivated public image, there was a lonely, troubled man so insecure in his role that even in his sex life he had to revert to fantasy. Cause of death? Exsanguination. Victim literally bled to death. Victim had been stabbed seven times and shot once, at least three of the stab wounds, as well as the gunshot wound being in and of itself fatal. Abigail Ann Folger, female Caucasian, 25 years, 5'5", 120 pounds, brown hair, hazel eyes, residence since the 1st of April, 10,050 Shallow Drive. Prior to that, she lived at 2774 Woodstock Road. Occupation, heiress to the Folger coffee fortune. Abigail Gibby Folger's coming out party had been held at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco on December 21, 1961. The Italianate ball was one of the highlights of the social season, the debutante wearing a bright yellow Dior she had purchased in Paris the previous summer. After that, she had attended Radcliffe, graduating with honors, worked for a time as publicity director for the University of California Art Museum in Berkeley, quit that to work in a New York bookstore then became involved in social work in the ghettos. It was while in New York, in early 1968, that Polish novelist Jerzy Kozinski introduced her to Wojciech Frykowski. They left New York together that August, driving to Los Angeles, where they rented a house at 2774 Woodstock Road, off Mulholland in the Hollywood Hills. Through Frykowski, she met the Polanskis, Sebring, and others in their circle. 
She was one of the investors in Sebring International. Shortly after arriving in Southern California, she registered as a volunteer social worker for the Los Angeles County Welfare Department and would get up at dawn each day for assignments that took her into Watts, Pacoima, and other ghetto areas. She continued this work until the day before she and Frykowski moved into 10,050 Shallow Drive. Something changed after that. Probably it was a combination of things. She became depressed over how little such work actually accomplished, how big the problems stayed. A lot of social workers go home at night, take a bath and wash off their day, she told an old San Francisco friend. I can't. The suffering gets under your skin. In May, black city councilman Thomas Bradley ran against incumbent Samuel Yorty for mayor of Los Angeles. Bradley's defeat, after a campaign heavy with racial smears, left her disillusioned and bitter. She did not resume her social work. She was also disturbed about the way her affair with Frykowski was going, and with their use of drugs, which had passed the point of experimentation. She talked about all these things with her psychiatrist, Dr. Marvin Flicker. She saw him five days a week, Monday through Friday, at 4.30 p.m. She had kept her appointment that Friday. Flicker told the police that he thought Abigail was almost ready to leave Frykowski, that she was attempting to build up enough nerve to go it alone. The police were unable to determine exactly when Folger and Frykowski began to use drugs heavily, on a regular basis. It was learned that on their cross-country trip, they had stopped in Irving, Texas, staying several days with a big dope dealer well-known to local and Dallas police. Dealers were among their regular guests, both at the Woodstock house and after they moved to Shallow Drive. William Tennant told police that whenever he visited the latter residence, Abigail always seemed to be in a stupor from narcotics. When her mother last talked to her, about 10 that Friday night, she said Gibby had sounded lucid but a little high. Mrs. Folger, who was not unaware of her daughter's problems, had contributed large amounts of both money and time to the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic to help in their pioneer work in treating drug abuse. The coroners discovered 2.4 milligrams of methylene dioxyamphetamine, MDA, in Abigail Folger's system. That this was a larger amount than was found in Wojciech Frykowski's body, 0.6 milligrams, did not necessarily indicate that she had taken a larger quantity of the drug, but could mean she had taken it at a later time. Effects of the drug vary, depending on the individual and the dosage, but one thing was clear. That night she was fully aware of what was happening. Victim had been stabbed 28 times. Wojciech Frykowski, male Caucasian, 32 years, 5'10", 165 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. Frykowski had been living with Abigail Folger in a common-law relationship. Wojciech, Roman Polanski would later tell reporters, was a man of little talent but immense charm. The two had been friends in Poland, Frykowski's father reputedly having helped finance one of Polanski's early films. Even in Poland, Frykowski had been known as a playboy. According to fellow emigres, he had once taken on and rendered inoperative two members of the secret police, which may have had something to do with his exit from Poland in 1967. He had married twice and had one son, who had remained behind when he moved to Paris. Both there and later in New York, Polanski had given him money and encouragement, hopeful, but knowing Wojciech well, not too optimistic, that one of his grand plans would come through. None ever quite did. He told people that he was a writer, but no one could recall having read anything he had written. Friends of Abigail Folger told the police that Frykowski had introduced her to drugs so as to keep her under his control. 
Friends of Wojciech Frykowski said the opposite, that Folger had provided the drugs so as not to lose him. According to the police report, he had no means of support and lived off Folger's fortune. He used cocaine, mescaline, LSD, marijuana, hashish in large amounts. He was an extrovert and gave invitations to almost everyone he met to come visit him at his residence. Narcotic parties were the order of the day. He had fought hard for his life. Victim was shot twice, struck over the head 13 times with a blunt object, and stabbed 51 times. Stephen Earl Parent, male Caucasian, 18 years, 6'0", 175 pounds, red hair, brown eyes. He had graduated from Arroyo High School in June, dated several girls, but no one in particular, had a full-time job as delivery boy for a plumbing company, plus a part-time job, evenings, as salesman for a stereo shop, holding down the two jobs so he could save money to attend junior college that September. Victim had one defensive slash wound and had been shot four times. During the fluoroscopy examination that preceded the Sebring autopsy, Dr. Noguchi discovered a bullet lodged between Sebring's back and his shirt. Three more bullets were found during the autopsies, one in Frykowski's body, two in Parent's. These, plus the slug and fragments found in Parent's automobile, were turned over to Sergeant William Lee, Firearms and Explosives Unit, SID, for study. Lee concluded that all the bullets had probably been fired from the same gun, and that they were 22 caliber. While the autopsies were in progress, Sergeants Paul Whiteley and Charles Gunther, two homicide detectives from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, approached Sergeant Jess Buckles, one of the Los Angeles Police Department detectives assigned to the Tate homicides, and told him something very curious. On July 31st, they had gone to 964 Old Topanga Road in Malibu to investigate a report of a possible homicide. They had found the body of Gary Hinman, a 34-year-old music teacher. He had been stabbed to death. The curious thing, as in the Tate homicides, a message had been left at the scene. On the wall in the living room, not far from Hinman's body, were the words Political Piggy, printed in the victim's own blood. Whiteley also told Buckles that they had arrested a suspect in connection with the murder, one Robert Bobby Beausoleil, a young hippie musician. He had been driving a car that belonged to Hinman, there was blood on his shirt and trousers, and a knife had been found hidden in the tire well of the vehicle. The arrest had occurred on August 6th. Therefore, he had been in custody at the time of the Tate homicides. However, it was possible that he hadn't been the only one involved in the Hinman murder. Beausoleil had been living at Spawn's Ranch, an old movie ranch near the Los Angeles suburb of Chatsworth, with a bunch of other hippies. It was an odd group, their leader, a guy named Charlie, apparently having convinced them that he was Jesus Christ. Buckles, Whiteley would later recall, lost interest when he mentioned hippies. No, he replied, we know what's behind these murders. They're part of a big dope transaction. Whiteley again emphasized the odd similarities, like mode of death. In both cases, a message had been left, both printed, both in a victim's blood, and in both, the letters P.I.G. appeared. Any one of these things would be highly unusual, but all, the odds against its being a coincidence, must be astronomical. Sergeant Buckles, LAPD, told Sergeants Whiteley and Gunther, LASO, if you don't hear from us in a week or so, that means we're on to something else. 
A little more than 24 hours after the discovery of the Tate victims, the Los Angeles Police Department was given a lead by the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, which, if followed, could possibly have broken the case. Buckles never did call, nor did he think the information important enough to walk across the autopsy room and mention the conversation to his superior, Lieutenant Robert Helder, who was in charge of the Tate investigation. At Lieutenant Helder's suggestion, Dr. Noguchi withheld specifics when he met with the press. He did not mention the number of wounds, nor did he say anything about two of the victims having ingested drugs. He did, again, deny the already much repeated reports that there had been sexual molestation and or mutilation. Neither was true, he stressed. Asked about Sharon's child, he said that Mrs. Polanski was in the eighth month of her pregnancy, that the child was a perfectly formed boy and that had he been removed by post-mortem caesarean within the first 20 minutes after the mother's death, his life probably could have been saved. But by the time the bodies were discovered, it was too late. Lieutenant Helder also talked to the press that day. Yes, Gerritsen was still in custody. No, he could not comment on the evidence against him, except to say that the police were now investigating his acquaintances. Pressed further, Helder admitted, there's no solid information that will limit us to a single suspect. It could have been one man. It could have been two. It could have been three. But, he added, I don't feel that we have a maniac running around. Lieutenant A.H. Burdick began the polygraph examination of William Gerritsen at 425 that afternoon at Parker Center. Burdick did not immediately hook up Gerritsen. In accordance with routine, the initial portion of the examination was conversational, the examiner attempting to put the suspect at ease while eliciting as much background information as possible. Though obviously frightened, Gerritsen loosened up a little as he talked. He told Burdick that he was 19, from Ohio, and had been hired by Rudy Altabelli in March, just before Altabelli left for Europe. His job was simple, to look after the guest house and Altabelli's three dogs. In return, he had been given a place to stay, $35 a week, and the promise of an airline ticket back to Ohio when Altabelli returned. He had little to do with the people who lived in the main house, Gerritsen claimed. Several of his replies seemed to bear this out. He still referred to Frykowski, for example, as the younger Polanski, while he appeared unfamiliar with Sebring, either by name or description, though he had seen the black Porsche in the driveway on several occasions. Asked to relate his activities prior to the murders, Gerritsen said that on Thursday night, an acquaintance had dropped by, accompanied by his girl. They had brought along a six-pack of beer and some pot. Gerritsen was sure it was Thursday night, as the man was married, and he brought her up there several other times, you know, on Thursday, when his wife lets him go out. Question. Did they use your pad? Answer. Yes, they did, and I drank some beer while they made out. Gerritsen recalled that he drank four beers, smoked two joints, took one dexedrine, and was sick all day Friday. About 8.30 or 9 p.m. Friday, Gerritsen said, he went down to the Sunset Strip to buy a pack of cigarettes and a TV dinner. He guessed the time of his return at about 10, but couldn't be sure, not having a watch. As he passed the main house, he noticed the lights were on, but he didn't see anyone. Nor did he observe anything out of the ordinary. Then... About a quarter of twelve or something like that, Steve Parent came up and, you know, he brought his radio with him. 
he had a radio, clock radio, and I didn't expect him or anything, and he asked me how I'd been and everything. Parent plugged in the radio to demonstrate how it worked, but Gerritsen wasn't interested. Then I gave him a beer, and he drank it, and then he called somebody, somebody on Santa Monica and Doheny, and he said that he would be going there, and so then he left. And, you know, that's when, that's the last time I saw him. When found in Perrin's car, the clock radio had stopped at 12.15 a.m., the approximate time of the murder. Although it could have been a remarkable coincidence, the logical presumption was that Parent had set it while demonstrating it to Garretson, then unplugged it just before he left. This would coincide with Garretson's estimate of the time. According to Garretson, after Parent left, he wrote some letters and played the stereo, not going to sleep until just before dawn. Though he claimed to have heard nothing unusual during the night, he admitted that he had been scared. Why? Burdick asked. Well, Garretson replied, not long after Steve left, he noticed that the handle of the door was turned down, as if someone had tried to open it. And when he tried to use the phone to learn the time, he found it was dead. Like the other officers, Burdick found it difficult to believe that Garretson, though admittedly awake all night, heard nothing, while neighbors even farther away heard shots or screams. Garretson insisted, however, that he had neither heard nor seen anything. He was less sure on another point, whether he had gone out into the backyard when he let Altabelli's dogs out. To Burdick, he appeared evasive about this. From the yard, however, he couldn't see the main house, though he might have heard something. As far as LAPD was concerned, the moment of truth was now arriving. Burdick began setting up the polygraph, at the same time reading Garrett's in the list of questions he intended to ask. This, too, was standard operating procedure and more than a little psychological. Knowing a certain question was going to be asked, but not when, built tension, accentuating the response. He then began the test. Question. Is your true last name Garretson? Answer. Yes. No significant response. Question. Concerning Steve, did you cause his death? Answer. No. Facing forward, Garretson couldn't see Burdick's face. Burdick kept his voice matter-of-fact as he moved on to the next question, in no way indicating that the steel pens had jerked across the graph. Question. You understood the questions? Answer. Yes. Question. Do you feel responsible for Steve's death? Answer. That he even knew me, yes. Question. Huh? Answer. That he even knew me. I mean, he wouldn't have come up that night, and nothing would have happened, in other words, to him. Burdick relieved the pressure cup on Garretson's arm, told him to relax, talked to him informally for a while. Then again the pressure, and the questions only slightly changed this time. Question. Is your true last name Garretson? Answer. Yes. Question. Did you shoot Steve? Answer. No. No significant response. More test questions, followed by, Do you know who caused Mrs. Polanski's death? Answer. No. Question. Did you cause Mrs. Polanski's death? Answer. No. Still no significant response. Burdick now accepted Garretson's explanation, 
that he felt responsibility for Perrin's death, but had no part in causing it or the other murders. The examination went on for another half hour or so, during which Burdick closed off several avenues of investigation. Garretson was not gay. He had never had sex with any of the victims. He had never sold drugs. There was no indication that Garretson was lying, but he remained nervous throughout. Burdick asked him why. Garretson explained that when he was being taken to his cell, a policeman had pointed at him, saying, there's the guy that killed all those people. Question. I would imagine it would shake you up, but that doesn't mean you're lying? Answer. No, I'm just confused. Question. Why are you confused? Answer. For one thing, how come I wasn't murdered? Question. I don't know. Although legally inadmissible as evidence, the police believe in the polygraph. Note. In 1972, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge broke with precedent and permitted the results of a polygraph test to be received into evidence in a marijuana case. End of note. Though uninformed of it at the time, Garretson had passed. At the conclusion of the examination, Captain Don Martin, Commander, SID, wrote in his official report, it was the examiner's opinion that Mr. Garretson was truthful and not criminally involved in the Polanski homicides. Unofficially, though Burdick believed Garretson clean on participation, he felt he was a little muddy on knowledge. It was possible that he had heard something, then fearful, hidden until dawn. This was just conjecture, however. For all intents and purposes, with the polygraph, William Eston Garretson ceased to be a good suspect. Yet that bothersome question remained. Every single human being at 10,050 Shallow Drive had been slaughtered, save one. Why? Because there was no immediate answer, and certainly in part because, having been the only warm body on the premises, he had seemed such a likely suspect, Garretson was held for another day. That same Sunday, Gerald D. Friedman, a UCLA student, contacted the police and informed them that the call Stephen Parent made at approximately 11.45 on Friday night had been to him. Parent was going to build a stereo set for Friedman, and he wanted to talk over the details. Friedman had tried to beg off, saying it was late, but finally gave in and told Parent he could drop by for a few minutes. Parent had asked him the time, and when he told him, said he would be there about 12.30. Note, it was possible when Parent asked the time, he also set the radio clock. End of note. According to Friedman, he never got there. That Sunday... LAPD not only lost their best suspect to date, another promising lead fizzled out. Sharon Tate's red Ferrari, which the police had thought might have been used as a getaway car, was located in a Beverly Hills garage where Sharon had taken it the previous week for repairs. That evening, Roman Polanski returned from London. Reporters who saw him at the airport described him as terribly crushed and beaten by the tragedy. Though he refused to talk with the press, a spokesman for him denied there was any truth to the rumors of a marital rift. Polanski had remained in London, he said, because he hadn't finished his work there. Sharon had returned home early, by boat, because of airline restrictions against travel during the last two months of pregnancy. Polanski was taken to an apartment inside the Paramount lot, where he remained in seclusion under a doctor's care. The police talked to him briefly that night, but he was, at that time, unable to suggest anyone with a motive for the murders. 
Frank Struthers also returned to Los Angeles that Sunday night. About 8.30 p.m., the Saffies dropped him off at the end of the long driveway leading to the LaBianca residence. Lugging his suitcase and camping equipment up the driveway, the 15-year-old noticed that the speedboat was still on the trailer behind Lino's Thunderbird. That seemed odd. His stepfather didn't like to leave the boat out overnight. Stowing his equipment in the garage, he went to the back door of the residence. Only then did he notice that all the window shades had been pulled down. He couldn't recall ever seeing them that way before, and it frightened him just a little bit. The light was on in the kitchen, and he knocked on the door. There was no response. He called out. Again, no answer. Really upset now, he walked to the closest payphone, which was at a hamburger stand at Hyperion and Rowena. He dialed the number of the house, then, getting no response, tried to reach his sister at the restaurant where she worked. Susan wasn't working that night, but the manager offered to try her apartment. Frank gave him the number of the payphone. Shortly after nine, she called. She hadn't seen or heard from their mother and stepfather since they had dropped her off at her apartment the previous night. Telling Frank to remain where he was, she called her boyfriend, Joe Dorgan, and told him Frank thought something was wrong at the house. About 9.30, Joe and Susan picked up Frank at the hamburger stand, the three driving directly to 3301 Waverly Drive. Rosemary often left a set of house keys in her own car. They found them and opened the back door. Note, since no one tried the door before using the key, it is unknown whether it was locked. End of note. Dorgan suggested that Susan remain in the kitchen while he and Frank checked out the rest of the house. They proceeded through the dining room. When they got to the living room, they saw Lino. He was sprawled on his back between the couch and a chair. There was a throw pillow over his head, some kind of cord around his neck, and the tops of his pajamas were torn open so his stomach was bare. Something was protruding from his stomach. He was so still they knew he was dead. Afraid Susan would follow and see what they had, they returned to the kitchen. Joe picked up the kitchen phone to call the police, then, worried that he might be disturbing evidence, put it back down, telling Susan, Everything's okay. Let's get out of here. But Susan knew everything wasn't okay. On the refrigerator door, someone had written something in what looked like red paint. Hurrying back down the driveway, they stopped at a duplex across the street and Dorgan rang the bell of 3308 Waverly Drive. The peephole opened. Dorgan said there had been a stabbing, and he wanted to call the police. The person inside refused to open the door, saying, We'll call the police for you. LAPD's switchboard logged the call at 10.26 p.m., the caller complaining about some juveniles making a disturbance. Unsure whether the person had really made the call, Dorgan had already pushed the bell of the other apartment, 3306. Dr. and Mrs. Mary J. Brigham let the three young people in. However, they were so upset, Mrs. Brigham had to complete the call. At 10.35, Unit 6A-39, a black-and-white manned by officers W.C. Rodriguez and J.C. Tony, was dispatched to the address, arriving very quickly, five to seven minutes later. While Susan and Frank remained with the doctor and his wife, Dorgan accompanied the two Hollywood Division officers to the LaBianca residence. Tony covered the back door while Rodriguez went around the house. The front door was closed but not locked. After one look inside, he ran back to the car and called for a backup unit, a supervisor, and an ambulance. 
Rodriguez had been on the force only 14 months. He had never discovered a body before. Within a few minutes, Ambulance Unit G1 arrived, and Lino LaBianca was pronounced DOA, dead on arrival. In addition to the pillow Frank and Joe had seen, there was a bloody pillowcase over his head. The cord around his neck was attached to a massive lamp. The cord knotted so tightly, it appeared he had been throttled with it. His hands were tied behind his back with a leather thong. The object protruding from his stomach was an ivory-handled, bi-tined carving fork. In addition to a number of stab wounds in the abdomen, someone had carved the letters W-A-R in the naked flesh. The backup unit, 6L-40, manned by Sergeant Edward L. Klein, arrived just after the ambulance. A veteran of 16 years, Klein took charge, obtaining a pink DOA slip from the two attendants before they left. The pair were already on their way down the driveway when Rodriguez called them back. Klein had found another body in the master bedroom. Rosemary LaBianca was lying face down on the bedroom floor, parallel to the bed and dresser, in a large pool of blood. She was wearing a short pink nightgown, and over it, an expensive dress, blue with white horizontal stripes, which Susan would later identify as one of her mother's favorites. Both nightgown and dress were bunched up over her head, so her back, buttocks, and legs were bare. Klein didn't even try to count the stab wounds. There were so many. Her hands were not tied, but, like Lino, she had a pillowcase over her head, and a lamp cord was wrapped around her neck. The cord was attached to one of a pair of bedroom lamps, both of which had overturned. The tautness of the cord, plus a second pool of blood about two feet from the body, indicated that perhaps she had tried to crawl, pulling the lamps over while doing so. A second pink DOA slip was filled out for Mrs. Rosemary LaBianca. Joe Dorgan had to tell Susan and Frank. There was writing, in what appeared to be blood, in three places in the residence. High up on the north wall in the living room, above several paintings, were printed the words, Death to Pigs. On the south wall, to the left of the front door, even higher up, was the single word, Rise. There were two words on the refrigerator door in the kitchen, the first of which was misspelled. They read, Helter, H-E-A-L-T-E-R, Skelter. Monday. August 11, 1969. At 12.15 a.m., the case was assigned to robbery homicide. Sergeant Danny Galindo, who had spent the previous night on guard duty at the Tate residence, was the first detective to arrive at about 1 a.m. He was joined shortly after by Inspector K.J. McCauley and several other detectives, while an additional unit, ordered by Klein, sealed off the grounds. As with the Tate homicides, however, the reporters, who had already begun to arrive, apparently had little difficulty obtaining inside information. Galindo made a detailed search of the one-story residence. Except for the overturned lamps, there were no signs of a struggle. Nor was there any evidence that robbery had been the motive. Among the items that Galindo would log into the county public administrator's report were a man's gold ring, the main stone a one-carat diamond, the other stones, also diamonds, only slightly smaller. Two woman's rings, both expensive, both in plain view on a dresser in the bedroom. Necklaces, bracelets, camera equipment, handguns, shotguns and rifles, a coin collection, 
a bag of uncirculated nickels found in the trunk of Lino's Thunderbird, worth considerably more than their $400 face value, Lino LaBianca's wallet with credit cards and cash in the glove compartment of his car, several watches, one a high-priced stopwatch of the type used to clock racehorses, plus numerous other easily fenced items. Several days later, Frank Struthers returned to the residence with the police. The only missing items, as far as he could determine, were Rosemary's wallet and her wristwatch. Galindo was unable to find any indications of forced entry. However, testing the back door, he found it could be jimmied very easily. He was able to open it with only a strip of celluloid. The detectives made a number of other discoveries. The ivory-handled carving fork found protruding from Lino's stomach belonged to a set found in a kitchen drawer. There were some watermelon rinds in the sink. There were also blood splatters, both there and in the rear bathroom. And a piece of blood-soaked paper was found on the floor in the dining room, its frayed end suggesting that possibly it had been the instrument used to print the words. In many ways, the activities at 3301 Waverly Drive the rest of that night were a replay of those that had occurred at 10,050 Shallow Drive less than 48 hours earlier. Even to, in some cases, the same cast, with Sergeant Joe Granado arriving about 3 a.m. to take blood samples. The sample from the kitchen sink wasn't sufficient to determine if it was animal or human, but all the other samples tested positive on the Octoloni test, indicating they were human blood. The blood in the rear bathroom, as well as all the blood in the vicinity of Rosemary LaBianca's body, was type A, Rosemary LaBianca's type. All the other samples, including that taken from the rumpled paper and the various writings, were type B, Lino LaBianca's type. This time, Granado didn't take any subtypes. The fingerprint men from SID, Sergeants Harold Dolan and Jay Claiborne, lifted a total of 25 latents, all but six of which would later be identified as belonging to Lino, Rosemary, or Frank. It was apparent to Dolan, from examining those areas where fingerprints should have been but weren't, that an effort had been made to eradicate prints. For example, there was not even a smudge on the ivory handle of the carving fork, on the chrome handle of the refrigerator door, or on the enamel finish of the door itself, all surfaces that readily lent themselves to receiving latent fingerprints. The refrigerator door on close examination showed white marks. After the police photographer had finished, a deputy coroner supervised the removal of the bodies. The pillowcases were left in place over the heads of the victims. The lamp cords were cut near the bases, so the knots remained intact for study. A representative of the Animal Regulation Department removed the three dogs, which, when the first officers arrived, had been found inside the house. Left behind were the puzzle pieces, but this time at least a partial pattern was discernible in the similarities. Los Angeles, California, consecutive nights, multiple murders, Victims affluent Caucasians, multiple stab wounds, incredible savagery, absence of a conventional motive, no evidence of ransacking or robbery, ropes around the neck of two Tate victims, cords around the necks of both LaBiancas, and the bloody printing. Yet within 24 hours, the police would decide there was no connection between the two sets of murders. Second ritual killings here. Las Vegas couple slain, linked to five-way murder scene. The headline screamed from the front pages that Monday morning. TV programs were interrupted for updates. 
To the millions of Angelinos who commuted to work via the freeways, their car radios seemed to broadcast little else. Note. Some of the details were garbled. It was reported, for example, that the pillowcases were white hoods, that the phrase death to pigs had been printed in blood on the refrigerator door when it actually appeared on the wall in the living room. But enough information had leaked out for the detectives again to have trouble finding polygraph keys. End of note. It was then the fear began. When the news of the Tate homicides broke, even those acquainted with the victims were less fearful than shocked, for simultaneously came the announcement that a suspect had been arrested and charged with the murders. Gerritsen, however, had been in custody when these new murders took place. And with his release that Monday, still looking as puzzled and frightened as when the police captured him, the panic began and spread. If Gerritsen wasn't guilty, then it meant that whoever was was still at large. If it could happen in places as widely separated as Los Feliz and Bel Air, to people as disparate as movie colony celebrities and a grocery market owner and his wife, it meant it could happen anywhere, to anyone. Sometimes fear can be measured. Among the barometers, in two days, one Beverly Hills sporting goods store sold 200 firearms. Prior to the murders, they averaged three or four a day. Some of the private security forces doubled, then tripled their personnel. Guard dogs, once priced at $200, now sold for $1,500. Those who supplied them soon ran out. Locksmiths quoted two-week delays on orders. Accidental shootings, suspicious persons reports, all suddenly increased. The news that there had been 28 murders in Los Angeles that weekend, the average being one a day, did nothing to decrease the apprehension. It was reported that Frank Sinatra was in hiding, that Mia Farrow wouldn't attend her friend Sharon's funeral because, a relative explained, Mia is afraid she will be next, that Tony Bennett had moved from his bungalow on the grounds of the Beverly Hills Hotel to an inside suite for greater security, that Steve McQueen now kept a weapon under the front seat of his sports car, that Jerry Lewis had installed an alarm system in his home complete with closed-circuit TV. Connie Stevens later admitted she had turned her Beverly Hills home into a fortress, mainly because of the Sharon Tate murders. That scared the daylights out of everyone. Friendships ended. Romances broke up. People were abruptly dropped from guest lists. Parties canceled. For with the fear came suspicion. The killer or killers could be almost anyone. A cloud of fright hung over Southern California more dense than its smog. It would not dissipate for months. As late as the following March, William Cloman would write in Esquire, In the great houses of Bel Air, terror sends people flying to their telephones when a branch falls from a tree outside. Political Piggy, Hinman. Pig, Tate. Death to Pigs, LaBianca. In each case, written in the blood of one of the victims. Sergeant Buckles still didn't think it important enough to check further. Deputy Medical Examiner David Katsuyama conducted the LaBianca autopsies. Before starting, he removed the pillowcases from the heads of the victims. Only then was it discovered that, in addition to the carving fork embedded in his abdomen, a knife had been stuck in Lino LaBianca's throat. Since none of the personnel at the scene had observed the knife, this became one of the LaBianca polygraph keys. There were two others. 
For some reason, though the phrase death to pigs had leaked to the press, neither rise nor helter-skelter had. Lino A. LaBianca, 3301 Waverly Drive, male Caucasian, 44 years, 6 220 pounds, brown eyes, brown hair. Born in Los Angeles, son of the founder of the State Wholesale Grocery Company, Lino had gone into the family business after attending the University of Southern California, eventually becoming president of Gateway Markets, a Southern California chain. As far as the police were able to determine, Lino had no enemies. Yet they soon discovered that he too had a secret side. Friends and relatives described him as quiet and conservative. They were amazed to learn after his death that he owned nine thoroughbred racehorses, the most prominent being Kildare Lady, and that he was a chronic gambler, frequenting the tracks nearly every racing day, often betting $500 at a time. Nor did they know that he was, at the time of his death, some $230,000 in debt. In the weeks ahead, the LaBianca detectives would do a remarkable job of tracking their way through the tangled maze of Lino LaBianca's complex financial affairs. The possibility that Lino might have been the victim of loan sharks, however, fell apart when it was learned that Rosemary LaBianca was quite wealthy herself, having more than sufficient assets to pay off Lino's debts. One of Lino's former partners, also Italian, who knew of his gambling habits, told the police he thought the murders might have been committed by the Mafia. He admitted he had no evidence to support this. However, the detectives did learn that for a short time, Lino had been on the board of directors of a Hollywood bank, which LAPD and LASO intelligence units believed was backed by hoodlum money. They had been unable to prove this, though several other board members were indicted and convicted of a kiting scheme. The possibility of a mafia link became one of a number of leads that would have to be checked out. Lino did not have a criminal record. Rosemary had one traffic citation, which dated back to 1957. Lino left $100,000 in insurance, which, since it was to be divided equally among Susan, Frank, and the three children from his previous marriage, appeared to rule that out as a motive. Lino LaBianca died in the same house in which he had been born, he and Rosemary moving into the family home, which Lino had purchased from his mother, in November 1968. Cause of death? Multiple stab wounds. Victim had 12 stab wounds, plus 14 puncture wounds made by a double-tined fork, for a total of 26 separate wounds, any one of six of which could in and of itself have been fatal. Rosemary LaBianca, 3301 Waverly Drive, female Caucasian, 38 years, 5'5", 125 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. It was probable that even Rosemary did not know a great deal about her early years. It was believed that she had been born in Mexico, of American parents, then orphaned or abandoned in Arizona. She remained in an orphanage there until the age of 12, when she was adopted by a family named Harmon, who took her to California. She had met her first husband while working as a car hop at the Brown Derby Drive-In in Los Feliz in the late 1940s, while still in her teens. They were divorced in 1958, and it was shortly after this, while working as a waitress at the Los Feliz Inn, that she met and married Lino LaBianca. Her former husband was polygraphed and cleared of any involvement in the crime. Former employers, ex-boyfriends, current business associates were interviewed. None could recall anyone who disliked her. According to Ruth Civic, her partner in boutique carriage, Rosemary had a good head for business. 
Not only was the shop successful, Rosemary also invested in stocks and commodities and did well. Halwell was not known until her estate was probated, and it was learned she had left $2,600,000. Abigail Folger, the heiress in the shallow slayings, had left less than one-fifth that. Mrs. Civic had last seen Rosemary on Friday, when they went buying for the store. Rosemary had called on Saturday morning, telling her they planned to drive to Lake Isabella, and wondering if she could drop by that afternoon and feed the dogs. The LaBiancas had three dogs. All had barked loudly when she approached the house at about 6 p.m. After feeding them, taking the dog food out of the refrigerator, Mrs. Civic checked the doors. All were locked and left. Mrs. Civic's testimony established that whoever wiped the refrigerator handle of Prince had done so sometime after she had been there. Rosemary LaBianca, car hop to millionaires to murder victim. Cause of death, multiple stab wounds. Victim had been stabbed a total of 41 times, any one of six of which could in and of itself have been fatal. All but one of Lino LaBianca's wounds were to the front of his body. Thirty-six of the forty-one inflicted on Rosemary LaBianca were to her back and buttocks. Lino had no defensive wounds, indicating that his hands had probably been bound before he was stabbed. Rosemary had a defensive slash wound on her left jaw. This wound, plus the knife in Lino's throat, indicated that the placing of the pillowcases over the heads of the victims was a belated act, possibly even occurring after they had died. The pillowcases were identified as the LaBianca's own, having been removed from the two pillows on their bed. The knife found in Lino's throat was also theirs. Though it was from a different set than the fork, it matched others found in a kitchen drawer. The dimensions of its blade were length, four and seven-eighths inches, thickness, just under one-sixteenth of an inch, width at widest point, thirteen-sixteenths inch, width at narrowest point, three-eighths inch. The LaBianca detectives later noted in their report, the knife recovered from his throat appeared to be the weapon used in both homicides. It was a presumption, and nothing more, since, for some reason, Dr. Katsuyama, unlike his superior, Dr. Noguchi, who handled the Tate autopsies, did not measure the dimensions of the wounds. Nor did the detectives assigned to the LaBianca case ask for these statistics. The ramifications of this one presumption were immense. A single weapon indicated that there was probably a single killer. That the weapon used belonged in the residence meant that the killer had probably arrived unarmed, his decision to kill the pair occurring sometime after he entered the premises. This in turn suggested, one, that the killer had arrived to commit a burglary or some other crime, then had been surprised when the LaBiancas returned home, or, two, that the victims knew the killer, trusting him enough to let him in at two in the morning or thereafter. One little presumption, but it would cause many, many problems later. As would the estimated time of death. Asked by the detectives to determine the time, Katsuyama came up with 3 p.m. Sunday. When other evidence appeared to contradict this, the detectives went back to Katsuyama and asked him to recalculate. He now decided Lino LaBianca had died sometime between 12.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. on Sunday, and that Rosemary had died an hour earlier. However, Katsuyama cautioned, the time could be affected by room temperature and other variables. All this was so indecisive that the detectives simply ignored it. They knew, from Frank Struthers, that Lino was a creature of habit. 
Every night he bought the paper, then read it before going to bed, always starting with the sports section. That section had been open on the coffee table with Lino's reading glasses beside it. From this and other evidence, Lino was wearing pajamas, the bed hadn't yet been slept in, and so forth, they concluded that the murders had probably taken place within an hour or so after the LaBiancas had left Focianus's newsstand, or sometime between 2 and 3 a.m. on Sunday. As early as Monday, police were minimizing the similarities between the two crimes. Inspector K.J. McCauley told reporters, I don't see any connection between this murder and the others. They're too widely removed. I just don't see any connection. Sergeant Bryce Houchin observed, There is a similarity, but whether it's the same suspect or a copycat, we just don't know. There were several reasons for discounting the similarities. One was the absence of any apparent link between the victims another the distance between the crimes. Still another, and more important in formulating a motive, drugs were found at 10,050 Shallow Drive, while there were none at 3301 Waverly Drive. There was one more reason, perhaps the most influential. Even before Garrison was released, the Tate detectives had not one, but several very promising new suspects. August 12th to 15th, 1969. From William Tennant, Roman Polanski's business manager, LAPD learned that in mid-March the Polanskis had given a catered party at Shello with over a hundred guests. Note, everything in this book is based on fact. In a few instances, the names of persons only tangentially involved have been changed for legal reasons, the cross symbol indicating the substitution of a pseudonym for the true name. The persons were and are real, however, and the incidents depicted are entirely factual. End of note. As at any large Hollywood gathering, there were crashers. Among them, cross symbol Herb Wilson, cross symbol Larry Madigan, and cross symbol Jeffrey Pickett, nicknamed Pick. The trio, all in their late 20s, were reputedly dope dealers. During the party, Wilson apparently stepped on Tennant's foot. An argument ensued. Madigan and Pickett taking Wilson's side. Irritated, Roman Polanski had the three men evicted. It was a minor incident, in and of itself hardly cause for five savage murders, but Tennant had heard something else. Pick had once threatened to kill Frykowski. This information had come to him through a friend of Wojciech's, Witold Kaczynowski, an artist professionally known as Witold K. Not unmindful of the similarity between Pick and the bloody-lettered pig on the front door of the Tate residence, detectives interviewed Vitolt K. From him, they learned that after the Polanskis had left for Europe, Wilson, Pickett, Madigan, and a fourth man, cross-symbol Gerald Jones, were frequent visitors to the Shallow residence, Wilson and Madigan, according to Vitolt, supplying Wojciech and Gibby with most of their drugs, including the MDA they had taken before they died. As for Jeffrey Pickett, when Gibby and Wojciech took over Shello, he moved into their Woodstock residence. Vitolt was staying there also. Once, during an argument, Pickett tried to strangle the artist. When Wojciech learned of this, he told Pickett to get out. Enraged, Pick swore, I'll kill them all, and Wojciech will be the first. Numerous others also felt one or more of the men might be involved, and passed on their suspicions to the police. John and Michelle Phillips, formerly of the Mamas and Papas group and friends of four of the five Tate victims, said Wilson once drew a gun on Wojciech. 
Various strip habitués claimed Wilson often bragged that he was a hired killer, that Jones was an expert with knives, always carrying one for throwing, and that Madigan was Sebring's candy man or cocaine source. More than ever convinced that the Tate homicides were the result of a drug burn or freakout, LAPD began looking for Wilson, Madigan, Pickett, and Jones. For ten years, Sharon Tate had sought stardom. Now she attained it in just three days. On Tuesday, August 12th, her name moved from the headlines onto theater marquees. Valley of the Dolls was re-released nationally, opening in more than a dozen theaters in the Los Angeles area alone. It was quickly followed by The Fearless Vampire Killers and other films in which the actress had appeared, the only difference being that now she was given star billing. That same day, the police told reporters that they had officially ruled out any connection between the Tate and LaBianca homicides. According to the Los Angeles Times, several officers indicated they were inclined to believe the second slayings were the work of a copycat. From the start, the two investigations had proceeded separately, with different detectives assigned to each. They would continue this way, each team pursuing its own leads. They had one thing in common, though that similarity widened the distance between them. Both were operating on a basic assumption. In nearly 90% of all homicides, the victim knows his killer. In both investigations, the chief focus was now on acquaintances of the victims. In checking out the mafia rumor, the LaBianca detectives interviewed each of Lino's known business associates. All doubted the murders were mafia-originated. One man told the detectives that if the mafia had been responsible, he probably would have heard about it. It was a thorough investigation, the detectives even checking to see if the San Diego company where Lino had purchased his speedboat during their 1968 vacation was mafia-financed. It wasn't, though numerous other businesses in the Mission Bay area were allegedly backed by Jewish mafia money. They even questioned Lino's mother, who told them, he was a good boy. He never did belong to the association. The elimination of a possible mafia link, however, did not leave the LaBianca detectives without a suspect. In questioning neighbors of the pair, they learned that the house to the east, 3267 Waverly Drive, was vacant and had been for several months. Prior to that, it had been a hippie hangout. The hippies didn't interest them, but another former tenant, cross symbol Fred Gardner, did very much. From his rap sheet and from interviews, they learned that Gardner, a young attorney, has had mental problems in the past and claims he blacks out for periods of time and is not responsible for his actions. During an argument with his father, he grabbed a knife from the kitchen table and chased his father, stating that he would kill him. In September 1968, after being married only two weeks, for no apparent reason he administered a vicious beating to his wife, then grabbed a knife from the kitchen drawer and attempted to kill her. She warded off the blows and managed to escape and call the police. Booked for attempted murder, he was examined by a court-appointed psychiatrist who found he had uncontrolled aggressions of maniacal proportions. Despite this, the charge had been reduced to simple assault. He was released on probation and returned to the practice of law. Since then, Gardner had been arrested a number of times on drunk or drug charges. Following his last arrest for forging a prescription, he was released on $900 bail and promptly skipped. A warrant for his arrest had been issued on August 1st, 
nine days before the LaBianca murders. He was believed to be in New York. When the officers questioned Gardner's ex-wife, she told them she could recall seven separate occasions when Gardner visited the LaBiancas, each time returning with either money or whiskey. When she'd asked him about this, he'd allegedly replied, It's okay. I know them, and they had better give it to me or else. Had Gardner, with his pension for kitchen knives, again tried to put the bite on the LaBiancas, this time the couple saying no? The officers contacted an FBI agent in New York to see if he could determine Gardner's present whereabouts. Beloved Wife of Roman, Sharon Tate Polanski, 1943-1969. Paul Richard Polanski, their baby. Wednesday was a day of funerals. More than 150 persons attended Sharon Tate's last rites at Holy Cross Cemetery. Among those present were Kirk Douglas, Warren Beatty, Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Lee Marvin, Yul Brynner, Peter Sellers, John and Michelle Phillips. Roman Polanski, wearing dark glasses and accompanied by his doctor, broke down several times during the ceremony, as did Sharon's parents and her two young sisters, Patricia and Deborah. Many of the same people, including Polanski, later attended the services for Jay Sebring at Wee Kirk of the Heather, Forest Lawn. Additional celebrities included Paul Newman, Henry and Peter Fonda, Alex Cord, and George Hamilton, all former Sebring clients. There were fewer people and fewer flashbulbs as across the city, six of his high school classmates carried Stephen Parent's body from the small El Monte church where his services had taken place. Abigail Folger was buried near where she had grown up, in Northern California on the San Francisco Peninsula, following a requiem mass in Our Lady of the Wayside Church, which had been built by her grandparents. Wojciech Frykowski's body remained in Los Angeles until relatives in Poland could arrange for it to be returned there for burial. While the Tate victims were being interred, the police were attempting to recreate their lives, in particular, their last day. Friday, August 8th. About 8 a.m., Mrs. Chapman arrived at Shello. She did what dishes there were, then commenced her regular household chores. About 8.30, Frank Guerrero arrived to paint the room at the north end of the residence. This was to be the nursery. Before starting, Guerrero removed the screens from the windows. At 11 a.m., Roman Polanski called from London. Mrs. Chapman overheard Sharon's side of the conversation. Sharon was worried that Roman wouldn't be home in time for his birthday, August 18th. He apparently assured her that he would be back on August 12th as planned, as Sharon later told Mrs. Chapman this. Sharon informed Roman that she had enrolled him in a course for expectant fathers. Sharon received several other calls, one of them having to do with a neighbor's kitten that had strayed onto the property. Sharon had been feeding it with an eyedropper. When Terry Melcher had moved out, he'd left behind a number of cats, Sharon promising to look after them. They had since multiplied and Sharon was caring for all 26, plus two dogs, hers and Abigail's. Most of the day, Sharon wore only bikini panties and a bra. This, according to Mrs. Chapman, was her usual at-home attire in hot weather. Shortly before noon, Mrs. Chapman, noticing that there were paw prints and dog splatters on the front door, washed down the whole exterior with vinegar and water, a small detail which later would become extremely important. 
Stephen Parent had lunch at his home in El Monte. Before returning to work at the plumbing supply company, he asked his mother if she would lay out clean clothes so he could make a quick change before going to his second job at the stereo shop later that afternoon. About 12.30, two of Sharon's friends, Joanna Pettit, Mrs. Alex Cord, and Barbara Lewis arrived at Shallow for lunch. Note. This would be actress Joanna Pettit's second close brush with violent death. She had also been a friend of Janice Wiley, who, together with her roommate, Emily Hoffert, had been murdered in New York City in the summer of 1963 in what became known as the Career Girls Murder Case. End of note. Mrs. Chapman served them. It was all small talk, the women would later recall, mostly about the expected baby. About 1 p.m., Sandy Tennant called Sharon. As previously noted, Sharon told her she wasn't planning a party that evening, but did invite her to drop by, an invitation Sandy declined. If one believed all the subsequent talk, half of Hollywood was invited to 10,050 Shallow Drive for a party that night, and at the last minute changed their minds. According to Winifred Chapman, Sandy Tennant, Debbie Tate, and others close to Sharon, there was no party that night, nor was one ever planned. But LAPD probably spent a hundred man-hours attempting to locate people who allegedly attended the non-event. Having finished the first coat of paint, Guerrero left about 1.30. He didn't replace the screens, since he intended to return Monday to give the room a final coat. The police later concluded the killer, killers, either didn't notice they were off or feared entering a freshly painted room. About 2 p.m., Abigail purchased a bicycle from a shop on Santa Monica Boulevard, arranging for it to be delivered later that afternoon. About the same time, David Martinez, one of Altabelli's two gardeners, arrived at 10,050 Shallow and began work. Wojciech and Abigail arrived not long after this, joining Sharon and her guests for a late lunch. About 3 p.m., the second gardener, Tom Vargas, arrived. As he came in the gate, Abigail was driving out in her Camaro. Five minutes later, Wojciech also left, driving the Firebird. Joanna Pettit and Barbara Lewis departed about 3.30. At about that same time, Sebring's butler, Amos Russell, served Jay and his current female companion coffee in bed. Note. LAPD eventually located the girl and determined that she had not accompanied Sebring to the Tate residence that night. End of note. About 3.45, Jay called Sharon, apparently telling her he would be over earlier than expected. He later called his secretary to pick up his messages and John Madden to discuss his visit to the San Francisco salon the next day. He didn't mention to either his plans for that evening, but he did tell Madden he had spent the day hard at work on a crest for the new franchise shops. Just after Sebring called Sharon, Mrs. Chapman told her she had finished her work and was leaving for the day. Since it was so hot in the city, Sharon asked her if she would like to stay over. Mrs. Chapman declined. It was undoubtedly the most important decision she ever made. David Martinez was just leaving, and he gave Mrs. Chapman a ride to the bus stop. Vargas remained behind, completing his work. While gardening near the house, he noticed Sharon asleep on the bed in her room. When a delivery man from the air dispatch company arrived with the two blue steamer trunks, Vargas, not wishing to disturb Mrs. Polanski, signed for them. The time, 4.30 p.m., was noted on the receipt. The trunks contained Sharon's clothing, which Roman had shipped from London. 
Abigail kept her 4.30 appointment with Dr. Flicker. Before Vargas left, about 4.45, he went back to the guest house and asked Gerritsen if he would do some watering over the weekend, as the weather was extremely hot and dry. Across the city, in El Monte, Stephen Parent hurried home, changed clothes, waved to his mother, and was off to his second job. Between 5.30 and 6 p.m., Mrs. Terry Kay was backing out of her driveway at 9845 Easton Drive when she observed Jay Sebring driving down the road in his Porsche, seemingly in a hurry. Perhaps because her car was blocking his progress, he did not wave in his usual genial manner. Sometime between 6 and 6.30 p.m., Sharon's 13-year-old sister Debbie called her, asking if she could drop by that evening with some friends. Sharon, who tired easily because of her advanced pregnancy, suggested they make it another time. Between 7.30 and 8 p.m., Dennis Hurst arrived at the shallow address to deliver the bicycle Abigail had purchased in his father's shop earlier that day. Sebring, whom Hurst later identified from photographs, answered the door. Hurst saw no one else and observed nothing suspicious. Between 9.45 and 10 p.m., John Delgadio, manager of the El Coyote restaurant on Beverly Boulevard, noted J. Sebring's name on the waiting list for dinner, party of four. Delgadio didn't actually see Sebring or the others, and it is probable that he was off on the time, as waitress Kathy Palmer, who served the four, recalled they waited in the bar 15 to 20 minutes before a table was available, then after finishing dinner, left about 9.45 or 10. Shown photographs, she was unable to positively identify Sebring, Tate, Frykowski, or Folger. If Abigail was along, they must have left the restaurant before 10, as it was about this time that Mrs. Folger called the shallow number and talked to her, confirming that she planned to take the 10 a.m. United flight to San Francisco the next morning. Mrs. Folger told the police that Abigail did not express any alarm or anxiety as to her personal safety or the situation at the Polanski house. A number of people reported seeing Sharon and or Jay at the candy store, the factory, the Daisy, or various other clubs that night. None of the reports checked out. Several persons claimed to have talked by phone with one or another of the victims between 10 p.m. and midnight. When questioned, they suddenly changed their stories, or told them in such a way that the police concluded they were either confused or lying. About 11 p.m., Steve Perrin stopped at Dale's Market in El Monte and asked his friend, John Lefebvre, if he wanted to go for a ride. Perrin had been dating John's younger sister, Jean. John suggested they make it another night. About 45 minutes later, Steve Perrin arrived at the shallow address, hoping to sell William Gerritsen a clock radio. Perrin left the guest house about 12.15 a.m. He got as far as his rambler. The police also interviewed a number of other girls rumored to have been with Sebring on the evening of August 8th. Ex-girlfriend of Sebring was supposed to have been with him on 8-8-69. Not so. Last slept with him 7-5-69. Cooperative. Knew he used C. She does not. Dated him steady for three months. Knew nothing of his way-out bedroom activities. Was to go to a party at Cello that night, but went to a movie instead. It was no small assignment considering the number of girls the stylist had dated, yet none of the detectives was heard to complain. It wasn't every day they got the chance to talk to starlets, models, a Playboy centerfold, 
even a dancer in the Lido de Paris show at the Stardust Hotel in Las Vegas. There was another barometer to the fear, the difficulty the police had in locating people. To have suddenly moved a few days after a crime would, in ordinary circumstances, be considered suspicious, but not in this case. From a not untypical report, asked why she had moved right after the murders, she replied that she wasn't sure why, that like everyone else in Hollywood, she was just afraid. August 16th to 30th, 1969. Though the police told the press there had been no new developments, there were some that went unreported. After testing them for blood, Sergeant Joe Granado gave the three pieces of gun grip to Sergeant William Lee of the Firearms and Explosives Unit of SID. Lee didn't even have to consult his manuals. One look, and he knew the grip was from a high-standard gun. He called Ed Lomax, product manager for the firm that owns High Standard, and arranged to meet him at the police academy. Lomax also made a quick ID. Only one gun has a grip like that, he told Lee, the high-standard twenty-two caliber Longhorn revolver. Popularly known as the Buntline Special, patterned after a pair of revolvers Western author Ned Buntline had made for Marshal Wyatt Earp, the gun had the following specifications. Capacity, nine shots. Barrel, nine and one-half inches. Overall length, 15 inches. Walnut grips, blue finish, weight, 35 ounces. Suggested retail price, $69.95. It was, Lomax said, rather a unique revolver. Introduced in April 1967, only 2,700 had been manufactured with this type grip. Lee obtained from Lomax a list of stores where the gun had been sold, plus a photograph of the model, and LAPD began preparing a flyer which they planned to send to every police department in the United States and Canada. A few days after the Lee-Lomax meeting, SID criminalist Dwayne Wolfer went to 10,050 Shello to conduct sound tests to see whether he could verify or disprove Gerritsen's claim that he had heard neither screams nor gunshots. Using a general-level sound meter and a 22 caliber revolver, and duplicating as closely as possible the conditions that existed on the night of the murders, Wolfer and an assistant proved, one, that if Gerritsen was inside the guest house, as he claimed, he couldn't possibly have heard the shots that killed Stephen Parent, and, two, that with the stereo on, with the volume at either four or five, he couldn't have heard either screams or gunshots coming from in front of or inside the main residence. Note, when Officer Wisenhunt searched the guest house following Gerritsen's arrest, he noticed the volume control on the set was between four and five. End of note. The tests supported Gerritsen's story that he did not hear any shots that night. Yet despite Wolfer's scientific findings, there were those at LAPD who still felt that Gerritsen must have heard something. It was almost as if he had been such a good suspect, they were reluctant to admit him blameless. In a summary report on the case made up at the end of August, the Tate detectives observed, in the opinion of the investigating officers and by scientific research by SID, it is highly unlikely that Gerritsen was not aware of the screams, gunshots, and other turmoil that would result from a multiple homicide such as took place in his near proximity. These findings, however, did not absolutely preclude the fact that Gerritsen did not hear or see any of the events connected with the homicides. The evening of Saturday, August 16th, 
Roman Polanski was interviewed for several hours by LAPD. The following day, he returned to 10,050 Shallow Drive for the first time since the murders. He was accompanied by a writer and a photographer for life and Peter Herkos, the well-known psychic who had been hired by friends of Jay Sebring to make a reading at the scene. As Polanski identified himself and drove through the gate, the premises still being secured by LAPD, he commented bitterly to Thomas Thompson, the life writer and a longtime acquaintance, this must be the world-famous orgy house. Thompson asked him how long Gibby and Wojciech had been staying there. Too long, I guess, he answered. The blue bedsheet that had earlier covered Abigail Folger was still on the lawn. The bloody lettering on the door had faded, but the three letters were still decipherable. The havoc inside seemed to take him aback for a minute, as did the dark stains in the entryway, and once inside the living room, the even larger ones in front of the couch. Polanski climbed the ladder to the loft, found the videotape LAPD had returned, and slipped it into his pocket, according to one of the officers who was present. On climbing back down, he walked from room to room, here and there touching things as if he could conjure up the past. The pillows were still bunched up in the center of the bed, as they had been that morning. They were always that way when he was gone, he told Thompson, adding simply, she hugged them instead of me. He lingered a long time at the armoire, where, in anticipation, Sharon had kept the baby things. The life photographer took a number of Polaroid shots first, to check lighting, placement, angles. Usually these are thrown away after the regular pictures are taken, but Herkos asked if he might have several of them to aid in his impressions, and they were given to him, a gesture the photographer and life would very soon regret. As Polanski looked at the objects once familiar, now turned grotesque, he kept asking, why? He posed outside the front door, looking as lost and confused as if he had stepped onto one of his own sets to discover everything immutably and grossly changed. Herkos later told the press, Three men killed Sharon Tate and the other four, and I know who they are. I have identified the killers to the police and told them that these men must be stopped soon. Otherwise, they will kill again. The killers, he added, were friends of Sharon Tate, turned into frenzied homicidal maniacs by massive doses of LSD. The killings, he was quoted as saying, erupted during a black magic ritual known as Guna Guna, its suddenness catching the victims unawares. If Herkos did identify the three men to LAPD, no one bothered to make a report on it. All publicity to the contrary notwithstanding, those in law enforcement have a standard procedure for handling such information. Listen politely, then forget it. Being inadmissible as evidence, it is valueless. Also skeptical of Herkos's explanation was Roman Polanski. He would return to the house several times over the next few days, as if looking for the answer no one else had been able to give him. There was an interesting juxtaposition of stories on the B, or lead local news, page of the Los Angeles Times that Sunday. The big story, Tate, commandeered the top spot with its headline, Anatomy of a Mass Murder in Hollywood. Below it was a smaller story, its one-column head reading, La Bianca Couple, Victims of Slayer, given final rights. To the left of the Tate story, and just above an artist's drawing of the Tate premises, was a much briefer, seemingly unrelated item, chosen, one suspected, because it was small enough to fit the space. 
Its headline read, Police Raid Ranch, Arrest 26 Suspects in Auto Theft Ring. It began, 26 persons living in an abandoned western movie set on an isolated Chatsworth ranch were arrested in a daybreak raid by sheriff's deputies Saturday as suspects in a major auto theft ring. According to deputies, the group had been stealing Volkswagens, then converting them into dune buggies. The story, which did not contain the names of any of those arrested, but did mention that a sizable arsenal of weapons had been seized, concluded, The ranch is owned by George Spahn, a blind, 80-year-old semi-invalid. It is located in the Semi Hills at 12,000 Santa Susana Pass Road. Deputies, said Spahn, who lives alone in a house on the ranch, apparently knew there were people living on the set, but was unaware of their activity. They said he couldn't get around, and he was afraid of them. It was a minor story, and didn't even rate a follow-up, when a few days later, all the suspects were released, it being discovered they had been arrested on a misdated warrant. Following a report that Wilson, Madigan, Pickett, and Jones were in Canada, LAPD sent the Royal Canadian Mounted Police a want on the four men. RCMP broadcasted. Alert reporters picked it up. And within hours, the news media in the United States were heralding a break in the Tate case. Although LAPD denied that the four men were suspects, saying they were only wanted for questioning, the impression remained that arrests were imminent. There were phone calls, among them one from Madigan, another from Jones. Jones was in Jamaica and said he would fly back voluntarily if the police wished to talk to him. They admitted they did. Madigan showed up at Parker Center with his attorney. He cooperated fully, agreeing to answer any questions except those which might tend to involve him in the use or sale of narcotics. He admitted having visited Frykowski at the Shello address twice during the week before the murders, so it was possible his prints were there. On the night of the murders, Madigan said, he had attended a party given by an airline stewardess who lived in the apartment below his. He had left about 2 or 3 a.m. This was later verified by LAPD, who also checked his prints against the unmatched Laytons found at the shallow address without success. Madigan was given a polygraph and passed, as did Jones when he arrived from Jamaica. Jones said that he and Wilson had been in Jamaica from July 12th to August 17th, at which time he had flown to Los Angeles and Wilson had flown to Toronto. Asked why they had gone to Jamaica, he said they were making a movie about marijuana. Jones's alibi would have to be checked out, but after his polygraph and a negative print check, he ceased to be a good suspect. This left Herb Wilson and Jeffrey Pickett, nicknamed Pick. By this time, LAPD knew where both men were. The publicity had been bad. There was no disputing that. As Stephen Roberts, Los Angeles bureau chief for the New York Times later put it, all the stories had a common thread, that somehow the victims had brought the murders on themselves. The attitude was summed up in the epigram, live freaky, die freaky. Given Roman Polanski's affinity for the macabre, rumors of Sebring's sexual peculiarities, the presence of both Miss Tate and her former lover at the death scene while her husband was away, the anything-goes image of the Hollywood jet set, drugs, and the sudden clamp on police leaks, almost any kind of plot could be fashioned, and was. Sharon Tate was called everything from the queen of the Hollywood orgy scene to a dabbler in satanic arts, 
Polanski himself was not spared. In the same newspaper, a reader could find one columnist saying the director was so grief-stricken he could not speak, while a second had him nightclubbing with a bevy of airline stewardesses. If he wasn't personally responsible for the murders, more than one paper implied, he must know who committed them. From a National News Weekly, Sharon's body was found nude, not clad in bikini pants and a bra, as had first been reported. Sebring was wearing only the torn remnants of a pair of boxer shorts. Frykowski's trousers were down to his ankles. Both Sebring and Tate had X's carved on their bodies. One of Miss Tate's breasts had been cut off, apparently as the result of indiscriminate slashing. Sebring had been sexually mutilated. The rest was equally accurate. No fingerprints were found anywhere. No drug traces were found in any of the five bodies. And so on. Though it read like something from the old confidential, the article had appeared in time, its writer apparently having some tall explaining to do when his editors became aware of his imaginative embellishments. Angered by a multitude of slanders, Roman Polanski called a press conference on August 19th where he castigated newsmen who, for a selfish reason, wrote horrible things about my wife. There had been no marital rift, he reiterated, no dope, no orgies. His wife had been beautiful and a good person, and the last few years I spent with her were the only time of true happiness in my life. Some of the reporters were less than sympathetic to Polanski's complaints about publicity, having just learned that he had permitted life to take exclusive photos of the murder scene. Not quite exclusive. Before the magazine reached the newsstands, several of the Polaroid prints appeared in the Hollywood Citizen News. Life had been scooped by its own photographs. There were some things Polanski did not tell the press, or even his closest friends. One was that he had agreed to be polygraphed by the Los Angeles Police Department. Polanski's polygraph examination was conducted by Lieutenant Earl Deemer at Parker Center. Question. Mind if I call you Roman? My name is Earl. Answer. Sure. I will lie one or two times during it, and I will tell you after, okay? Question. Well, all right. Deemer asked Roman how he first met his wife. Polanski sighed, then slowly began talking. I first met Sharon four years ago at some kind of party Marty Ransahoff, a terrible Hollywood producer, had. The guy who makes Beverly Hillbillies and all kinds of shit. But he seduced me with his talk about art, and I contracted with him to do this film, a spoof on the vampires, you know. And I met Sharon at the party. She was doing another film for him in London at the time, staying in London alone. Ransahoff said, wait until you see our leading lady, Sharon Tate. I thought she was quite pretty, but I wasn't at that time very impressed. But then I saw her again. I took her out. We talked a lot, you know. At that time, I was really swinging. All I was interested in was to fuck a girl and move on. I had a very bad marriage, you know, years before. Not bad, it was beautiful, but my wife dumped me, so I was really feeling great because I was a success with women, and I just liked fucking around. I was a swinger, huh? So I met her a couple of more times. I knew she was with Jay. Then Ransahoff wanted me to use her in the film, and I made tests with her. Once before, I wanted to take her out, and she was being difficult, wanting to go out, not wanting to go out. So I said, fuck you, and I hung up. 
probably that was the beginning of everything, you know. Question. You sweet-talked her. Answer. Right. She got intrigued by me. And I really played it cool. And it took me long dating before... And then I started seeing that she liked me. I remember I spent a night... I lost a key. And I spent a night in her house in the same bed, you know. And I knew there was no question of making love with her. That's the type of girl she was. I mean, that rarely happens to me. And then we went on location... It was about two or three months later. When we were on location shooting the film, I asked her, Would you like to make love with me? And she said very sweetly, Yes. And then for the first time, I was somewhat touched by her, you know. And we started sleeping regularly together. And she was so sweet and so lovely that I didn't believe it, you know. I'd had bad experiences, and I didn't believe that people like that existed. And I was waiting a long time for her to show the color, right? But she was beautiful, without this phoniness. She was fantastic. She loved me. I was living in a different house. I didn't want her to come to my house. And she would say, I don't want to smother you. I only want to be with you, etc. And I said, you know how I am. I screw around. And she said, I don't want to change you. She was ready to do everything just to be with me. She was a fucking angel. She was a unique character who I'll never meet again in my life. Deemer asked about his first meeting with Sebring. It had occurred in a London restaurant, Polanski said, describing how nervous he had been and how Jay had broken the ice by saying, I dig you, man, I dig you. More important, he seemed happy to see Sharon happy. Roman had remained slightly uncomfortable through their next several meetings. But when I came to Los Angeles, started living here, he came to our parties, etc. And I started liking Jay very, very much. He was a very sweet person. Oh, I know of his hang-ups. He liked to whip-tie girls. Sharon told me about it. He tied her once to the bed. And she told me about it, and was making fun of him. To her, it was funny, but sad. And he was more and more often a guest of ours. He would just hang around, hang around. And sometimes Sharon would resent his staying too long, because he was always the last to leave, you know. I'm sure in the beginning of our relationship there was still his love for Sharon, but I think that largely it disappeared. I'm quite sure. Question. So there was no indication that Sharon went back to Sebring at any time? Answer. Not a chance. I'm the bad one. I always screw around. That was Sharon's big hang-up, you know. But Sharon was absolutely not interested in Jay. Question. Was she interested in any other men? Answer. No. There was not a chance of any other man getting close to Sharon. Question. Okay. I know you have to get on your way. We might as well start. I'll tell you how this works, Roman. Deemer explained the mechanics of the polygraph, adding, It's important for you to remain quiet. I know you talk a lot with your hands. You're emotional. You're an actor-type person, so it's going to be a little difficult for you. But when the pressure is on, I want you to remain quiet. When it's off, you can talk and even wave your arms, within reason. After instructing Polanski to confine his answers to yes and no, and to save any explanations for later, Deemer began the interrogation. Question. Do you have a valid California driver's license? Answer. Yes. Question. Have you eaten lunch today? 
Answer, no. Question, do you know who took the life of Wojciech and the others? Answer, no. Question, do you smoke cigarettes? Answer, yes. There was a long pause, then Polanski began laughing. Question, you know what you are going to do with that screwing around? I'm going to have to start over again. Answer, sorry. Question, look at the increase in your blood pressure when you start to lie about your cigarettes. Boom, 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 just like a staircase. Okay, let's start over again. Are you now in Los Angeles? Answer, yes. Question, did you have anything to do with taking the life of Wojciech and the others? Answer, no. Question, have you eaten lunch today? Answer, no. Question, do you feel any responsibility for the death of Wojciech and the others? Answer, yes, I feel responsible that I wasn't there, that is all. Question, from running this thing through your mind repeatedly, as I know you must have, who have you come up with as the target? I don't think it ever crossed your mind that Sharon might be the target, that anyone had that kind of mad on for her. Is there anyone else who was up there that you can think of who would be a target for this type of activity? Answer. I've thought everything. I thought the target could be myself. Question. Why? Answer. I mean, it could be some kind of jealousy or plot or something. It couldn't be Sharon directly. If Sharon were the target, it would mean that I was the target. It could be Jay was the target. It could be Wojciech. It could also be sheer folly. Someone just decided to commit a crime. Question. What would Sebring be doing, for instance, that would make him a target? Answer. Some money thing, maybe. I've also heard a lot about this drug thing, drug deliveries. It's difficult for me to believe. Polanski had always believed Sebring to be a rather prosperous man, yet he'd recently heard he had large debts. The indication to me is that he must have been in serious financial trouble, despite the appearances he gave. Question. That's a hell of a way to collect debts. It's no ordinary bill collector that goes up there and kills five people. Answer. No, no. What I'm talking about is, for this reason, he might have got into some dangerous areas to make money, you understand? In desperation, he may have got mixed up with illegal people, you know? Question. Eliminating Sharon and the kid, of the three remaining, you think that Sebring would be the logical target, huh? Answer. The whole crime seems so illogical. If I'm looking for a motive, I'd look for something which doesn't fit your habitual standard, with which you used to work as police, something much more far out. Deemer asked Polanski if he had received any hate mail after Rosemary's baby. He admitted he had, surmising... It could be some type of witchcraft, you know, a maniac or something. This execution, this tragedy, indicates to me it must be some kind of nut, you know. I wouldn't be surprised if I were the target, in spite of all this drug thing, the narcotics. I think the police like to jump too hastily on this type of lead, you know, because it is their usual kind of lead. The only connection I know of Wojciech with any kind of narcotic was he smoked pot. So did Jay plus cocaine. I knew he was sniffing. In the beginning, I thought it was just an occasional kick. When I discussed it with Sharon, she said, 
Are you kidding? He's been doing it for two years regularly. Question. Did Sharon mess with narcotics to any extent other than pot? Answer. No. She did take LSD before we met. Many times. And when we met, we discussed it. I took it three times. When it was legal, he added, laughing. Then, serious again, Polanski recalled the only time they had taken it together. It was toward the end of 1965. It was his third trip, and Sharon's 15th or 16th. It had begun pleasantly enough, with them talking all night. But then, in the morning, she started flipping out and screaming, and I was scared to death. And after that, she said, I told you I couldn't take it, and this is the end. And it was the end, for me and for her. But I can tell you this without question. She took no drugs at all, except for pot, and not too much. And during her pregnancy, there was no question. She was so in love with her pregnancy, she would do nothing. I'd pour a glass of wine, and she wouldn't touch it. Once more, Deemer took him through the questioning, then ended the examination, satisfied that Roman Polanski had no involvement in, or any hidden knowledge of, the murder of his wife and the others. Before leaving, Roman told him, I'm devoted now to this thing. He intended to question even his friends. But I'm going to do it slowly so they don't get suspicious. No one knows I'm here. I don't want them to know that I'm trying in any way to help the police, you know. I'm hoping in this way they'll have more sincerity. Answer. You have to go on living. Polanski thanked him, lighted a cigarette, and left. Question. Hey, I thought you didn't smoke cigarettes. But Polanski had already gone. On August 20th, three days after Peter Herkos accompanied Roman Polanski to the Shallow residence, a picture of Herkos appeared in the Citizen News. It was captioned, Famed Psychic, Peter Herkos, famed for his consultation in murder cases, including the current Sharon Tate massacre, opens Friday night at the Huntington Hartford, appearing through August 30th. Madigan and Jones had been eliminated as suspects. Wilson and Pickett remained. Because of his familiarity with the case, it was decided to send Lieutenant Deemer East to interview the two. Jeffrey Pick Pickett had been contacted through a relative, and a meeting was set up in a Washington, D.C. hotel room. The son of a prominent State Department official, Pickett appeared to Deemer to be under the influence of some narcotic, probably an excitant drug. He also had a bandaged hand. When Deemer expressed curiosity about it, Pickett vaguely replied that he had cut it on a kitchen knife. Though he agreed to a polygraph, Deemer found that Pickett couldn't remain still or follow instructions, so he interviewed him informally. He claimed that on the day of the murders, he had been working in an auto company in Sheffield, Massachusetts. Asked if he owned any weapons, he admitted he had a buck knife, purchased, he said, in Marlboro, Massachusetts, on a friend's credit card. Later, Pickett gave Deemer the knife. It was similar to the one found at Shello. He also turned over a roll of videotape, which he claimed showed Abigail Folger and Wojciech Frykowski using drugs at a party at the Tate residence. Pickett didn't say how he came into possession of the film, or what use he had intended to make of it. Accompanied by Sergeant McGann, Deemer went to Massachusetts. A check of the time cards at the auto company in Sheffield revealed that Pickett's last workday was August 1st, eight days before the homicides. Moreover, though two stores in Marlboro sold buck knives, neither had ever stocked this particular model.
Pickett's status as a suspect rose appreciably until the detectives interviewed the friend he had mentioned. Going through his credit card receipts, he produced the one for the buck knife. It had been purchased in Sudbury, Massachusetts, on August 21st, long after the murders. The friend and his wife also recalled something Pickett had apparently forgotten. He had gone to the beach with them the weekend of August 8th to 10th. Pickett was subsequently polygraphed twice. Both times it was decided he was telling the truth and was not involved. Eliminate Pickett. Flying to Toronto, Deemer interviewed Herb Wilson. Although initially reluctant to submit to a polygraph, Wilson consented when Deemer agreed not to ask any questions that might make him liable to Canadian prosecution on narcotics charges. He passed. Eliminate Wilson. The fingerprints of both Pickett and Wilson were checked against the unmatched Tate Laytons with no match. Although the first Tate investigative report, covering the period August 9th to 31st, concluded that Wilson, Madigan, Pickett, and Jones have been eliminated at the time of this report, in early September, Deemer and McGann flew to Ocho Rios, Jamaica, to check out the alibis of Wilson and Jones. The pair claimed they had been there from July 8th until August 17th, making a movie about marijuana. Interviews with realtors, servants, and airline ticket agencies supported half their story. They had been in Jamaica at the time of the murders. And it was quite possible they did have something to do with marijuana. Their only regular visitor, excluding female friends, was a pilot, who, a few weeks before, had, without explanation, quit his well-paying job with a leading airline to make unscheduled solo runs between Jamaica and the United States. As for their movie-making, however, the detectives evinced some skepticism, the maid having told them the only camera she ever saw in the house was a small Kodak. The videotape Pickett gave Deemer was viewed in the SID lab. It was decidedly different from the one previously found in the loft. Apparently filmed during the period the Polanskis were away, it showed Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Vitolt K., and an unidentified young lady having dinner in front of the fireplace of the Tate residence. The video machine was simply turned on and left to run, those present after a time seeming to forget it. Abigail wore her hair tied back in a rather severe chignon effect. She looked both older and more tired than in her other photos. Wojciech looked dissipated. Though what appeared to be marijuana was smoked, Wojciech seemed more drunk than high. At first, Abigail treated him with the exasperated affection one would accord a spoiled child. But then the mood gradually changed. In an obvious attempt to exclude Abigail, Wojciech began speaking Polish. Abigail, in turn, was playing the Grand Dame, responding to his crude jests with witty repartee. Wojciech began calling her Lady Folger. Then, as he became drunker, Lady F., Abigail talked about him in the third person, as if he wasn't present, commenting upon, with some disgust, his habit of coming down off his drug trips by getting drunk. To those viewing the tape, it must have seemed nothing more than an overly long, exceedingly boring chronicle of a domestic argument, except for two incidents, which, considering what would happen to two of those present in this very house, gave it an eeriness as chilling as anything in Rosemary's baby. As she was serving the dinner... Abigail recalled a time when Wojciech, stoned on drugs, looked into the fireplace and saw a strange shape. He had rushed for a camera, hoping to capture the image, a blazing pig's head. The second incident was, in its own way, even more disturbing. 
The microphone had been left on the table next to the roast. As the meat was being carved, it picked up, amazingly loud, over and over and over again, the sound of the knife grating on the bone. Herkos was not the only expert to volunteer a solution to the Tate homicides. On August 27th, Truman Capote appeared on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show to discuss the crime. One person, acting alone, had committed the murders, the author of In Cold Blood said authoritatively. He then proceeded to tell how and why. The killer, a man, had been in the house earlier. Something had happened to trigger a kind of instant paranoia. The man then left the premises, went home to get a knife and a gun, and returned to systematically assassinate everyone in the place. According to Capote's deductions, Stephen Parent was the last to die. From the knowledge accumulated in over a hundred interviews with convicted murderers, Capote revealed that the killer was a very young, enraged paranoid. While committing the murders, he probably experienced a sexual release, then exhausted, went home and slept for two days. Although Capote had taken up the single suspect theory, the Tate detectives had by now abandoned it. Their sole reason for adopting it in the first place, Gerritsen, was no longer a factor. Because of the number of victims, the location of their bodies, and the use of two or more weapons, they were now convinced that at least two suspects were involved. Killers. Plural. But as to their identity, they had not the slightest idea. At the end of August, there was a summing up for both the Tate and the LaBianca detectives. The first homicide investigation progress report, Tate, ran to 33 pages. Nowhere in it was there any mention of the LaBianca murders. The first homicide investigation progress report, LaBianca, was 17 pages long. Despite the many similarities between the two crimes, it contained not one reference to the Tate homicides. They remained two totally separate investigations. Although Lieutenant Bob Helder had over a dozen detectives working full-time on the Tate case, Sergeants Michael McGann, Robert Calkins, and Jess Buckles were the principal investigators. All were longtime veterans on the force, having worked their way up to the status of detective the hard way, from the ranks. They could remember when there was no police academy, and seniority was more important than education and merit examinations. They were experienced, and inclined to be set in their ways. The LaBianca team, under Lieutenant Paul LePage, consisted at various times of from six to ten detectives, with Sergeants Frank Patchett, Manuel Gutierrez, Michael Nielsen, Philip Sartucci, and Gary Broda, the principal investigators. The LaBianca detectives were generally younger, better educated, and far less experienced. Graduates of the police academy, for the most part, they were more inclined to the use of modern investigative techniques. For example, they obtained the fingerprints of almost everyone they interviewed, gave more polygraph examinations, made more modus operandi, M.O., and fingerprint runs through the California State Bureau of Criminal Investigation and Identification, C.I.I., and dug deeper into the backgrounds of the victims, even checking the outgoing calls Lino LaBianca had made from a motel while on vacation seven years ago. They were also more inclined to consider far-out theories. For example, while the Tate report didn't attempt to explain that bloody word on the front door, the LaBianca report speculated as to the meaning of the writings found inside the residence on Waverly Drive. It even suggested a connection so remote it couldn't even be called a wild guess. The report noted, 
Investigation revealed that the singing group, The Beatles' most recent album, number SWBO101, has songs titled Helter Skelter and Piggies and Blackbird. The words in the song Blackbird frequently say, Arise, Arise, which might be the meaning of rise near the front door. The idea was just sort of tossed in, by whom no one would later remember, and just as promptly forgotten. The two sets of detectives had one thing in common, however. Though to date the LaBianca team had interviewed some 150 persons, the Tate investigators more than twice that, neither was much closer to solving the case than when the bodies were first discovered. The Tate report listed five suspects, Gerritsen, Wilson, Madigan, Pickett, and Jones, all of whom had by this time been eliminated. The LaBianca report listed 15, but included Frank and Susan Struthers, Joe Dorgan, and numerous others who were never serious suspects. Of the 15, only Gardner remained a good possible, and though lacking a palm print for positive elimination, one had been found on a bank deposit slip on Lino's desk, his fingerprints had already been checked against those found in the residence with no match. The progress reports were strictly intradepartmental. The press would never see them. But already a few reporters were beginning to suspect that the real reason for the official silence was that there was nothing to report. September 1969. About noon on Monday, September 1st, 1969, 10-year-old Stephen Weiss was fixing the sprinkler on the hill behind his home when he found a gun. Stephen and his parents lived at 3627 Longview Valley Road in Sherman Oaks. Running parallel to Longview atop the hill was Beverly Glen. The gun was lying next to the sprinkler under a bush about 75 feet or halfway up the steep hill. Stephen had watched Dragnet on TV. He knew how guns should be handled. Picking it up very carefully by the tip of the barrel so as not to eradicate prints, Stephen took the gun back to his house and showed it to his father, Bernard Weiss. The senior Weiss took one look and called LAPD. Officer Michael Watson, on patrol in the area, responded to the radio call. More than a year later, Stephen would be asked to describe the incident from the witness stand. Question. Did you show him, Watson, the gun? Answer, yes. Question, did he touch the gun? Answer, yes. Question, how did he touch it? Answer, with both hands all over the gun. So much for Dragnet. Officer Watson took the cartridges out of the cylinder. There were nine, seven empty shell casings and two live rounds. The gun itself was a 22 caliber high-standard Longhorn revolver. It had dirt on it and rust. The trigger guard was broken, the barrel loose and slightly bent, as if it had been used to hammer something. The gun was also missing the right-hand grip. Officer Watson took the revolver and shells back to Valley Services Division of LAPD, located in Van Nuys, and after booking them as found evidence, turned them over to the property section, where they were tagged, placed in manila envelopes and filed away. Between September 3rd and 5th, LAPD sent out the first batch of confidential flyers on the wanted Tate gun. In addition to a photograph of a high-standard 22 caliber Longhorn revolver and a list of high-standard outlets supplied by Lomax, Deputy Chief Robert Houghton sent a covering letter which asked police to interview anyone who had purchased such a gun and to visually check the weapon to see if the original grips are intact. 
To avoid leaks to the media, he suggested the following cover story. Such a gun had been recovered with other stolen property, and the police wished to determine its ownership. LAPD sent out approximately 300 of the flyers to various law enforcement agencies in California, other parts of the United States, and Canada. Someone neglected to mail one to the Valley Services Division of the Los Angeles Police Department in Van Nuys. On September 10th, one month after the Tate murders, a large advertisement appeared in newspapers in the Los Angeles area. Reward, $25,000. Roman Polanski and friends of the Polanski family offered to pay a $25,000 reward to the person or persons who furnish information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer or murderers of Sharon Tate, her unborn child, and the other four victims. Information should be sent to Post Office Box 60048, Terminal Annex, Los Angeles, California, 90069. Persons wishing to remain anonymous should provide sufficient means for later identification, one method of which is to tear this newspaper page in half, transmit one half with the information submitted, and save the remaining half for matching up later. In the event more than one person is entitled to the reward, the reward will be divided equally between them. In announcing the reward, Peter Sellers, who had put up a portion of the money, together with Warren Beatty, Yul Brenner, and others, said, Someone must have knowledge or suspicions they are withholding, or may be afraid to reveal. Someone must have seen the blood-soaked clothing, the knife, the gun, the getaway car. Someone must be able to help. Although unannounced in the press, others had already begun their own unofficial inquiries. Sharon's father, Colonel Paul Tate, had retired from the Army in August. Growing a beard and letting his hair grow long, the former intelligence officer began frequenting the Sunset Strip, hippie pads, and places where drugs were sold, looking for some lead to the killer, killers, of his daughter and the others. The police were fearful Colonel Tate's private investigation might become a private war, since there were reports he did not go on his forays unarmed. Nor were the police happy about the reward. Besides the implication that LAPD wasn't capable of solving the case on its own, such an announcement usually yields only crackpot calls, and of these they already had a surplus. Most had come in following the release of Gerritsen, the callers blaming the murders on everyone from the Black Power movement to the Polish secret police. Their sources, imagination, hearsay, even Sharon herself, returned during a seance. One wife called the police to accuse her husband. He was evasive as to his whereabouts that night. Hustlers, hairdressers, actors, actresses, psychics, psychotics, all got into the act. The calls revealed not so much the underside of Hollywood as the underside of human nature. The victims were accused of sexual aberrations as peculiar as the minds of the persons who called them in. Complicating LAPD's task were the large number of people, often not anonymous, and in some cases very well known, who seemed anxious to implicate their friends, if not directly connecting them with the murders, at least involving them with the drug scene. There were proponents of every possible theory. The Mafia did it. The Mafia couldn't have done it because the killings were so unprofessional. The killings were intentionally unprofessional, so the Mafia wouldn't be suspected. One of the most persistent callers was Steve Brandt, a former gossip columnist. Because he had been a friend of four of the five Tate victims, 
He had been a witness at Sharon's and Roman's marriage. The police took him seriously at first, Brandt supplying considerable information on Wilson, Pickett, and their associates. But as the calls became more and more frequent, the names more and more prominent, it became obvious that Brandt was obsessed with the murders. Sure, there was a death list, and that he was next, Brandt twice attempted suicide. The first time in Los Angeles, a friend arrived in time. The second time in New York, he left a Rolling Stones concert to return to his hotel. When actress Ultraviolet called to make sure he was all right, he told her he had taken sleeping pills. She immediately called the desk man at the hotel, but by the time he reached the room, Brandt was dead. For such a well-publicized crime, there were surprisingly few confessions. It was as if the murders were so horrible that even the chronic confessors didn't want to become involved. A recently convicted felon, anxious to make a deal, did claim another man had bragged of involvement in the killings, but after investigation, the story proved bogus. One after another, leads were checked out, then eliminated, leaving the police no closer to a solution than when the murders were discovered. Though almost forgotten for a time, by mid-September, the pair of prescription glasses found near the trunks in the living room of the Tate residence had, simply by the process of attrition, become one of the most important remaining clues. Early that month, the detectives showed the glasses to various optical company representatives. What they learned was in part discouraging. The frames were a popular model, the Manhattan style, readily available, while the prescription lenses were also a stock item meaning they didn't have to be ground to order. But on the plus side, they also learned several things about the person who had worn them. Their owner was probably a man. He had a small, almost volleyball-shaped head. His eyes were far apart. His left ear was approximately one-fourth to one-half inch higher than his right ear. And he was extremely myopic. If he didn't have an extra pair, he would probably have to replace the glasses soon. A partial description of one of the Tate killers? Possibly. It was also possible that the glasses belonged to someone totally unconnected with the crime, or that they had been left behind as a false clue. It was at least something to go on. Another flyer, with the exact specifications of the prescription, was sent to all members of the American Optometric Association, the California Optometric Association, the Los Angeles County Optometric Association, and the ophthalmologists of Southern California, in hopes that it would yield more than had the flyer on the gun. Of the 131 high-standard Longhorn revolvers sold in California, law enforcement agencies had been able to locate and eliminate 105, a surprisingly large percentage, since many of the owners had moved to other jurisdictions. The search continued, but to date it hadn't yielded a single good suspect. A second gun letter was sent to 13 different gun shops in the United States, which in recent months had ordered replacement grips for the Longhorn model. Though the replies to this one wouldn't come back until much later, it too drew a blank. Nor were the LaBianca detectives having any better luck. To date, they had given 11 polygraphs. All had been negative. As a result of an M.O. run through the CII computer, the fingerprints of 140 suspects were checked. A palm print found on a bank deposit slip was checked against 2,150 suspects. And a fingerprint found on the liquor cabinet was checked against a total of 41,034 suspects, all uniformly negative. At the end of September, 
Neither the Tate nor the LaBianca detectives bothered to write up a progress report. October 1969 October 10th Two months had passed since the Tate homicides. What is going on behind the scenes in the Los Angeles police investigation, if there is such a thing, of the bizarre murder of Sharon Tate and four others, the Hollywood Citizen News asked in a front-page editorial. Officially, LAPD remained silent, as they had since their last news conference on the case on September 3rd, when Deputy Chief Houghton, while admitting that they still didn't know who had committed the murders, said the detectives had made tremendous progress. Exactly what progress, reporters asked. The pressure was building. The fear remained, if possible, even increased, owing to the suggestion, less than subtly hinted at by a popular TV commentator, that perhaps the police were covering for a person or persons prominent in the entertainment industry. Meanwhile, the leaks continued. The media reported that narcotics had been found in several places at the Tate residence, that some of the victims had been on drugs at the time they died. By October, it was also widely reported that the gun sought was a 22, though it was identified as a pistol rather than a revolver, and there was even one TV report, which the police quickly broke silence to deny, that pieces of the gun's grip had been found at the crime scene. The TV station stuck by its information despite the official denial. A 22 with a broken grip. Several times, Bernard Weiss got to wondering about that gun his son Stephen had found. Could it be the Tate murder weapon? But that was ridiculous. After all, the police themselves had the gun, and had it been the weapon, would surely have returned by now to ask more questions and search the hillside. Since turning the weapon over to them on September 1st, Weiss had heard nothing. When there was no follow-up, Stephen had taken it on himself to make a search of the area. He'd found nothing. Still, Beverly Glen wasn't all that far from Shallow Drive, just a couple of miles. But Bernard Weiss had better things to do than play detective. That was LAPD's responsibility. On October 17th, Lieutenant Helder and Deputy Chief Houghton told reporters that they had evidence which, if it could be traced, might lead to the killers, plural, of Sharon Tate and the four others. They refused to be more specific. The press conference had been called in an attempt to relieve some of the pressure on LAPD. No solid information was released, but a number of current rumors were denied. Less than a week later, on October 23rd, LAPD very hastily called another press conference to announce that they had a clue to the identity of the killer, singular, of the five Tate victims, a pair of prescription eyeglasses that had been found at the scene. The announcement was made only because several papers had that same day already printed the wanted flyer on the glasses. Approximately 18,000 eye doctors had received the flyer from their various member associations. In addition, it had been printed verbatim in the Optometric Weekly and the Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat Monthly, which had a combined national circulation of over 29,000. What was surprising was not that the story had leaked, but that it had taken so long for it to do so. Starved for solid news, the press heralded a major breakthrough in the case overlooking the obvious fact that the police had had the glasses in their possession since the day the Tate victims were discovered. Lieutenant Helder refused comment when a reporter, obviously with excellent connections inside the department, 
asked if it was true that to date the glasses flyer had yielded only seven suspects, all of whom had already been eliminated. It was indicative of the desperation of the Tate detectives that the second and last Tate progress report, prepared the day before the press conference, stated, at this time Garretson has not been positively eliminated. The Tate report, covering the period September 1st to October 22, 1969, ran to 26 pages, most of which were devoted to closing out the cases against Wilson, Pickett, et al. The LaBianca report, closed out on October 15th, was a little shorter, 22 pages, but far more interesting. In one section of the report, the detectives mentioned their use of the CII computer. A M.O. run on all crimes where the victims were tied is presently being run. Future runs will be made concentrating on the peculiarities of the robberies, used gloves, wore glasses, or disabled the phone. Robberies, plural. Wore glasses, disabled the phone. The phone at the LaBianca residence was not disabled, nor was there evidence that a LaBianca assailant wore glasses. These references were to Tate. The conclusion is inescapable. The LaBianca detectives had decided, on their own and without consulting the Tate detectives, to see if they could solve the Tate as well as the LaBianca case. The second LaBianca report was interesting for still another reason. It listed 11 suspects, the last of whom was one Manson, Charles. Part 2. The Killers. You couldn't meet a nicer group of people. Leslie Van Houten, describing the Manson family to Sergeant Michael McGann. At 12 o'clock, a meeting around the table for a seance in the dark, with voices out of nowhere, put on especially by the children for a lark. The Beatles, Cry Baby Cry, White Album. You have to have a real love in your heart to do this for people. Susan Atkins, telling Virginia Graham why she stabbed Sharon Tate. October 15th to 31st, 1969. The physical distance between Parker Center, headquarters of the Los Angeles Police Department, and the Hall of Justice, which houses the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, is four blocks. That distance can be traversed in the time it takes to dial a telephone. But it isn't always that easy. Though LAPD and LASO cooperate on investigations that involve both jurisdictions, there exists between them a certain amount of jealousy. One of the LaBianca detectives would later admit that he and his fellow officers should have checked with LASO homicide detectives in mid-August to see if they had any similar murders. But it wasn't until October 15th, after most of their other leads had evaporated, that they did so. When they did, they learned of the Hinman murder. And unlike Sergeant Buckles of the Tate team, they found the similarities striking enough to merit further investigation. There had been some recent developments in the Hinman case, Sergeants Whiteley and Gunther told them. Less than a week before, Inyo County officers had raided isolated Barker Ranch, located in an extremely rugged, almost inaccessible area south of Death Valley National Monument. The raid, based on charges ranging from grand theft to arson, had netted 24 members of a hippie cult known as the Manson family. Many of these same people, including their leader, Charles Manson, a 34-year-old ex-con with a long and checkered criminal history, had also been arrested in an earlier raid conducted by LASO, 
which had occurred on August 16th at Spawn's Movie Ranch in Chatsworth. During the Barker Raid, which took place over a three-day period, two young girls had appeared out of the bushes near a road some miles from the ranch, asking the officers for protection. They claimed they had been attempting to flee the family and were afraid for their lives. One was named Stephanie Schramm, the other Kitty Lutzinger. Whiteley and Gunther had been looking for Kitty Lutzinger ever since learning that she was a girlfriend of Bobby Beausoleil, the suspect in the Hinman murder. Informed of her arrest, they drove 225 miles to Independence, the Inyo County seat, to question her. Kitty, a freckled, frightened 17-year-old, was five months pregnant with Beausoleil's child. Though she had lived with the family, she apparently was not trusted by them. When Beausoleil disappeared from Spawn Ranch in early August, no one would tell her where he had gone. Only after several weeks did she learn that he had been arrested, and much later, that he had been charged with the murder of Gary Hinman. Questioned about the murder, Kitty said she had heard that Manson had sent Beausoleil and a girl named Susan Atkins to Hinman's home to get money from him. A fight had ensued, and Hinman had been killed. Kitty couldn't recall who told her this, just that it was the talk at the ranch. She did recall, however, another conversation in which Susan Atkins told her and several other girls that she had been in a fight with a man who had pulled her hair and that she had stabbed him three or four times in the legs. Susan Atkins had been arrested in the Barker raid and booked under the name Sadie Mae Glutz. She was still in custody. On October 13th, the day after they talked to Kitty, Sergeants Whiteley and Gunther questioned her. She told them that she and Bobby Beausoleil were sent to Gary Hinman's house to get some money he had supposedly inherited. When he wouldn't give it to them, Beausoleil pulled out a knife and slashed Hinman's face. For two days and two nights, the pair had taken turns sleeping so Hinman wouldn't escape. Then on their last evening at the residence, while she was in the kitchen, she had heard Gary say, Don't, Bobby. Hinman then staggered into the kitchen, bleeding from a chest wound. Even after this, Hinman didn't die. After wiping the house of prints, not effectively, since both a palm print and a fingerprint belonging to Beausoleil were found, they were going out the front door when they heard Hinman moaning. Beausoleil went back in, and she heard Gary cry out, Oh no, Bobby, please don't. She also heard a sound like gurgling as when people are dying. Beausoleil then hot-wired Hinman's 1965 Volkswagen bus, and they drove back to Spawn Ranch. Whiteley and Gunther asked Susan if she would repeat her statement on tape. She declined. She was transported to the San Dimas Sheriff's Station, where she was booked for suspicion of murder. Susan Atkins's statement, unlike that of Kitty Lutzinger, did not implicate Manson in the Hinman murder. Nor, contrary to what Kitty had said, did Susan admit to having stabbed anyone. Whiteley and Gunther strongly suspected she was telling only what she thought they already knew. Nor were the two LaBianca detectives very impressed. Hinman had been close to the Manson family. Several of its members, including Beausoleil, Atkins, even Manson himself, had lived with him at various times in the past. In short, there was a link. But there was no evidence that Manson or any of his followers knew the LaBiancas or the people at 10,050 Shallow Drive. Still, it was a lead, and they proceeded to check it out. Kitty had been released into the custody of her parents, who had a local address, and they interviewed her there. From LASO, Inyo County officials, Manson's parole officer, and others 
They began assembling names, descriptions, and fingerprints of persons known to belong to or associate with the family. Kitty had mentioned that while the family was still living at Spawn, Manson had tried to enlist a motorcycle gang, the Straight Satans, as his personal bodyguard. With the exception of one biker named Danny, the group had laughed at Manson. Danny had stuck around for several months. On learning that the motorcycle gang hung out in Venice, California, the LaBianca detectives asked Venice PD if they could locate a straight Satan named Danny. Something in Kitty Lutzinger's statement puzzled Whiteley and Gunther. At first, they thought it was just a discrepancy. But then they got to wondering. According to Kitty, Susan Atkins had admitted stabbing a man three or four times in the legs. Gary Hinman hadn't been stabbed in the legs. But Wojciech Frykowski had. Although rebuffed once before, on October 20th, the sheriff's deputies again contacted the Tate detectives at LAPD, telling them what they had learned. It is possible to measure the Tate detectives' interest with some exactness. Not until October 31st, 11 days later, did they interview Kitty Lutzinger. November 1st to 12th, 1969. November was a month for confessions, which initially no one believed. After being booked for the Hinman murder, Susan Denise Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie Mae Glutz, was moved to Sybil Brand Institute, the women's house of detention in Los Angeles. Note, a.k.a. police shorthand for also known as. T.N. means true name. End of note. On November 1st, after completing orientation, she was assigned to Dormitory 8000 and given a bunk opposite one Ronnie Howard. Miss Howard, a buxom former call girl, who over her thirty-some years had been known by more than a dozen and a half aliases, was at present awaiting trial on a charge of forging a prescription. On the same day Susan moved into Dormitory 8000, one Virginia Graham did also. Miss Graham, herself an ex-call girl with a sizable number of AKAs, had been picked up for violating her parole. Although they hadn't seen each other for five years, Ronnie and Virginia had not only been friends and business associates in the past, going out on calls together, but Ronnie had married Virginia's ex-husband. As their work assignments, Susan Atkins and Virginia Graham were given jobs as runners, carrying messages for the prison authorities. In the slow periods when there wasn't much work, they would sit on stools in control, the message center, and talk. At night, after lights out, Ronnie Howard and Susan talked also. Susan loved to talk, and Ronnie and Virginia proved rapt listeners. On November 2, 1969, one Steve Zabriskie appeared at the Portland, Oregon Police Department and told Detective Sergeant Richard that a Charlie and a Clem had committed both the Tate and LaBianca murders. He had heard this, the 19-year-old Zabriskie said, from Ed Bailey and Vern Plumley, two hippie types from California, whom he had met in Portland. Zabriskie also told Richard that Charlie and Clem were at present in custody in Los Angeles on another charge, Grand Theft Auto. Bailey had told him something else, Zabriskie said, that he had personally seen Charlie shoot a man in the head with a 45 caliber automatic. This had occurred in Death Valley. Sergeant Richard asked Zabriskie if he could prove any of this. Zabriskie admitted he couldn't. However, his brother-in-law, Michael Lloyd Carter, 
had also been present during the conversations and would back him up if Sergeant Richard wanted to talk to him. Sergeant Richard didn't. Since Zabriskie did not have last names, nor did he have anything concrete to establish that he was telling the truth, Sergeant Richard, according to the official report, did not place any credence on this interview and did not notify the Los Angeles Police Department. The girls in Dormitory 8000 called Sadie Mae Glutz, as Susan Atkins insisted on being known, Crazy Sadie. It wasn't just that ridiculous name. She was much too happy considering where she was. She would laugh and sing at inappropriate times. Without warning, she would stop whatever she happened to be doing and start go-go dancing. She did her exercises sans underpants. She bragged that she had done everything sexual that could be done, and on more than one occasion propositioned other inmates. Virginia Graham thought she was sort of a little girl lost, putting on a big act so no one would know how frightened she really was. One day, while they were sitting in the message center, Virginia asked her, What are you in for? First-degree murder, Susan matter-of-factly replied. Virginia couldn't believe it. Susan looked so young. In this particular conversation, which apparently took place on November 3rd, Susan said little about the murder itself, only that she felt a co-defendant, a boy who was being held in the county jail, had squealed on her. In questioning Susan, Whiteley and Gunther hadn't told her that it was Kitty Lutzinger who had implicated her, and she presumed the snitch was Bobby Beausoleil. The next day, Susan told Virginia that the man she was accused of killing was named Gary Hinman. She said that she, Bobby, and another girl were involved. The other girl hadn't been charged with the murder, she said, though she had been in Sybil Brand not too long ago on another charge. Right now she was out on bail and had gone to Wisconsin to get her baby. Note. She was referring to Mary Bruner, first member of the family, who had had a child by Manson. At this time, the police were unaware of her involvement in the Hinman homicide. End of note. Virginia asked her, Well, did you do it? Susan looked at her and smiled and said, Sure. Just like that. Only the police had it wrong, she said. They had her holding the man while the boy stabbed him, which was silly because she couldn't hold a big man like that. It was the other way around. The boy held him and she had stabbed him four or five times. What stunned Virginia, she would later say, was that Susan described it just like it was a perfectly natural thing to do every day of the week. Susan's conversations were not limited to murder. Subjects ranged from psychic phenomena to her experiences as a topless dancer in San Francisco. It was while there, she told Virginia, that she met a man, this Charlie. He was the strongest man alive. He had been in prison, but had never been broken. Susan said she followed his orders without question. They all did, all the kids who lived with him. He was their father, their leader, their love. It was Charlie, she said, who had given her the name Sadie Mae Glutz. Virginia remarked that she didn't consider that much of a favor. Charlie was going to lead them to the desert, Susan said. There was a hole in Death Valley. Only Charlie knew where it was. But deep down inside, in the center of the earth, there was a whole civilization. And Charlie was going to take the family, the chosen few, and they were going to go to this bottomless pit and live there. 
Charlie, Susan confided to Virginia, was Jesus Christ. Susan, Virginia decided, was nuts. On the night of Wednesday, November 5th, a young man who might have been able to provide a solution to the Tate-LaBianca homicides ceased to exist. At 7.35 p.m., officers from Venice PD, responding to a telephone call, arrived at 28 Clubhouse Avenue, a house near the beach rented by a Mark Ross. They found a youth, approximate age 22, nicknamed Zero, true name unknown, lying on a mattress on the floor in the bedroom. Deceased was still warm to the touch. There was blood on the pillow and what appeared to be an entrance wound in the right temple. Next to the body was a leather gun case and an eight-shot twenty-two caliber Ivor and Johnson revolver. According to the other persons present, a man and three girls, Zero had killed himself while playing Russian roulette. The stories of the witnesses, who identified themselves as Bruce Davis, Linda Baldwin, Sue Bartell, and Catherine Gillies, and who said they had been staying at the house while Ross was away, tallied perfectly. Linda Baldwin stated that she had been lying on the right side of the mattress, Zero on the left side, when Zero noticed the leather case in a stand next to the bed and remarked, Oh, here's a gun. He removed the gun from the case, Miss Baldwin said, commenting, There's only one bullet in it. Holding the gun in his right hand, he had then spun the cylinder, placed the muzzle against his right temple, and pulled the trigger. The others, in various parts of the house, had heard what sounded like a firecracker popping, they said. When they entered the bedroom, Miss Baldwin told them, Zero shot himself, just like in the movies. Bruce Davis admitted he picked up the gun. They had then called the police. The officers were unaware that all those present were members of the Manson family, who had been living at the Venice residence since their release following the Barker Ranch raid. Since when questioned separately, all told essentially the same story, the police accepted the Russian roulette explanation and listed the cause of death as suicide. They had several very good reasons to suspect that explanation, although apparently no one did. When Officer Jerome Bowen later dusted the gun for latents, he found no prints, nor were there prints on the leather gun case. And when they examined the revolver, they found that Zero had really been bucking the odds. The gun contained seven live rounds and one spent shell. It had been fully loaded with no empty chambers. A number of family members, including Manson himself, were still in jail in Independence. On November 6th, LaBianca detectives Patchett and Sartucci, accompanied by Lieutenant Burdick of SID, went there to interview them. Patchett asked Manson if he knew anything about either the Tate or LaBianca homicides. Manson replied, no, and that was that. Patchett was so unimpressed with Manson that he didn't even bother to write up a report on the interview. Of the nine family members the detectives talked to, only one rated a memorandum. About 1.30 that afternoon, Lieutenant Burdick interviewed a girl who had been booked under the name Leslie Sangston. During this conversation, Burdick noted, I inquired of Miss Sangston if she was aware that Sadie, Susan Atkins, was reportedly involved in the Gary Hinman homicide. She replied that she was. I inquired if she was aware of the Tate and LaBianca homicides. She indicated that she was aware of the Tate homicide, but seemed unfamiliar with the LaBianca homicide. I asked her if she had any knowledge of persons in her group who might possibly be involved in either the Tate or LaBianca homicides. 
She indicated that there were some things that caused her to believe someone from her group might be involved in the Tate homicide. I asked her to elaborate on the things, but she declined to indicate what she meant and stated that she wanted to think about it overnight and that she was perplexed and didn't know what to do. She did indicate she might tell me the following day. However, when Burdick again questioned her the next morning, she stated she had decided she did not want to say any more about the subject, and the conversation was terminated. Though the interviews yielded nothing, the LaBianca detectives did pick up one possible lead. Before leaving Independence, Patchett asked to see Manson's personal effects. Going through the clothing Manson had been wearing when arrested, Patchett noted that he used leather thongs both as laces in his moccasins and in the stitching of his trousers. Patchett took a sample thong from each back to Los Angeles for comparison with the thong used to tie Lino LaBianca's hands. A leather thong is a leather thong, SID in effect told him. Though the thongs were similar, there was no way to tell whether they had come from the same piece of leather. LAPD and LASO have no monopoly on jealousy. To a certain extent, it exists between almost all law enforcement agencies, and even within some. The Homicide Division of the Los Angeles Police Department is a single room, 318, on the third floor of Parker Center. Although it is a large room, rectangular in shape, there are no partitions, only two long tables, all the detectives working at either one or the other. The distance between the Tate and LaBianca detectives was only a few feet. But there are psychological as well as physical distances, and as noted, while the Tate detectives were largely the old guard, the LaBianca detectives were for the most part the young upstarts. Also, there was apparently some residual bitterness stemming from the fact that several of the latter, rather than the former, had been assigned to L.A.'s last big publicity case, Sirhan Sirhan's assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. In short, there was a certain amount of jealousy involved, and a certain lack of communication. As a result, none of the LaBianca detectives walked those few feet to tell the Tate detectives that they were following a lead which might connect the two homicides. No one informed Lieutenant Helder, who was in charge of the Tate investigation, that they had gone to Independence and interviewed one Charles Manson, who was believed involved in a strikingly similar murder, or that while there, one of his followers, a girl who went by the name of Leslie Sangston, had admitted that someone in their group might be involved in the Tate homicides. The LaBianca detectives continued to go it on their own. Had Leslie Sangston, true name Leslie Van Houten, yielded to that impulse to talk, she could have told the detectives a great deal about the Tate murders, but even more about the LaBianca slayings. But by this time, Susan Atkins was already doing enough talking for both of them. On Thursday, November 6th, at about 4.45 p.m., Susan had walked over to Virginia Graham's bed and sat down. They had finished work for the day, and Susan, Sadie, was in a talkative mood. She began rapping about the LSD trip she had taken, karma, good and bad vibrations, and the Hinman murder. Virginia cautioned her that she shouldn't be talking so much. She knew a man who had been convicted just on what he told a cellmate. Susan replied, Oh, I know. I haven't talked about it to anyone else. You know, I can look at you and there's something about you. I know I can tell things to you. Also, she wasn't worried about the police. They weren't all that good. You know, there's a case right now. They are so far off the track, they don't even know what's happening. 
Virginia asked, What are you talking about? That one on Benedict Canyon. Benedict Canyon? You don't mean Sharon Tate? Yeah. With this, Susan seemed to get very excited. The words came out in a rush. You know who did it, don't you? No. Well, you're looking at her. Virginia gasped. You've got to be kidding. Susan just smiled and said, Uh-uh. Note. The Atkins-Graham-Howard conversations have been taken from LAPD's taped interviews with Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard. My interviews with both, their trial testimony, and my interview with Susan Atkins. There are, of course, minor variations in wording. Major discrepancies will be noted. End of note. Later, Virginia Graham would be unable to remember exactly how long they had talked. She would estimate it as being between 35 minutes and an hour, maybe longer. She would also admit confusion as to whether some details were discussed that afternoon or in subsequent conversations, and the order in which some topics came up. But the content she remembered, that, she would later say, she would never forget as long as she lived. She asked the big question first. Why, Sadie? Why? Because, Susan replied, we wanted to do a crime that would shock the world, that the world would have to stand up and take notice. But why the Tate House? Susan's answer was chilling in its simplicity. It is isolated. The place had been picked at random. They had known the owner, Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, from about a year back, but they didn't know who would be there, and it didn't matter. One person or ten, they had gone there prepared to do everybody in. Note. Virginia Graham had seen the owner of the house, Rudy Altabelli, interviewed on TV, and although she couldn't remember his name, she knew it wasn't Terry Melcher. This was one reason why, initially, she was inclined to disbelieve Susan Atkins' story. Susan, however, insisted Melcher was the owner, apparently believing he was. End of note. In other words, Virginia asked, you didn't know Jay Sebring or any of the other people? No, Susan replied. Do you mind me asking questions? I mean, I'm curious. Susan didn't mind. She told Virginia that she had kind brown eyes, and if you look through a person's eyes, you can see the soul. Virginia told Susan she wanted to know exactly how it had come down. I'm dying of curiosity, she added. Susan obliged. Before leaving the ranch, Charlie had given them instructions. They had worn dark clothing. They also brought along a change of clothes in the car. They drove up to the gate, then drove back down to the bottom of the hill, parked the car, and walked back up. Virginia interrupted. Then it wasn't just you? Oh, no, Susan told her. There were four of us. In addition to herself, there were two other girls and a man. When they reached the gate, Susan continued, he cut the telephone wires. Virginia again interrupted to ask whether he wasn't worried he'd cut the electrical wires, extinguishing the lights, and alerting the people that something was wrong. Susan replied, oh no, he knew just what to do. Virginia got the impression, less from her words than from the way she said them, that the man had been there before. Susan didn't mention how they got past the gate. She said they had killed the boy first. 
When Virginia asked why, Susan replied that he had seen them. And he had to shoot him. He was shot four times. At this point, Virginia became somewhat confused. Later, she would state, I think she told me. I'm not positive. I think she said that this Charles shot him. Earlier, Virginia had got the impression that although Charlie had instructed them what to do, he hadn't come along. But now it appeared he had. What Virginia didn't know was that there were two men named Charles in the family, Charles Manson and Charles Tex Watson. The complications this simple misunderstanding would later cause would be immense. On entering the house, Susan didn't say how they got in, they saw a man on the couch in the living room and a girl, whom Susan identified as Ann Folger, sitting in a chair reading a book. She didn't look up. Virginia asked her how she knew their names. We didn't, Susan replied. Not until the next day. At some point, the group apparently split up, Susan going on to the bedroom, while the others stayed in the living room. Sharon was sitting up in bed. Jay was sitting on the edge of the bed talking to Sharon. Oh, really? Virginia asked. What did she have on? She had on a bikini bra and panties. You're kidding. And she was pregnant? Yeah. And they looked up, and were they surprised? Wow, wasn't there some kind of a big hassle? No, they were too surprised, and they knew we meant business. Susan skipped on. It was as if she was tripping out, jumping abruptly from one subject to another. Suddenly they were in the living room, and Sharon and Jay were strung up with nooses around their necks, so if they tried to move they would choke. Virginia asked why they'd put a hood over Sebring's head. We didn't put any hood over his head, Susan corrected her. And that's what the paper said, Sadie. Well, there wasn't any hood, Susan reiterated, getting quite insistent about it. Then the other man, Frykowski, broke and ran for the door. He was full of blood, Susan said, and she stabbed him three or four times. He was bleeding, and he ran to the front part, out the door and onto the lawn. And would you believe that he was there hollering, Help! Help! Somebody please help me! And nobody came? Bluntly, without elaboration, then we finished him off. Virginia wasn't asking any questions now. What had begun as a little girl's fairy tale had become a horror-filled nightmare. There was no mention of what had happened to Abigail Folger or Jay Sebring, only that Sharon was the last to die. On saying this, Susan laughed. Susan said that she had held Sharon's arms behind her, and that Sharon looked at her and was crying and begging, Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to have my baby. I want to have my baby. Susan said she looked Sharon straight in the eye and said, Look, bitch. I don't care about you. I don't care if you're going to have a baby. You had better be ready. You're going to die, and I don't feel anything about it. Then Susan said, In a few minutes I killed her, and she was dead. After killing Sharon, Susan noticed there was blood on her hand. 
She tasted it. Wow, what a trip, she told Virginia. I thought, to taste death and yet give life. Had she ever tasted blood? She asked Virginia. It's warm and sticky and nice. Virginia managed to ask a question. Hadn't it bothered her to kill Sharon Tate with her pregnant? Susan looked at Virginia quizzically and said, Well, I thought you understood. I loved her. And in order for me to kill her, I was killing part of myself when I killed her. Virginia replied, Oh, yeah, I do understand. She had wanted to cut out the baby, Susan said, but there hadn't been time. They wanted to take out the eyes of the people and squash them against the walls and cut off their fingers. We were going to mutilate them, but we didn't have a chance to. Virginia asked her how she felt after the murders. Susan replied, I felt so elated, tired, but at peace with myself. I knew this was just the beginning of Helter Skelter. Now the world would listen. Virginia didn't understand what she meant by Helter Skelter, and Susan tried to explain it to her. However, she talked so quickly and with such obvious excitement that Virginia had trouble following. As Virginia understood it, there was this group, these chosen people, that Charlie had brought together, and they were elected, this new society, to go out all over the country and all over the world to pick out people at random and execute them, to release them from this earth. You have to have a real love in your heart to do this for people, Susan explained. Four or five times while Susan was talking, Virginia had to caution her to keep her voice down, that someone might hear. Susan smiled and said she wasn't worried about that. She was very good at playing crazy. After they'd left the Tate residence, Susan continued, she discovered that she had lost her knife. She thought maybe the dog had got it. You know how dogs are sometimes. They had thought about going back to look for it, but had decided against it. She had also left her handprint on a desk. It dawned on me afterwards, Susan said, but my spirit was so strong that obviously it didn't even show up, or they would have had me by now. As Virginia understood it, after leaving the Tate residence, they had apparently changed clothes in the car. They had driven some distance, stopping at a place where there was a fountain or water outside, to wash their hands. Susan said a man came outside and wanted to know what they were doing. He started to holler at them. Anne, Susan said, guess who he was? I don't know, Virginia replied. It was the sheriff of Beverly Hills. Virginia said she didn't think Beverly Hills had a sheriff. Well, Susan said petulantly, the sheriff or mayor or something. The man had started to reach into the car to grab the keys, and Charlie turned on the key. Boy, we made it. We laughed all the way, Susan said, adding, if he had only known. For a moment, Susan remained silent. Then, with her little girl's smile, she asked, You know the other two the next night? Virginia flashed on the grocery store owner and his wife, the LaBiancas. Yeah, she said. Was that you? Susan winked and said, 
What do you think? But that's part of the plan, she continued. And there's more. But Virginia had heard enough for one day. She excused herself to go take a shower. Virginia would later recall thinking, she's got to be kidding. She's making all this up. This is just too wild, too fantastic. But then she remembered what Susan was in for, first-degree murder. Virginia decided not to say anything to anyone. It was just too incredible. She also decided, if possible, to avoid Susan. The following day, however, Virginia walked over to Ronnie Howard's bed to tell her something. Susan, who was lying on her own bed, interrupted. Virginia, Virginia, remember that beautiful cat I was telling you about? I want you to dig on his name. Now listen, his name is Manson, man's son. She repeated it several times to make sure Virginia understood. She said it in a tone of childlike wonder. She just couldn't keep it to herself any longer. It was just too much. The first time she and Ronnie Howard were alone together, Virginia Graham told her what Susan Atkins had said. Hey, what do you do? She asked Ronnie. If this is true, my God, this is terrible. I wish she hadn't told me. Ronnie thought Sadie was making it all up. She could have gotten it out of the papers. The only way to know for sure, they decided, would be for Virginia to question her further, to see if she could learn something that only one of the killers would know. Virginia had an idea how she could do this without arousing Susan's suspicions. Though she hadn't mentioned it to Susan Atkins, Virginia Graham had more than a passing interest in the Tate homicides. She had known Jay Sebring. A girlfriend, who was working as a manicurist for Sebring, had introduced them at the Luau some years ago, shortly after Sebring opened his shop on Fairfax. It was a casual thing. He was neither client nor friend, just someone you'd nod and say hi to at a party or in a restaurant. It was an odd coincidence, Susan copping out to her. But there was another coincidence, even odder. Virginia had been to 10,050 Shallow Drive. Back in 1962, she and her then-husband and another girl had been looking for a quiet place, away from things, and had learned 10,050 Shallow Drive was up for lease. There had been no one there to show them around, so they had just looked in the windows of the main house. She could remember little about it, only that it looked like a red barn. But the next day at lunch, she told Susan about having been there and asked if the interior was still decorated in gold and white. It was just a guess. Susan replied, uh-uh, but didn't elaborate. Virginia then told her about knowing Sebring, but Susan didn't appear very interested. This time Susan wasn't as talkative, but Virginia persisted, picking up miscellaneous bits and pieces of information. They'd met Terry Melcher through Dennis Wilson, one of the Beach Boys' rock group. They, Charlie, Susan, and the others, had lived with Dennis for a time. Virginia got the idea they were hostile toward Melcher, that he was too interested in money. Virginia also learned that the Tate murders had taken place between midnight and one in the morning, that Charlie is love, pure love, and that when you stab someone, it feels good when the knife goes in. She also learned that besides the Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca murders, there's more, and more before.
There's also three people out in the desert. Bits and pieces. Susan had said nothing that would establish whether she was or wasn't telling the truth. That afternoon, Susan walked over and sat down on Virginia's bed. Virginia had been leafing through a movie magazine. Susan saw it and began talking. The story she related, Virginia would say much later, was even more bizarre than what Susan had already told her. It was so incredible that Virginia didn't even mention it to Ronnie Howard. No one would believe it, she decided. For Susan Atkins, in one spurt of non-stop talking, gave her a death list of persons who would be murdered next. All were celebrities. She then, according to Virginia, described in gruesome detail exactly how Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Tom Jones, Steve McQueen, and Frank Sinatra would die. On Monday, November 10th, Susan Atkins had a visitor at Sybil Brand, Sue Bartell, who told her about the death of Zero. After Sue left, Susan told Ronnie Howard. Whether she embellished it or not is unknown. According to Susan, one of the girls had been holding Zero's hand when he died. When the gun went off, he climaxed all over himself. Susan didn't seem disturbed to hear of Zero's death. On the contrary, it excited her. Imagine how beautiful to be there when it happened, she told Ronnie. On Wednesday, November 12th, Susan Atkins was taken to court for a preliminary hearing on the Hinman murder. While there, she heard Sergeant Whiteley testify that it was Kitty Lutzinger, not Bobby Beausoleil, who had implicated her. On being returned to jail, Susan told Virginia that the prosecution had a surprise witness, but she wasn't worried about her testimony. Her life's not worth anything. That same day, Virginia Graham received some bad news. She was being transferred to Corona Women's Prison to serve out the rest of her sentence. She was to leave that afternoon. While she was packing, Ronnie came up to her and asked, What do you think? I don't know, Virginia replied. Ronnie, if you want to take it from here. I've been talking to that girl every night, Ronnie said. Boy, she's really weird. She could have, you know. Virginia had forgotten to ask Susan about the word pig, which the papers had said was printed in blood on the door of the Tate residence. She suggested that Ronnie question her about this, and anything else she could think of that might indicate whether she was telling the truth. In the meantime, they decided not to mention it to anyone else. That same day, the LaBianca detectives received a call from Venice PD. Were they still interested in talking to one of the straight Satans? If so, they were questioning one, a guy named Al Springer, on another charge. The LaBianca detectives had Springer brought over to Parker Center, where they interviewed him on tape. What he told them was so unexpected, they had trouble believing it. For Springer said that on August 11th or 12th, two or three days after the Tate homicides, Charlie Manson had bragged to him about killing people, adding, We knocked off five of them just the other night. November 12th to 16th, 1969. LaBianca detectives Nielsen, Gutierrez, and Patchett interviewed Springer on tape in one of the interrogation cubicles of LAPD homicide. Springer was 26, 5 feet 9, weighed 130 pounds, and except for his dusty, ragged colors, as bikers' jackets are known, was surprisingly neat for a member of an outlaw motorcycle band.
Springer, it turned out, prided himself on his cleanliness, which was one of the reasons he personally hadn't wanted to have anything to do with Manson and his girls, he said. But Danny DiCarlo, the club treasurer of the straight Satans, had got mixed up with them and had missed meetings. So around August 11th or 12th, he, Springer, had gone to Spawn Ranch to persuade Danny to come back. And there were flies all over the place, and they were just like animals up there. I couldn't believe it, you know. You see, I'm really clean, really. Some of the guys get pretty nasty, but I myself, I like to keep things clean. Well, in comes this Charlie. He wanted Danny up there because Danny had his colors on his back. And all these drunkards, they come up there and start harassing the girls and messing with the guys. And Danny walks out with his straight Satan colors on and nobody messes with Charlie, see? So I tried to get Danny to come back. And Charlie is standing there and Charlie says, he says, now wait a minute. Maybe I can give you a better thing than you've got already. I said, what's that? He says, move up here. You can have all the girls you want. All the girls, he says, are all yours, at your disposal, anything. And he's a brainwashing type guy. So I said, well, how do you survive? How do you support these 20, 30 fucking broads, man? And he says, I got them all huffing for me. He said, I go out at night and I do my thing. Well, I said, what's your thing, man? Run your trip down. He figured me being a motorcycle rider and all, I'd accept anything, including murder. So he starts getting in my ear and says how he goes up and he lives with the rich people. And he calls the police pigs and whatnot. He knocks on the door, they'll open the door, and he'll just drive in with his cutlass and start cutting them up, see? Question. This is what he told you? Answer. This is what he told me verbally, right to my face. Question. You're kidding. Is that what you really heard? Answer. Yeah. I said, when's the last time you did it? He says, well, we knocked off five of them, he says, just the other night. Question. So he told you that? Charlie stated that he knocked over five people? Answer. Right. Charlie and Tex. Springer couldn't recall the exact word Manson used. It wasn't people. It might have been pigs or rich pigs. The LaBianca detectives were so startled they had Springer run through it a second time and a third. Answer. I think you've got your man right here. I really do. Question. I'm pretty sure we have. But in this day and age of feeding people their rights, if we're going to make a decent case on him, we can't do it with his statement. Exactly when had Manson told him this? Well, it was the first time he went to Spawn, and that was either August 11th or 12th. He couldn't remember which. But he sure remembered the scene. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I've never been to a nudist colony, or I've never seen real idiots on the loose. Everywhere he looked, there were naked girls. Maybe a dozen and a half were of age, 18 or over, but about an equal number weren't. The young ones were hiding in the bushes. Charlie had told him he could have his pick. He'd also offered to buy him a dune buggy and a new motorcycle if he would stay. It was true turnabout. Charlie Manson, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, trying to tempt a straight Satan. That Springer resisted the temptation may have been due in part to his knowledge that other members of his gang had been there on previous occasions. Everybody got sick of catching the clap. The ranch was just out of hand. During Springer's first visit... Manson had demonstrated his prowess with knives, 
in particular a long sword. Springer had seen Charlie throw it maybe 50 feet, sticking it, say, eight times out of ten. This was the sword, Springer said, that Charlie used when he put the chop to people. Did you ever get a corpse with his ear cut off? Springer abruptly asked. Apparently one of the detectives nodded, as Springer said, Yeah, there's your man. Charlie had told him about cutting some guy's ear off. If Danny would come in, he could tell them about it. The only problem was, Danny's scared of these creeps. They've tried to kill him already. Springer had also mentioned a tax and a clem. The detectives asked him to describe them. Clem was a certified idiot, Springer said. He was an escapee from Camarillo, a state mental hospital. Whatever Charlie said, Clem would parrot it. As far as he could tell, Charlie and Tex are the ones that had the brains out there. Unlike Clem, Tex didn't say much. He kept his mouth shut, real tight. He was real clean-cut. His hair was a little long, but he was just like a college student. Tex seemed to spend most of his time working on dune buggies. Charlie had a thing about dune buggies. He wanted to fix them with a switch on the dash that would turn the taillights off. Then when the CHP, California Highway Patrol, pulled them over to sight them, there would be two guys armed with shotguns in the back. And as the CHPs came up alongside, pal, blow them up. Question. Why did he say he wanted to do that? Answer. Ah, he wants to build up a thing where he can be leader of the world. He's crazy. Question. Does he have a name for his group? Answer. The family. Back to that sword. Could Springer describe it? Yeah, it was a cutlass, a real pirate sword. Up until a few months ago, Springer said, it had belonged to the ex-president of the Straight Satans, but then it had disappeared, and he guessed one of the members had given it to Charlie. He had heard from Danny that the sword had been used when they had killed a guy, called Henland, I believe it was. This was the guy who had his ear cut off. What did he know about the Henland killing, they asked. According to Danny, a guy named Bosley and one or two other guys had killed him, Springer said. Danny had told him that, almost beyond a reasonable doubt, he could prove that Bowsley or Bosley or whatever killed this guy, and evidently Charlie was in on it or something. Well, anyway, somebody cut his ear. Clem had also told him, Springer, how they had cut some fucking idiot's ear off and wrote on the wall and put the panther's hand or paw up there to blame the panthers. Everything they did, they blamed on the niggers, see. They hate niggers, because they had killed a nigger prior to that. Five. Plus Henland, Hinman. Plus a nigger. Total thus far, seven. The detectives were keeping track. Had he seen any other weapons while at Spawn? Yeah, Charlie had shown him a whole gun rack full the first time he went up there. There were shotguns, deer rifles, 45 caliber handguns, and I heard talk of and was told by Danny that they had a 22 buntline long barrel, a nine round. This came from Danny, and he knows guns. And this is what was supposed to have killed that uh, Black Panther. Charlie had told him about it. As Al remembered it, Tex had burned this black guy in a deal for a whole bunch of grass. When Charlie refused to give back the guy's money, the black had threatened to get all his panther brothers up to Spawn Ranch and wipe out the place. So Charlie pulls out a gun. Somebody else was going to do it, 
but Charlie pulls out a gun and he points it at the guy. And it goes click, 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 click. And the gun didn't go off four or five times. And the guy stood up and he said, Ha! You coming here with an empty gun on me? And Charlie says, Click, bam, in the heart area somewhere. And he told me this personally right to my face. And that was what the bunt line was used on, the long barrel job. After the murder, which had occurred somewhere in Hollywood, the Panthers' buddies took the carcass off supposedly to some park, Griffith Park or one of them. This is all hearsay, but it is hearsay right from Charlie. Answer. Now, did anybody have their refrigerator road on? There was a sudden silence. Then one of the LaBianca detectives asked, Why does this come up? Answer. Because he told me something about writing something on the refrigerator. Question. Who said he wrote it on the refrigerator? Answer. Charlie did. Charlie said they wrote something on the fucking refrigerator in blood. Question. What did he say he wrote? Answer. Something about pigs or niggers or something like that. If Springer was telling the truth, and if Manson wasn't just bragging to impress him, then it meant that Manson was probably also involved in the LaBianca murders, bringing the total thus far to nine. But the LaBianca detectives had good reason to doubt this statement, for contrary to the press reports, death to pigs hadn't been printed in blood on the refrigerator door. The phrase had actually been printed on the living room wall, as had the word rise. What had been printed on the refrigerator door was helter-skelter. While Springer was being questioned, one of the LaBianca detectives left the room. When he returned a few minutes later, another man was with him. Question. Here's another partner, Mike McGann, Al. Let me shove this table down here. He just came in, so you might want to bring him up on what we've talked about. McGann was one of the Tate detectives. The LaBianca detectives had finally decided to walk those few feet and share what they had learned. By this time, the temptation to say, hey, look what we found, must have been irresistible. They had Springer run through it again. McGann listened, unimpressed. Springer then began talking about still another murder, that of a cowboy named Shorty, whom he had met when he first visited the ranch. How and what had he heard about Shorty's death, one of the detectives asked. I heard about that from Danny. Danny heard from the girls that Shorty got to know too much and hear too much and got worried too much, and so they just cut his arms and his legs and his head off. Danny had felt very badly about this because he had liked Shorty. Ten. If. Question. To McGann. Anything you want to get in on this? Question. Yeah, I want to ask about why they killed this colored, the panther, supposedly. When did this take place, do you know? Springer wasn't sure, but he thought it was about a week before he went up to the ranch. Danny could probably tell them about that. Question. Did you connect up the five people that Charlie said that he killed in early August with any particular crime? Answer. Right, the Tate crime. Question. You put that together? Answer. Right. They began zeroing in. Anybody else present when Charlie supposedly confessed those five murders to you? No. 
Was Tate ever specifically mentioned? No. Did you see anyone at the ranch who wore glasses? No. Ever see Manson with a gun? No, only a knife. He's a knife freak. Were the cutlass and the other knives you saw sharpened on both sides? He thought so, but wasn't sure. Danny had mentioned Charlie sending them out someplace to be sharpened. Ever see any rope up there? Yeah, they used all kinds of rope. Do you know there's a $25,000 reward on the Tate murders? Yeah, and I sure could use it. Springer had been to Spawn Ranch three times, his second visit occurring the day after his first. He'd lost his hat riding out and had gone back to look for it, but then his bike had broken down and he'd had to stay overnight to repair it. Again, Charlie, Tex, and Clem had worked on him to join them. His third and last visit had taken place on the night of Friday, August 15th. The detectives were able to establish the date because it was the night before the sheriff's raid on Spawn Ranch. Also, the straight Satans held their club meetings on Friday, and they had discussed getting Danny away from Charlie. A lot of the guys in the club were going to go up there and beat his ass, teach him a lesson not to brainwash our members. Eight or nine of them did go to Spawn that night, but it didn't happen that way. Charlie had conned some of them. The girls had lured others into the bushes. And when they started breaking up things, Charlie told them that he had guns trained on them from the rooftops. Springer had one of his brothers check the gun rack that Charlie had shown him on his first visit. A couple of rifles were missing. After a time, they'd left, in a cloud of exhaust fumes and threats, leaving one of their more sober members, Robert Reinhardt, to bring Danny back the following day. But the next morning, the police were all over the place, arresting not only Charlie and the others, but also DiCarlo and Reinhardt. All had been released a few days later, and, according to Danny, Shorty had been killed not long after this. Fearing he would be next, Danny had taken his truck and split to Venice. Late one night, Clem and Bruce Davis, another of Charlie's boys, had snuck up on the truck. They had succeeded in prying open the door when Danny heard them and grabbed his forty-five. Danny felt sure, Springer said, that they had come to off him. And he was scared now, not only for himself, but because his little boy was living with him. Springer thought Danny was frightened enough to talk to them. Talking to the Venice detectives would be no problem, since he's known them most of his life. But getting him to come down to Parker Center was something else. Springer, however, promised he'd try to get Danny to come in voluntarily, if possible, the next day. Springer didn't have a phone. The detectives asked if there was somewhere they could call without putting any heat on you. Is there some gal you see quite a bit of? Answer. Just my wife and kids. The clean, neat, monogamous Springer didn't conform to their stereotype of a biker. As one of the detectives remarked, you're going to give the motorcycle gang a whole new image in the world. Although Al Springer appeared to be telling the truth, the detectives were not greatly impressed with his story. He was an outsider, not a member of the family. Yet the very first time he goes to Spawn Ranch, Manson confesses to him that he's committed at least nine murders. It just didn't make sense. It appeared far more likely that Springer was just regurgitating what Danny DiCarlo, who had been close to Manson, had told him. It was also possible that Manson, to impress the cyclists, had bragged about committing murders in which he wasn't even involved. 
McGann, of the Tate team, was so unimpressed that later he wouldn't even be able to recall having heard of Springer, much less talking to him. Although the interview had been taped, the LaBianca detectives had only one portion transcribed, and that not the section on their case, but the part, less than a page in length, with Manson's alleged confession, we knocked off five of them just the other night. The LaBianca detectives then filed the tape and that single page in their tubs, as police case files are known. With other developments in the case, they apparently forgot them. Yet the Springer interview of November 12, 1969, was in a sense an important turning point. Three months after the Tate-LaBianca homicides, LAPD was finally seriously considering the possibility that the two crimes were not, as had long been believed, unrelated. And the focus of at least the LaBianca investigation was now on a single group of suspects, Charlie Manson and his family. It appears almost certain that had the LaBianca detectives continued to pursue the Lutzinger-Springer-DiCarlo lead, they would eventually, even if uninformed of Susan Atkins's confessions, have found the killers of Stephen Parent, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate, and Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. In the meantime, two people, one at Sybil Brand, the other at Corona, were each independent of the other, trying to tell someone what they knew about the killings, and having no luck. There is some confusion as to exactly when Susan Atkins first discussed the Tate-LaBianca murders with Ronnie Howard. Whatever the date, there was a similarity in the way it came about. Susan first admitting her participation in the murder of Hinman, then in her little girl manner, attempting to surprise Ronnie with other, more startling revelations. According to Ronnie, one evening Susan came over, sat down on her bed, and started rapping about her experiences. Susan said that she had dropped acid, taken LSD, many times. In fact, she had done everything there was to do. There was nothing left. She'd reached a stage where nothing shocked her anymore. Ronnie replied that there wasn't much that would shock her either. Since age 17, when she'd been sent to a federal penitentiary for two years for extortion, Ronnie had seen quite a lot. I bet I could tell you something that would really blow your mind, Susan said. I don't think so, Ronnie responded. You remember the Tate deal? Yes. I was there. We did it. Really, anyone can say that. No, I'll tell you. And tell her Susan Atkins did. Susan would flash from one thought to another with such rapidity that Ronnie was often left confused. Two, Ronnie's recollection of details, especially names, dates, places, was not as good as Virginia's. Later, she would be unsure, for example, exactly how many persons were involved. At one time, she thought Susan said five. Herself, two other girls, Charlie, and a guy who stayed in the car. Another time it was four, with no mention of the man in the car. She knew a girl named Katie was involved in a murder, but which murder, Hinman, Tate, or LaBianca, Ronnie wasn't sure. But she also recalled details Susan either hadn't told Virginia or Virginia had forgotten. Charlie had a gun. The girls all had knives. Charlie had cut the telephone wires, shot the boy in the car, then awakened the man on the couch, Frykowski, who looked up to see a gun pointing in his face. 
Sharon Tate's plea and Susan's brutal response were nearly identical in both Ronnie's and Virginia's accounts. However, the description of how Sharon died differed somewhat. As Ronnie understood it, two other people held Sharon while, to quote Susan, I proceeded to stab her. It felt so good the first time I stabbed her, and when she screamed at me, it did something to me, sent a rush through me, and I stabbed her again. Ronnie asked where. Susan replied, in the chest, not the stomach. How many times? I don't remember. I just kept stabbing her until she stopped screaming. Ronnie knew a little bit about the subject, having once stabbed her ex-husband. Did it feel sort of like a pillow? Yeah, Susan replied, pleased that Ronnie understood. It was just like going into nothing, going into air. But the killing itself was something else. It's like a sexual release, Susan told her, especially when you see the blood spurting out. It's better than a climax. Remembering Virginia's question, Ronnie asked Susan about the word pig. Susan said that she printed the word on the door after first dipping a towel in Sharon Tate's blood. At one point in the conversation, Susan asked, Don't you remember that guy that was found with the fork in his stomach? We wrote Arise and Death to Pigs and Helter Skelter in blood. Was that you and your same friends? Ronnie asked. No, just three this time. All girls? No. Two girls and Charlie. Linda wasn't in on this one. Susan rapped on about a variety of subjects. Manson, he was both Jesus Christ and the devil. Helter Skelter, Ronnie admittedly didn't understand it, but thought it meant you have to be killed to live. Sex, the whole world is like one big intercourse. Everything is in and out. Smoking, eating, stabbing how she would play crazy to fool the psychiatrists. All you have to do is act normal, Ronnie advised her. Children. Charlie had helped deliver her baby, whom she had named Zizazos Zadfrak Glutz. Within a couple of months after his birth, she had begun fellating him. Bikers. With the motorcycle gangs on their side, they would really throw some fear into the world. And murder. Susan loved to talk about murder more you do it, the better you like it. Just the mention of it seemed to excite her. Laughingly, she told Ronnie about some man whose head we cut off, either out in the desert or in one of the canyons. She also told Ronnie, there are eleven murders that they will never solve. And there were going to be more, many more. Although Charlie was in jail, in Indio, most of the family was still free. As Susan talked, Ronnie Howard realized that there were still some things that could shock her. One was that this little girl, who was 21 but often seemed much younger, probably had committed all these murders. Another was Susan's assertion that this was only the beginning, that more murders would follow. Ronnie Howard would later state, I'd never informed on anyone in the past, but this one thing I could not go along with. I kept thinking that if I didn't say anything, these people would probably be set free. They were going to pick other houses, just at random. I just couldn't see all those innocent people being killed. It could have been my house next time, or yours, or anyone's. Ronnie decided she 
and just had to tell the police. It would seem that if one were in jail, talking to a policeman would be relatively easy. Ronnie Howard discovered otherwise. The dates, again, are vague, but according to Ronnie, she told cross-symbol Sergeant Broom, one of the female deputies at Sybil Brand, that she knew who had committed the Tate and LaBianca murders, that the person who told her had been involved and was now in custody, but that the other killers were on the loose, and unless they were apprehended soon, there would be more murders. Note, since neither the deputy nor her lieutenant was available for interviews, therefore making it impossible to present their version of these incidents, pseudonyms have been used for both. End of note. Ronnie wanted permission to call LAPD. Sergeant Broom said she would pass the request to her superior, cross-symbol Lieutenant Johns. After waiting three days and hearing nothing, Ronnie asked Sergeant Broom about the request. Lieutenant Johns didn't think there was anything to the story, the sergeant told her. By this time, the lieutenant had probably forgotten all about it, Sergeant Broom said, adding, Why don't you do the same thing, Ronnie? By now, according to Ronnie, she was literally begging. People were going to die unless she warned the police in time. Could you call for me? Ronnie asked. Please. It was against the rules for a guard to make a call for an inmate, Sergeant Broom informed her. On Thursday, November 13th, biker Danny DiCarlo came down to Parker Center where he was interviewed by the LaBianca detectives. It was not a long interview, and it was not taped. Although DiCarlo had a great deal of information about the activities of Manson and his group, having lived with them for more than five months, at no time had Charlie admitted to him that he was involved in either the Tate or the LaBianca murders. This made the officers even more skeptical about Springer's tale, and it was probably at this point that they decided to write him off as a reliable source. When Springer came back the following week, he was given some photos to identify, but was asked few questions. Arrangements were made to interview DiCarlo on tape, and at length, on Monday, November 17th. He was to come in about 8.30 in the morning. Ronnie Howard kept after Sergeant Broom, who finally mentioned the subject to Lieutenant Johns a second time. The lieutenant suggested that she ask Ronnie for some details. Sergeant Broom did, and Ronnie, still without identifying the people involved, told her a little of what she had learned. The killers knew Terry Melcher. They had shot the boy, Stephen Parent, first, four times, because he saw them. Sharon Tate had been the last to die. The word pig had been written in her blood. They were going to cut out Sharon's baby, but didn't. Again, she stressed that more killings were planned. Sergeant Broom apparently misunderstood Ronnie, for she told Lieutenant Johns that they had cut out the baby. And Lieutenant Johns knew this wasn't true. Your informant is lying, Sergeant Broom informed Ronnie, and told her why. Ronnie, now almost hysterical, told Sergeant Broom that she had misunderstood what she'd said. Could she talk to Lieutenant Johns herself? But Sergeant Broom decided that she had already bothered the lieutenant enough. As far as she was concerned, she informed Ronnie, the matter was closed. There was an irony here, although Ronnie Howard was unaware of it and wouldn't have appreciated it had she known. Sergeant Broom dated one of the Tate detectives. But apparently they had other, more important things to talk about. 
Virginia Graham was having her own troubles with bureaucracy. Although, unlike Ronnie Howard, she was not yet completely convinced that Susan Atkins was telling the truth, the possibility that there might be more murders worried her, too. On November 14th, two days after her transfer to Corona, she decided she had to tell someone what she had heard. There was one person at the prison she knew and trusted, Dr. Vera Dreiser, a staff psychologist. In order for an inmate to talk to a staff member at Corona, it is necessary to fill out a blue slip or request form. Virginia made one out, writing on it, Dr. Dreiser, it is very important that I speak with you. The form was returned with a notation stating that Miss Graham should fill out another blue slip to see Dr. Owens, administrator of the unit to which she was assigned. But Virginia didn't want to speak to Dr. Owens. Again, she requested a personal interview with Dr. Dreiser. The request was granted, but not until December. And by then, the whole world knew what Virginia Graham had wanted to tell Dr. Dreiser. November 17, 1969. Danny DiCarlo was due at LAPD homicide at 8.30 that Monday morning. He didn't show. The detectives called his home first, getting no answer, then his mother's number. No, she hadn't seen Danny, and she was a little worried. Danny was supposed to leave his son with her so she could babysit while he went down to LAPD, but he hadn't even called. It was possible DiCarlo had skipped. He had been very frightened when the detectives talked to him the previous Thursday. There was another possibility, one that they didn't want to think about. That same day, Ronnie Howard had a court appearance in Santa Monica on the forgery charge. When inmates of Sybil Brand are due in court, they are first transported to the men's jail on Boucher Street, where a bus picks them up and delivers them to the assigned departments. Before the arrival of the bus, there are usually a few minutes during which each girl is permitted to make one call from a payphone. Ronnie saw her chance and got in line. However, time began running out, and there were still two girls ahead of her. She paid each 50 cents to let her call first. Ronnie called the Beverly Hills Police Department and asked to speak to a homicide detective. When one came on the line, she gave him her name and booking number and told him she knew who had committed the Tate and LaBianca murders. The officer said those cases were being handled by the Hollywood Division of LAPD and suggested she call there. Ronnie then called Hollywood PD, giving a second homicide officer the same information. He wanted to send someone over immediately, but she told him she would be in court the rest of the day. She hung up, however, before the officer could ask which court she would be in. All day in court, Ronnie Howard had the feeling that she was being watched. She was sure the two men, sitting in the back of the courtroom, were homicide detectives and expected at any minute they would arrange to speak to her. But they never did. When court adjourned, she was taken by bus back to Sybil Brand, Dormitory 8000, and Susan Atkins. Shortly before 5 p.m., Danny DiCarlo arrived at LAPD Homicide. He had been on his way downtown earlier when he noticed he was low on gas and had pulled into a service station. On leaving, he had made an illegal turn, had been spotted by a black and white, and after the officers checked and found he had some outstanding traffic tickets, had been hauled in. It had taken all day to secure his release. Unlike Al Springer, 
Danny DiCarlo looked, talked, and acted like a biker. He was short, five feet four, weighed 130 pounds, had a handlebar mustache, tattoos on both arms, and burn scars on one arm and both legs from motorcycle pileups. Wary, frequently glancing back over his shoulder, as if expecting to find someone there, he spoke in a colorful jargon that the interviewing officers, Nielsen, Gutierrez, and McGann, unconsciously adopted. Now 25, he had been born in Toronto, then given U.S. citizenship after serving four years in the Coast Guard. His job? Weapons expert. Currently, he was in business with his father, selling firearms. When it came to the guns at Spawn Ranch, the detectives couldn't have found a better source. When he wasn't getting drunk and chasing girls, which he admitted occupied most of his time, he looked after the weapons. He not only cleaned and repaired them, he slept in the gun room where they were kept. When a weapon was taken out, Danny knew about it. He also knew a great deal about Spawn's movie ranch, which was located in Chatsworth, not more than 20 miles from downtown Beverly Hills, yet seemingly a world away. Once, William S. Hart, Tom Mix, Johnny Mac Brown, and Wallace Beery had made movies here. It was said that Howard Hughes had come to Spawn to oversee personally the filming of portions of The Outlaw, and the rolling hills behind the main buildings provided settings for Duel in the Sun. Now, except for an occasional Marlboro commercial or a Bonanza episode, the main business was renting horses to weekend riders. The movie sets, Longhorn Saloon, Rock City Cafe, Undertaking Parlor, Jail, which fronted on Santa Susana Pass Road, were old now, run down, as was George Spawn, the 81-year-old near-blind owner of the ranch. For years, Ruby Pearl, a one-time circus bareback rider turned horse wrangler, had run the riding stable part of the business for George, getting hay, hiring and firing cowboys, making sure they looked after the horses and stable, and kept their hands off the two young girls who came for riding lessons. Almost sightless, George depended on Ruby, but at the end of the day she went home to a husband and another life. Over the years, George had sired ten children, each of whom he had named after a favorite horse. He could recall in detail the namesakes, but was less clear about the kids. All lived elsewhere, and only a few visited him with any regularity. When the Manson family arrived in August 1968, George was living alone in a filthy trailer, feeling old, lonely, and neglected. This was long before Danny DiCarlo became involved with the family, but he had often heard the tale from those who were there. Manson, who originally asked Spawn's permission to stay for a few days, but neglected to mention that there were 25 to 30 people with him, assigned Squeaky to look after George. Squeaky, true name Lynette Fromm, had been with Manson more than a year at that time, having been one of the first girls to join him. She was thin, red-headed, covered with freckles. Though 19, she looked much younger. DiCarlo told the detectives, she had George in the palm of her hand. She cleaned for him, cooked for him, balanced his checkbook, made love with him. Question, unbelievingly. She did? That old son of a gun. Answer, yeah. Charlie's trip was to get George, so he had so much faith in Squeaky that come time for George to go off into the happy hunting ground, he'd turn the ranch over to Squeaky. That was their thing. Charlie'd always tell her what to tell George, and she'd report back to Charlie anything anyone else told him. Squeaky maintained that she was George's eyes. 
According to DiCarlo, they saw only what Charlie Manson wanted them to see. Possibly because he suspected, possibly because his own children on their occasional visits strongly resisted the idea, George never did get around to willing the property to Squeaky, which, the detective surmised, was probably why he was still alive out at Spawn Ranch. George Spawn had frustrated one of Charlie's plans. Danny DiCarlo had played along with, then failed to come through on another. Manson schemed to get the motorcycle gangs to join him in terrorizing society, as DiCarlo put it. Danny had met Manson in March 1969, just after separating from his wife. He had gone to Spawn to repair some bikes and had stayed. I had a ball, he later admitted. Manson's girls had been taught that having babies and caring for men were their sole purpose in life. DiCarlo liked being cared for, and the girls, at least at first, appeared very affectionate toward Donkey Dan, a nickname they had bestowed upon him because of certain physical endowments. Note. Manson told DiCarlo that because he, Manson, was less amply endowed, he needed DiCarlo to keep the girls from running away. This sounds like a Manson con, though DiCarlo maintains it was true. End of note. There were problems. Charlie was against drinking. Danny liked nothing better than to swill beer and lie in the sun. Later he testified that while at Spawn he was smashed, probably 90% of the time. And with the exception of a couple of special sweeties, DiCarlo eventually tired of most of the girls. They would always try preaching to me. It was always the same shit Charlie preached to them. With the August 15th visit of the Straight Satans, Manson must have realized that he would never succeed in getting the bikers to join him. After that, Danny was ignored, left out of family conferences, while the girls denied him their favors. Though he went to Barker Ranch with the group, he stayed only three days. He split, DiCarlo said, because he had begun to believe all the murder talk he had heard, and because he had strong suspicions that unless he left, he might be next. After that, he said, I started watching my back. When the LaBianca detectives had talked to DiCarlo the previous Thursday, he'd promised to try to locate Manson's sword. He turned it over to Sergeant Gutierrez, who booked it as the personal property of Manson, Charles M. Probable crime, 187 PC. Murder. The sword had accumulated a history. A few weeks after Danny moved to Spawn, the president of the Straight Satans, George Knoll, a.k.a. 86 George, had visited him. Manson had admired George's sword and had conned him out of it by promising to pay a $20 traffic ticket George owed. According to Danny, the sword became one of Charlie's favorite weapons. He had a metal scabbard built for it next to the steering wheel of his personal dune buggy. When the straight Satans came to get Danny the night of August 15th, they spotted the sword and reclaimed it. On learning that it was dirty, that is, had been used in a crime, they had broken it in half. It was in two pieces when DiCarlo handed it over to Gutierrez. Overall length, 20 inches. Blade length, 15 inches. The width of its razor-sharp blade, the tip of which had been honed on both sides, was one inch. This was the sword, according to DiCarlo, that Manson had used to slice Gary Hinman's ear. From DiCarlo, the detectives now learned that, in addition to Bobby Beausoleil and Susan Atkins, three others had been involved in the murder of Hinman. Manson, Mary Bruner, and Bruce Davis. 
De Carlo's primary source was Beausoleil, who on returning to Spahn after the murder had bragged to De Carlo about what he had done. Or, as Danny put it, he came back with the big head the next day, you know, just like he got him a cherry. The story, as De Carlo claimed Beausoleil had related it to him, went as follows. Mary Bruner, Susan Atkins, and Bobby Beausoleil had dropped in on Hinman, bullshitting about old times and everything like that. Bobby then asked Gary for all his money, saying they needed it. When Gary said he didn't have any money, Bobby pulled out a gun, a 9mm Polish Radom automatic, and started pistol-whipping him. In the scuffle, the gun went off, the bullet hitting no one but ricocheting through the kitchen. LASO found a 9mm slug lodged under the kitchen sink. Beausoleil then called Manson at Spawn Ranch and told him, You'd better get up here, Charlie. Gary ain't cooperating. Note. Since the Hinman residence in Malibu and Spawn's movie ranch in Chatsworth were in the same dialing area, this was not a toll call. Therefore, the telephone company kept no record of it. End of note. A short time later, Manson and Bruce Davis arrived at the Hinman residence. Puzzled and hurt, Gary pleaded with Charlie, asking him to take the others and leave. He didn't want any trouble. He couldn't understand why they were doing this to him. They had always been friends. According to DiCarlo, Charlie didn't say anything. He just hit him with the sword. Whack. Cut part of his ear off, or all of it. Hinman's left ear had been split in half. So Gary went down, and was really going through some changes about losing his ear. Manson gave him a choice, sign over everything he had, or die. Manson and Davis then left. Though Beausoleil did obtain the pink slips, California automobile ownership papers, on two of Hinman's vehicles, Gary continued to insist he had no money. When more pistol whipping failed to convince him, Bobby again called Manson at Spawn, telling him, we ain't going to get nothing out of him, he ain't going to give up nothing, and we can't just leave. He's got his ear hacked off, and he'll go to the police. Manson replied, Well, you know what to do. And Beausoleil did it. Bobby said he went up to Gary again, took the knife and stuck him with it. He said he had to do it three or four times. Hinman was really bleeding, and he was gasping for air, and Bobby said he knelt down next to him and said, Gary, you know what? You got no reason to be on earth anymore. You're a pig, and society don't need you. So this is the best way for you to go, and you should thank me for putting you out of your misery. Then Hinman made noises in his throat, his last gasping breath, and wow, away he went. Question. So Bobby told him he was a pig? Answer. Right. You see, the fight against society was the number one element in this. Question. Skeptically. Yeah, we'll get into his philosophy and all that bullshit later. They never did. DiCarlo went on. Before leaving the house, they wrote on the wall, White Piggy or Whitey or Kill the Piggies, something along that line. Beausoleil also dipped his hand in Hinman's blood and, using his palm, made a paw print on the wall. The plan was to push the blame onto the Black Panthers, who used the paw print as their symbol. Then they hot-wired Hinman's Volkswagen microbus and his Fiat station wagon and drove both back to Spawn Ranch, where Beausoleil bragged about his exploits to DiCarlo. Later, 
Apparently fearful that the palm print might be identifiable, Beausoleil returned to the Hinman residence and attempted, unsuccessfully, to wipe it off the wall. This was several days after Hinman's death, and Beausoleil later told DiCarlo that he could hear the maggots eating away on Gary. Note. Beausoleil, Bruner, and Atkins went to Hinman's residence on Friday, July 25, 1969. Manson slashed Hinman's ear sometime late that night. Hinman was not killed, however, until Sunday, July 27th, and it was not until the following Thursday, July 31st, that his body was discovered by LASO, following a report from a friend who had been trying to reach Hinman for several days. End of note. As killers, they had been decidedly amateurish. Not only was the palm print identifiable, so was a latent fingerprint Beausoleil had left in the kitchen. They kept Hinman's Volkswagen and his Fiat at the ranch for several days, where a number of people saw them. Note. Ironically, on July 28th, two LASO deputies, Olmsted and Grapp, visited Spahn Ranch on another matter. While there, they saw the Fiat, ran a spot check on the license, and learned that it belonged to Gary Hinman. Grapp knew Hinman. He also knew he was a friend of the people at Spahn Ranch, and therefore didn't feel there was anything suspicious about the station wagons being there. At this time, although Hinman was dead, his body had not yet been discovered. After the discovery of the body on July 31st, LASO put out a want on Hinman's vehicles. Grapp didn't learn of it, or Hinman's death, until much later. If he had known, of course, he could have directed the investigation to Spahn Ranch and the Manson family months before Kitty Lutzinger implicated Atkins and the others. End of note. Hinman had played bagpipes, a decidedly uncommon musical instrument. Beausoleil and the girls took his set back to Spahn Ranch, where for a time they remained on a shelf in the kitchen. DiCarlo, for one, had tried to play them. And Beausoleil did not discard the knife, but continued to carry it with him. It was in the tire well when he was arrested on August 6th, driving Hinman's Fiat. DiCarlo drew a picture of the knife Beausoleil claimed he had used to stab Hinman. It was a pencil-thin miniature buoy, with an eagle on the handle and a Mexican inscription. It tallied perfectly with the knife recovered from the Fiat. DiCarlo also sketched the 9mm radom, which as yet hadn't been recovered. The detectives asked him what other handguns he had seen at Spawn. Answer. Well, there was a 22 bunt line. When they did that Black Panther, I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to clean it. I didn't want to be nowhere around it. DiCarlo claimed he didn't know whose gun it was, but, he said, Charlie always used to carry it in a holster on the front of him. It was more or less always with him. Sometime, around July, maybe June, the gun just popped up. When was the last time he saw it? I know I didn't see it for at least a week before the raid. The Spawn Ranch raid had taken place on August 16th. A week earlier would be August 9th, the date of the Tate homicides. Question. Did you ever ask Charlie, where's your gun? Answer. He said I just gave it away. He liked it, so I figured it was maybe just stashed. The detectives had DiCarlo draw the bunt line. It was nearly identical with the photo of the high-standard Longhorn model sent out in the LAPD flyer. Later, DiCarlo was shown the flyer and asked, Does this look like the gun you mentioned? 
Answer. It sure does. Question. What's the difference between that gun and the gun that you saw? Answer. No difference at all. Only the rear sight blade was different. It didn't have any. The detectives had DiCarlo run down what he knew about the murder of the Black Panther. Springer had first mentioned the killing to them when they interviewed him. In the interim, they had done some checking and had come up with a slight problem. No such murder had ever been reported. According to DiCarlo, after Tex burned the guy for $2,500 on a grass deal, the Panther had called Charlie at Spawn Ranch, threatening that if he didn't make good, he and his brothers were going to wipe out the whole ranch. That same night, Charlie and a guy named TJ went to the Panther's place in North Hollywood. Charlie had a plan. He put the 22 bunt line in his belt and back. On a signal, TJ was to yank out the gun, step out from behind Charlie, and plug the Panther. Nail him right there. Only TJ had chickened out, and Manson had to do the shooting himself. Friends of the Black, who were present when the shooting occurred, had later dumped the body in Griffith Park, Danny said. Danny had seen the $2,500 and had been present the next morning when Manson criticized T.J. for backing down. DiCarlo described T.J. as a really nice guy. His front was trying to be one of Charlie's boys, but he didn't have it inside. T.J. had gone along with Manson on everything up to this, but he told him, I don't want to have nothing to do with snuffing people. A day or two later, he fled in the wind. Question. Who else got murdered up there? What about Shorty? Do you know anything about that? There was a long pause. Then, that was my ace in the hole. Question, how so? Answer, I was going to save that for the last. Question, well, might as well clear the thing up now. Has Charlie got something he can smear on you that... Answer, no, no way at all. Nothing. One thing did worry DiCarlo, however. In 1966, he had been convicted of a felony, smuggling marijuana across the Mexican border, a federal charge. He was currently appealing the sentence. He was also under indictment on two other charges. Along with Al Springer and several other straight Satans, he had been charged with selling a stolen motorcycle engine, which was a local charge, and giving false information while purchasing a firearm using an alias and not disclosing that he had a prior felony conviction, which was federal. Manson was still on parole from a federal pen. So what if they send me to the same place? I don't want to feel a shank in my back and find that little son of a bitch behind me. Question. Let me explain something to you, Danny, so you know where you stand. We're dealing with a guy here who we are pretty sure is responsible for about 13 murders, some of which you don't know about. The figure 13 was just a guess, but DiCarlo surprised them by saying, I know about, I'm pretty sure he did Tate. Question. Okay, we've talked about the Panther. We've talked about Gary Hinman. We're going to talk about Shorty. And you think he did Tate. That's eight. Now we've got five more, all right? Now our opinion of Charlie is that he's got a little mental problem. But we're in no way going to jeopardize you or anyone else if, for no other reason, we don't want another murder. We're in business to stop murders. And in this business, there's no sense in solving 13 murders if somebody else is going to get killed. That just makes 14. 
Answer. I'm a nasty motorcycle rider. Question. I don't care what you are personally. Answer. The police's general opinion of me is nothing. Question. That's not my opinion. Answer. I'm not an outstanding citizen. Question. As I told you the other day, Danny, you level with us. All the way, right down the line. No bullshitting. I'm not going to bullshit you. You're not going to bullshit me. We level with each other, and I'll go out for you 100%. And I mean it. So that you don't have to go to the joint. Question. Another detective. We've dealt with motorcycle riders before, and with all kinds of people. We've gone out on a limb to help them because they've helped us. We'll do our very best to make sure that nobody gets killed, whether he's a motorcycle rider or the best citizen in the world. Now tell us what you know about Shorty. Early that same evening, November 17, 1969, two LAPD homicide officers, Sergeants Mossman and Brown, appeared at Sybil Brand Institute and asked to see one Ronnie Howard. The interview was brief. They heard enough, however, to realize they were on to something big. Enough, too, to decide it wasn't the best idea to leave Ronnie Howard in the same dormitory with Susan Atkins. Before leaving Sybil Brand, they arranged to have Ronnie move to an isolation unit. Then they drove back to Parker Center, anxious to tell the other detectives that they had cracked the case. Nielsen, Gutierrez, and McGann were still questioning DiCarlo about the murder of Shorty. They already knew something about it, even before talking to Springer and DiCarlo, since Sergeants Whiteley and Gunther had begun their own investigation into the possible homicide after talking to Kitty Lutzinger. They knew Shorty was Donald Jerome Shea, a 36-year-old male Caucasian who had worked at Spawn Ranch on and off for some 15 years as a horse wrangler. Like most of the other cowboys who drifted in and out of Spawn's movie ranch, Shorty was just awaiting the day when some producer discovered he had all the potentials of a new John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. Whenever the prospect of any acting job materialized, Shorty would quit work and go in search of that ever-elusive stardom. Which explained why, when in late August he disappeared from Spawn, no one thought too much about it. At first. Kitty had also told LASO that Manson, Clem, Bruce, and possibly Tex had been involved in the killing and that some of the girls in the family had helped obliterate all traces of the crime. One thing they didn't know, and now asked Danny, was, why did they do it? Answer. Because Shorty was going to old man Spawn and snitching, and Charlie didn't like snitches. Question. Just about the petty bullshit at the ranch? Answer. That's right. Shorty was telling old man Spawn that he should put him in charge and he would clean everybody up he would, in short order, run off Manson and his family. Shorty, however, made a fatal mistake. He forgot that little Squeaky was not only George's eyes, she was also Charlie's ears. There were other reasons, which Danny enumerated. Shorty had married a black topless dancer. Charlie had a thing about interracial marriages and blacks. Charlie had two enemies, DiCarlo said, the police and the niggers, in that order. Charlie also suspected that Shorty had helped set up the August 16th raid on Spawn. Shorty had been offed about ten days later. Note. The exact date of Shay's death still remains unknown. 
It is believed to have occurred on either the night of Monday, August 25th, or Tuesday, August 26th, 1969. End of note. And there was the possibility, though this was strictly conjecture on DiCarlo's part, that Shorty had overheard something about some of the other murders. Bruce Davis had told him about Shorty's murder, DiCarlo said. Several of the girls had also mentioned it, as had both Clem and Manson. Danny was unclear as to some of the details, how they had managed to catch Shorty off guard, and where, but as for the mode of death, he was more than graphic. Like they were going to do Caesar, they went to the gun room and picked up a sword and four German bayonets, the latter purchased from an army surplus store for a buck each and honed a razor sharpness. Then, getting Shorty off by himself, they stuck him like carving up a Christmas turkey. Bruce said they cut him up in nine pieces. They cut his head off. Then they cut his arms off, too, so there was no way they could possibly identify him. They were laughing about that. After killing him, they covered the body with leaves. DiCarlo guessed, but was not sure, that this had occurred in one of the canyons behind the ranch buildings. Some of the girls had helped dispose of Shorty's bloody clothing, his automobile, and other possessions. Then, Clem came back the next day or that night and buried him good. Question. Unidentified voice. Can we break this up for about 15 minutes? Maybe send Danny up to get some coffee? There's been an accident, and they want to talk to you guys. Question. Sure. Question. I'm going to send Danny up to the eighth floor. I want him back down here in 15 minutes. Answer. I'll wait right here. Danny was not anxious to be seen wandering the halls of LAPD. Question. It won't take more than 15 minutes. We'll close the door so nobody will know you're in here. There had been no accident. Mossman and Brown had returned from Sybil Brand. As they related what they had heard, the 15 minutes stretched to nearly 45. Although the Atkins-Howard conversations left many unanswered questions, the detectives were now convinced that the Tate and LaBianca cases had been solved. Note. As will become all too apparent, in this instance, solved was a misstatement if ever there was one. End of note. Susan Atkins had told Ronnie Howard details, the unpublished words written at the LaBianca residence, the lost knife at Tate, which only one of the killers could know. Lieutenants Helder, Tate, and LePage, LaBianca, were notified. When the detectives returned to the interrogation room, they were in a lighthearted mood. Question. Now, when we left Shorty, he was in nine pieces and his head and arms were off. DiCarlo was not told what they had learned, but he must have sensed a change in the questioning. The matter of Shorty was quickly wrapped up. Tate was now the topic. Exactly why did Danny think Manson was involved? Well, there were two incidents. Or maybe it was the same incident. Danny was not sure. Anyway, they went out on one caper and they came back with 75 bucks. Tex was in on that. And he fucked up his foot, fucking somebody out of it. I don't know whether he put his lights out or not, but he got 75 bucks. There were no calendars at Spawn Ranch, DiCarlo had told them earlier. No one paid much attention to what day it was. The one date everyone at the ranch remembered, however, was August 16th, the day of the raid. It was before this. Question. How much before? Answer. 
oh, two weeks. If DiCarlo's estimate was correct, this would also be before Tate. What was the other incident? Answer. They went out one night. Everybody went but Bruce. Question. Who went? Answer. Charlie, Tex, and Clem. Them three. Okay, the next morning. One of the detectives interrupted. Had he actually seen them leave? No, only the next morning. Another interruption. Did any of the girls go that night? Answer. No, I think... No, I'm almost positive it was just them three that went. Question. Well, do you remember, were the rest of the girls there that night? Answer. See, the girls were scattered all over the place, and there is no possible way that I could have kept track of who was there and who wasn't there. So it was possible the girls could have gone without DiCarlo's knowing about it. Now, what about the date? This one Danny remembered, more or less, because he was rebuilding the engine on his bike and had to go into town to get a bearing. It was around the 9th, 10th, or 11th of August. And they split that night, and they came back the next morning. Clem was standing in front of the kitchen, DiCarlo said. Danny walked up to him and asked, What did you do last night? Clem, according to Danny, smiled that real stupid smile of his. Danny glanced back over his shoulder and saw that Charlie was standing behind him. He got the impression that Clem had been about to answer, but that Charlie had signaled him to be quiet. Clem said something like, Don't worry about it, we did all right. At this point, Charlie walked off. Before starting after him, Clem put his hand on Danny's arm and said, We got five piggies. There was a great big grin on his face. Clem told DiCarlo, We got five piggies. Manson told Springer, We knocked off five of them just the other night. Atkins confessed to Howard that she stabbed Sharon Tate and Wojciech Frykowski. Beausoleil confessed to DiCarlo that he had stabbed Hinman. Atkins told Howard that she had done the stabbing. Suddenly, the detectives had a surfeit of confessors. So many that they were thoroughly confused as to who was involved in which homicides. Skipping Hinman, which, after all, was the sheriff's case, and concentrating on Tate, they had two versions. One, DiCarlo felt that Charlie, Clem, and Tex, without the help of any of the girls, had killed Sharon Tate and the others. Two, Ronnie Howard understood Susan Atkins to say that she, two other girls, the names Linda and Katie had been mentioned, but whether they were involved in this particular homicide was unclear, plus Charles, plus possibly one other man, had gone to 10,050 Shallow Drive. As for the LaBianca murders, all they knew was that there were two girls and Charlie, that Linda wasn't in on this one, and that Susan Atkins was somehow involved in that collective we. The detectives decided to try another approach, through the other girls at the ranch. But first, they wanted to wrap up a few loose ends. What clothing had the three men been wearing? Dark clothing, DiCarlo replied. Charlie had on a black sweater, Levi's, moccasins. Tex was dressed similarly, he thought, though he may have been wearing boots, he wasn't sure. Clem wore Levi's and moccasins too, plus an olive drab field jacket. Had he noticed any blood on their clothes when he saw them the next morning? No, but then he hadn't been looking for any. Did he have any idea which vehicle they took? Sure, Johnny Swartz's 59 Ford. 
It was the only car working at that time. Any idea where it was now? It had been hauled off during the August 16th raid, and, so far as Danny knew, was probably still in the impound garage in Canoga Park. Swartz was one of the ranch hands at Spawn, not a family member, but he let them borrow his car. Any idea what Texas' true name was? Charles was his first name, Danny said. He'd seen the last name once, on a pink slip, but couldn't recall it. Was it Charles Montgomery? The detectives asked, using a name Kitty Lutzinger had supplied. No, that didn't sound familiar. What about Clem? Does the name Tufts ring any bell? No, he'd never heard Clem called that, but... That boy that was found shot up in Topanga Canyon? The 16-year-old kid? Wasn't his name Tufts? One of the detectives replied, I don't know. That's the sheriff's case. We got so many murders now. Okay, now about the girls. How well did you know the broads out there? Answer. Pretty well, man. Laughter. The detectives began going through the names the girls had used when arrested in the Spawn and Barker raids, and they immediately encountered problems. Not only had they used aliases when booked, they also used them at the ranch. And not a single alias, but several, seemingly changing names like clothes whenever the mood hit them. As a further complication, they even traded aliases. As if these weren't problems enough, Danny provided another. He was extremely reluctant to admit that any of the girls might be capable of murder. The guys were something else. Bobby, Tex, Bruce, Clem, any would kill, DiCarlo felt, if Charlie told him to. All, it later turned out, had. Ella Jo Bailey was eliminated. She'd left Spawn Ranch before the murders. Mary Bruner and Sandra Good were out also. They'd been in jail both nights. What about Ruth Ann Smack, a.k.a. Ruth Ann Hubelhurst? These were booking names. Her true name was Ruth Ann Morehouse, and she was known in the family as Weesh. Danny knew this, but for personal reasons didn't bother to enlighten the detectives. Question. What do you know about her? Answer. She used to be one of my favorite sweeties. Question. Do you think she would have the guts to get into a cold-blooded murder? Danny hesitated a long time before answering. You know, that little girl there is so sweet. What really made me sick to my stomach is when she came up one night, when I was up there in the desert, and she said, I can hardly wait to get my first pig. Little 17-year-old. I looked on her like she was my daughter. Just the sweetest little thing you would ever want to meet in your life. She was so beautiful and so sweet. And Charlie fucked her thinking around so much it turned your guts. The date when she told DiCarlo this was determined to be about September 1st. If she hadn't killed by then, she couldn't have been in on LaBianca or Tate. Eliminate Ruth Ann. Ever know a Katie? Yeah, but he didn't know what her real name was. I never knew anybody by their real name, DiCarlo said. Katie was an older broad, not a runaway. She was from down around Venice. His description of her was vague, except that she had so much hair on her body that none of the guys wanted to make it with her. What about Alinda? She was a short broad, Danny said. But she didn't stay long, maybe only a month or so, and he didn't know much about her. She'd left by the time they raided Spawn Ranch. 
When Sadie went out on creepy crawly missions, did she carry any weapons? One of the detectives asked. Answer. She carried a little knife. They had a bunch of little hunting knives. Buck hunting knives. Question. Buck knives? Answer. Buck knives, right. They now began firing specific questions at the Carlo. Ever see any credit cards with an Italian name on them? Anybody ever talk about somebody who owned a boat? Ever hear anyone use the name La Bianca? Danny gave no answers to all. What about glasses? Anybody at Spawn wear them? None of them wore glasses because Charlie wouldn't let him wear glasses. Mary Bruner had had several pairs. Charlie had broken them. DiCarlo was shown some two-strand nylon rope. Ever see any rope like this up at Spawn? No, but he had seen some three-strand. Charlie had bought about 200 feet of it at the Jack Frost surplus store in Santa Monica in June or July. Was he sure about that? Sure he was sure. He'd been along when Charlie bought it. Later he'd coiled it so it wouldn't develop snags. It was the same as they used in the Coast Guard on PT boats. He'd handled it hundreds of times. Although DiCarlo was unaware of it, the Tate-Sebring rope was also three-strand. Probably by prearrangement, the detectives began to lean on DiCarlo, adopting a tougher tone. Question. Did you ever caper with any of the guys? Answer. Fuck no. No way at all. Ask any of the girls. Question. Did you have anything to do with Shorty's death? DiCarlo denied it vehemently. Shorty had been his friend. Besides, I've got no balls for putting anybody's lights out. But there was just enough hesitation in his reply to indicate he was hiding something. Pressed, DiCarlo told them about Shorty's guns. Shorty had a matched pair of Colt 45s. He was always hawking, then reclaiming the pistols. In late August or early September, after Shorty had disappeared, but supposedly before DiCarlo knew what had happened to him, Bruce Davis had given him Shorty's pawn tickets on the guns, in repayment for some money he owed to Carlo. Danny had reclaimed the pistols. Later, learning that Shorty had been killed, he'd sold the guns to a Culver City shop for $75. Question. That puts you in a pretty shitty spot. You're aware of that? Danny was. And he got in even deeper when one of the detectives asked him if he knew anything about Lyme. When arrested, Mary Bruner was carrying a shopping list made up by Manson. Lime was one of the items listed. Any idea why Charlie would want some lime? Danny recalled that Charlie had once asked him what to use to decompose a body. He had told him lime worked best because he had once used it to get rid of a cat that had died under a house. Question. Why did you tell him that? Answer. No particular reason. He was just asking me. Question. What did he ask you? Answer. Oh, the best way to, uh, ah, uh, you know, to get rid of a body real quick. Question. Did you ever think to say, now what in the fuck makes you ask a question like that, Charlie? Answer. No, because he was nuts. Question. When did that conversation take place? Answer. Right around, uh, right around the time Shorty disappeared. It looked bad, 
and the detectives left it at that. Although privately they were inclined to accept a Carlo's tale, suspecting, however, that although he probably had not taken part in the murder, he still knew more than he was telling, it gave them some additional leverage to try and get what they wanted. They wanted two things. Question. Anybody left up at Spawn Ranch that knows you? Answer. Not that I know of. I don't know who's up there. And I don't want to go up there to find out. I don't want nothing to do with the place. Question. I want to look around there, but I need a guide. Danny didn't volunteer. They made the other request straight out. Question. Would you be willing to testify? Answer. No, sir. There were two charges pending against him, they reminded him. On the stolen motorcycle engine, maybe we can get it busted down to a lesser charge. Maybe we can go so far as to get it knocked off. As far as the federal thing is concerned, I don't know how much weight we can push on that. But here again, we can try. Answer. If you try for me, that's fine. That's all I can ask of you. If it came down to being a witness or going to jail... DiCarlo hesitated. Then, when he gets out of jail... Question. He isn't going to get out of jail on no first-degree murder beef when you've got over five victims involved. If Manson was the guy that was in on the Tate murder. We don't know that for a fact yet. We've got a great deal of information that way. Answer. There's also a reward involved in that. Question. Yes, there is. Quite a bit of a reward. Twenty-five grand. Not to say that one guy is going to get it, but even split, that's a hell of a piece of cash. Answer. I could send my boy through military school with that. Question. Now, what do you think? Would you be willing to testify against this group of people? Answer. He's going to be sitting there looking at me. Manson is, isn't he? Question. If you go to trial and testify, he is. Now, how scared of Manson are you? Answer. I'm scared shitless. I'm petrified of him. He wouldn't hesitate for a second. If it takes him ten years, he'd find that little boy of mine and carve him to pieces. Question. You give that motherfucker more credit than he deserves. If you think Manson is some kind of a god that is going to break out of jail and come back and murder everybody that testified against him. But it was obvious DiCarlo didn't put that past Manson. Even if he remained in jail, there were the others. Answer. What about Clem? Have you got him locked up? Question. Yeah. Clem is sitting in the cooler up in Independence with Charlie. Answer. What about Tex and Bruce? Question. They're both out. Bruce Davis, the last I heard, sometime earlier this month, was in Venice. Answer. Bruce is down in Venice, huh? I'll have to watch myself. One of my club brothers said he spotted a couple of the girls down in Venice, too. The detectives didn't tell DiCarlo that when Davis was last seen, on November 5th, it was in connection with another death, the suicide of Zero. By this time, LAPD had learned that Zero, a.k.a. Christopher Jesus, true name John Philip Hout, had been arrested in the Barker raid. Earlier, in going through some photographs, 
DiCarlo had identified Scotty and Zero as two young boys from Ohio who had been with the family for a short time but didn't fit in. One of the detectives had remarked, Zero's no longer with us. Answer. What do you mean he's no longer with us? Question. He's among the dead. Answer. Oh, shit, is he? Question. Yeah, he got a little too high one day and he was playing Russian roulette. He parked a bullet in his head. While the detectives had apparently bought the story of Zero's death, as related by Bruce Davis and the others, Danny didn't, not for a minute. No, Danny didn't want to testify. The detectives left it at that. There was still time for him to change his mind. And, after all, they now had Ronnie Howard. They let Danny go after making arrangements for him to call in the next day. One of the detectives commented, after Danny had left, but while the tape was still on, I kind of feel like we've done a day's work. The DiCarlo interview had lasted over seven hours. It was now past midnight on Tuesday, November 18, 1969. I was already asleep, unaware that in a few hours, as a result of a meeting between the DA and his staff that morning, I would be handed the job of prosecuting the Tate-LaBianca killers. Part 3. The Investigation, Phase 2. No sense makes sense. Charles Manson. November 18, 1969. By now, the reader knows a great deal more about the Tate-LaBianca murders than I did on the day I was assigned that case. In fact, since large portions of the foregoing story have not been made public before this, the reader is an insider in a sense highly unusual in a murder case. And, in a way, I'm a newcomer, an intruder. The sudden switch from an unseen background narrator to a very personal account is bound to be a surprise. The best way to soften it, I suspect, would be to introduce myself. Then, when we've got that out of the way, we'll resume the narrative together. This digression, though unfortunately necessary, will be as brief as possible. A conventional biographical sketch would probably have read more or less as follows. Vincent T. Bugliosi, age 35, Deputy District Attorney, Los Angeles, California. Born Hibbing, Minnesota. Graduate, Hollywood High School. Attended the University of Miami on a tennis scholarship, BA and BBA degrees. Deciding on the practice of law, attended UCLA, LLB degree. President, graduating class, 1964. Joined the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, same year. Has tried a number of highly publicized murder cases, Floyd Milton, Pervler, Cromwell, etc., obtaining convictions in all. Has tried 104 felony jury trials, losing only one. In addition to his duties as deputy DA, Bugliosi is a professor of criminal law at Beverly School of Law, Los Angeles. Served as technical consultant and edited the scripts of two pilot films for Jack Webb's TV series, The DA. Series star Robert Conrad patterned his part after the young prosecutor. Married, two children. That's probably about how it would read, yet it tells nothing about how I feel toward my profession, which is even more important. The primary duty of a lawyer engaged in public prosecution is not to convict, but to see that justice is done. Those words are from the old canon of ethics of the American Bar Association. 
I'd thought of them often during the five years I'd been a deputy DA. In a very real sense, they had become my personal credo. If, in a given case, a conviction is justice, so be it. But if it is not, I want no part of it. For far too many years, the stereotyped image of the prosecutor has been either that of a right-wing, law-and-order type, intent on winning convictions at any cost, or a stumbling, bumbling Hamilton Burger, forever trying innocent people, who fortunately are saved at the last possible minute by the foxy maneuverings of a Perry Mason. I've never felt the defense attorney has a monopoly on concern for innocence, fairness, and justice. After joining the DA's office, I tried close to a thousand cases. In a great many, I sought and obtained convictions because I believed the evidence warranted them. In a great many others, in which I felt the evidence was insufficient, I stood up in court and asked for a dismissal of the charges, or requested a reduction in either the charges or the sentence. The latter cases rarely make headlines. Only infrequently does the public learn of them. Thus, the stereotype remains. Far more important, however, is the realization that fairness and justice have prevailed. Just as I never felt the slightest compunction to conform to this stereotype, so did I rebel against another. Traditionally, the role of the prosecutor has been twofold, to handle the legal aspects of the case and to present in court the evidence gathered by law enforcement agencies. I never accepted these limitations. In past cases, I always joined in the investigation, going out and interviewing witnesses myself, tracking down and developing new leads, often finding evidence otherwise overlooked. In some cases, this led to the release of a suspect, in others, to a conviction that otherwise might not have been obtained. For a lawyer to do less than his utmost is, I strongly feel, a betrayal of his client. Though in criminal trials one tends to focus on the defense attorney and his client, the accused, the prosecutor is also a lawyer, and he too has a client, the people. And the people are equally entitled to their day in court, to a fair and impartial trial, and to justice. The Tate-LaBianca case was the farthest thing from my mind on the afternoon of November 18, 1969. I just completed a long trial and was on my way back to my office in the Hall of Justice when Aaron Stovitz, head of the Trials Division of the District Attorney's Office, one of the top trial lawyers in an office of 450 Deputy District Attorneys, grabbed me by the arm and, without a word of explanation, hurried me down the hall into the office of J. Miller Levy, Director of Central Operations. Levy was talking to two LAPD lieutenants I'd worked with on previous cases, Bob Helder and Paul LePage. Listening for a minute, I heard the word, Tate. Turning to Aaron, I asked, Are we going to handle it? He nodded affirmatively. My only comment was a low whistle. Helder and LePage gave us a sketchy resume of what Ronnie Howard had said. As a follow-up to Mossman and Brown's visit the previous night, two other officers had gone to Sybil Brand that morning and talked to Ronnie for a couple of hours. They had obtained considerably more detail, but there were still huge gaps in the story. To say that the Tate and LaBianca cases had been solved at this point would be a gross overstatement. Obviously, in any murder case, finding the killer is extremely important, but it's only a first step. Neither the finding, the arresting, nor the indicting of a defendant has evidentiary value, and none are proof of guilt. Once the killer is identified, there remains the difficult, 
and sometimes insurmountable problem of connecting him with the crime by strong admissible evidence, then proving his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, be it before a judge or a jury. And as yet we hadn't even made the first step, much less the second. In talking to Ronnie Howard, Susan Atkins had implicated herself and Charles, presumably meaning Charles Manson. But Susan had also said that others were involved, and we lacked their actual identities. This was on Tate. On LaBianca, there was virtually no information. One of the first things I wanted to do, after reviewing the Howard and DiCarlo statements, was to go to Spawn Ranch. Arrangements were made for me to go out the next morning with several of the detectives. I asked Aaron if he wanted to come along, but he couldn't make it. Note. Although Aaron was my superior in the office, we had been assigned the case as co-prosecutors, each of us having an equal say in its handling. Though neither of us could have foreseen that months later Aaron would be yanked off the case, leaving me to go it alone, I did realize from the start that, owing to his other duties as head of the trials division, his participation would be limited. End of note. When I returned home late that afternoon and told my wife, Gail, that Aaron and I had been assigned the Tate case, she shared my excitement, but with reservations. She had been hoping that we could take a vacation. It had been months since I'd taken a full day off. Even when I was at home in the evenings, I was either reading transcripts, researching law, or preparing arguments. Although every day I made sure I spent some time with our two children, Vince Jr., three, and Wendy, five, when I was on a big case, I totally immersed myself in it. I promised Gail I'd try to take a few days off, but I honestly had to admit that it might be a while before I could do so. At that time, we were, fortunately, unaware that I would be living with the Tate-LaBianca cases for almost two years, averaging 100 hours per week, rarely, if ever, getting to bed before 2 a.m., seven days per week, and that the few moments Gail, the kids, and I had together would be devoid of privacy, our home transformed into a fortress, a bodyguard not only living with us, but accompanying me everywhere I went, following a threat by Charles Manson that he would kill Bugliosi. November 19th to 21st, 1969. We'd picked a hell of a day for a search. The wind was incredible. By the time we reached Chatsworth, it was almost buffeting us off the road. It wasn't a long drive, well under an hour. From the Hall of Justice in downtown Los Angeles, it's about 30 miles to Chatsworth. Going north on Topanga Canyon Boulevard past Devonshire for about two miles, we made a sharp left onto Santa Susana Pass Road. Once heavily traveled, but in recent years bypassed for a faster freeway, the two-lane road winds upward a mile or two. Then, suddenly, around a bend and to the left, there it was, Spawn's Movie Ranch. Its ramshackle Main Street was less than 20 yards from the highway, in plain view. Wrecked automobile and truck bodies littered the area. There wasn't a sign of life. There was an unreality to the place, accentuated by the roaring wind and the appearance of total desertion, but even more so by the knowledge, if the Atkins-Howard story was true, of what had begun and ended here. A rundown movie set, off in the middle of nowhere, from which dark-clad assassins would venture out at night to terrorize and kill, then return before dawn to vanish into the surroundings. It might have been the plot of a horror film, except that Sharon Tate and at least eight other real human beings were now dead. 
We pulled off onto the dirt road, stopping in front of the Long Branch Saloon. In addition to myself, there were Lieutenant Helder and Sergeant Calkins of the Tate Team, Sergeant Lee of SID, Sergeants Gunther, Whiteley, and William Gleason from LASO, and our guide, Danny DiCarlo. Danny had finally agreed to accompany us, but only on one condition, that we handcuff him. That way, if any members of the family were still around, they wouldn't think he was voluntarily flapping to the fuzz. Though the sheriff's deputies had been to the ranch before, we needed DiCarlo for a specific purpose, to point out the areas where Manson and the family target practiced. The object of our search, any 22 caliber bullets and or shell casings. But first, I wanted to obtain George Spahn's permission to search the ranch. Gunther pointed out his shack, which was to the right and apart from the western set. We knocked, and a voice, that of a young girl, said, Come right on in. It was as if every fly in the area had taken shelter there during the storm. Eighty-one-year-old George Spahn was sitting in a decaying armchair, wearing a Stetson and dark glasses.